Sansa. The ladder of the forecastle was steep and splintery, so Sansa accepted a hand-up from Lothar Brun. Sir Lothar, she had to remind herself. The man had been knighted for his valour in the Battle of the Blackwater. Though no proper knight would wear those patched brown breeches and scuffed boots, nor that cracked and water-stained leather jerkin. A square-faced stocky man with a squash nose and a mat of nappy grey hair, Brune spoke seldom. He is stronger than he looks, though. She could tell by the ease with which he lifted her as if she weighed nothing at all. Off the bow of the Merling King stretched a bare and stony strand, windswept, treeless, and uninviting. Even so, it made a welcome sight. They had been a long while clawing their way back on course. The last storm had swept them out of sight of land, and sent such waves crashing over the sides of the galley that Sansa had been certain they were all going to drown. Two men had been swept overboard, she had heard old Oswald saying, and another had fallen from the mast and broken his neck. She had seldom ventured out on deck herself. Her little cabin was dank and cold, but Sansa had been sick for most of the voyage, sick with terror, sick with fever, or seasick. She could keep nothing down, and even sleep came hard. Whenever she closed her eyes, she saw Joffrey tearing at his collar, clawing at the soft skin of his throat, dying with flakes of pie-crust on his lips and wine-stains on his doublet and the wind keening in the lines reminded her of the terrible thin sucking sound he'd made as he fought to draw in air. Sometimes she dreamed of Tyrion as well. He did nothing, she told Littlefinger once, when he paid a visit to her cabin to see if she were feeling any better. He did not kill Joffrey, too, but the dwarf's hands are far from clean. He had a wife before you, do you know that? He told me. And did he tell you that when he grew bored with her, he made a gift of her to his father's guardsman? He might have done the same to you in time. Shed no tears for the imp, my lady. The wind ran salty fingers through her hair, and Sansa shivered. Even this close to shore, the rolling of the ship made her tummy queasy. She desperately needed a bath and a change of clothes. I must look as haggard as a corpse, and smell of vomit. Lord Pitar came up beside her, cheerful as ever. Good morrow. The salt air is bracing, don't you think? It always sharpens my appetite. He put a sympathetic arm about her shoulders. Are you quite well? You look so pale. It's only my tummy, the seasickness. A little wine will be good for that. We'll get your cup as soon as we're ashore. Patar pointed to where an old flint tower stood outlined against a bleak grey sky, the breakers crashing on the rocks beneath it. Cheerful, is it not? I fear there's no safe anchorage here. We'll put ashore in a boat. Here? She did not want to go ashore here. The fingers were a dismal place she'd heard, and there was something forlorn and desolate about the little tower. Couldn't I stay on the ship until we make sail for White Harbour? From here the king turns east for Bravos, without us. But, my lord, you said... You said we were sailing home. And there it stands, miserable as it is, my ancestral home. It has no name, I fear. 
A great lord's seat ought to have a name, wouldn't you agree? Winterfell, the airy, River Ron, there's our castles. Lord of Harrenhal, now, that has a sweet ring to it. But what was I before? Lord of Sheepshit, and master of the Drearfort? It lacks a certain something. His grey-green eyes regarded her innocently. You look distraught. Did you think we were making for Winterfell, sweetling? Winterfell has been taken, burned, and sacked. All those you knew and loved are dead. What Northmen who have not fallen to the Iron Man are warring amongst themselves? Even the wall is under attack. Winterfell was the home of your childhood, Sansa, but you are no longer a child. You're a woman grown, and you need to make your own home. But not here, she said, dismayed. It looks so small and bleak and mean. It's all that and less. The fingers are a lovely place if you happen to be a stone. But have no fear. We shan't stay more than a fortnight. I expect your aunt is already riding to meet us. He smiled. The Lady Lysa and I are to be wed. Wed? Sansa was stunned. You and my aunt? The Lord of Harrenhal and the Lady of the Airy. You said it was my mother you loved. But, of course, Lady Catelyn was dead. So even if she had loved Pertire secretly and given him her maidenhood, it made no matter now. So silent, my lady, said Pertire. I was certain you would wish to give me your blessing. It's a rare thing for a boy born heir to stones and sheep pellets to wed the daughter of Hoster Tully and the widow of John Aaron. I, I pray you will have long years together and many children and be very happy in one another. It had been years since Sansa last saw her mother's sister. She will be kind to me for my mother's sake, surely. She is my own blood. And the Vale of Aaron was beautiful. All the songs said so. Perhaps it would not be so terrible to stay here for a time. Lothar and old Oswald rowed them ashore. Sansa huddled in the bow under her cloak, with a hood drawn up against the wind, wondering what awaited her. Servants emerged from the tower to meet them. A thin old woman and a fat middle-aged one. Two ancient white-haired men and a girl of two or three with a sty on one eye. When they recognized Lord Petard, they knelt on the rocks. "'My household,' he said. "'I don't know the child, another of Keller's bastards, I suppose. She pops one out every few years.' The two old men waded out up to their thighs to lift Sansa from the boat, so she would not get her skirts wet. Oswald and Lothar splashed their way ashore, as did Littlefinger himself. He gave the old woman a kiss on the cheek and grinned at the younger one. Who fathered this one, Keller? The fat woman laughed. I can't rightly say, my lord. <laughs> I'm not one for telling them no. And all the local lads are grateful, I'm quite sure. It's good to have you home, my lord, said one old man. He looked to be at least eighty, but he wore a studded brigantine and a longsword at his side. How long will you be in residence? As short a time as possible, Brian. Have no fear. Is the place habitable just now, would you say? 
If we knew you was coming, we'd a laid down fresh rushes, my lord, said the crone. There's a dung fire burning. Nothing, says Home, like the smell of burning dung. Patard turned to Sansa. Grishill was my wet nurse, but she keeps my castle now. Umfred's my steward, and Brian. Didn't I name you captain of the guard last time I was here? Uh, you did, my lord. You said you'd be getting some more men, too, but you never did. Me and the dogs stand all the watches. And very well, I'm sure. No one has made off with any of my rocks or sheep pellets. I see that plainly. Padar gestured toward the fat woman. Keller minds my vast herds. How many sheep do I have at present, Keller? She had to think for a moment. Three and twenty, my lord. There was nine and twenty, but Brian's dogs kill one, and we butchered some others and salted down the meat. Ah, cold salt mutton. I must be home. When I break my fast on gull's eggs and seaweed soup, I'll be certain of it. If you like, my lord, said the old woman Griselle. Lord Patar made a face. Come, let's see if my hall is as dreary as I recall. He led them up the strand over rocks slick with rotting seaweed. A handful of sheep were wandering about the base of the flint tire, grazing on the thin grass that grew between the sheepfold and thatched stable. Sansa had to step carefully. There were pellets everywhere. Within, the tower seemed even smaller. An open stone stair wound round the inside wall from undercroft to roof. Each floor was but a single room. The servants lived and slept in the kitchen at ground level, sharing the space with a huge brindled mastiff and half a dozen sheepdogs. Above that was a modest hall, and higher still the bedchamber. There were no windows, but arrow slits were embedded in the outer wall at intervals along the curve of the stair. Above the hearth hung a broken longsword and a battered oaken shield, its paint cracked and flaking. The device painted on the shield was one Sansa did not know, a grey stone head with fiery eyes upon a light green field. My grandfather, Shield, Patire explained when he saw her gazing at it. His own father was born in Bravus, and came to the Vale as a sellsword in the heart of Lord Corbury, so my grandfather took the head of the Titan as his sigil when he was knighted. It's very fierce, said Sansa. Rather too fierce for an amiable fellow like me, said Patire. I much prefer my mockingbird. Oswald made two more trips out to the Merlin King to offload provisions. Among the loads he brought ashore were several casks of wine. Patar poured Sansa a cup as promised. Here, my lady, this should help your tummy, I would hope. Having solid ground beneath her feet had helped already, but Sansa dutifully lifted the goblet with both hands and took a sip. The wine was very fine. An arbor vintage, she thought. It tasted of oak and fruit and hot summer nights, the flavors blossoming in her mouth like flowers opening to the sun. She only prayed that she could keep it down. Lord Patar was being so kind, she did not want to spoil it all by retching on him. He was studying her over his own goblet, his bright grey-green eyes full of... Was it amusement?
or something else. Sansa was not certain. Grizel, he called to the old woman, bring some food up. Nothing too heavy. My lady has a tender tummy. Some fruit might serve, perhaps. Oswald's brought some oranges and pomegranates from the king. Yes, my lord. Might I have a hot bath as well? asked Sansa. I'll have Keller draw some water, my lady. Sansa took another sip of wine and tried to think of some polite conversation, but Lord Petar saved her the effort. When Grizel and the other servants had gone, he said, Lysa will not come alone. Before she arrives, we must be clear on who you are. Who I... I... I don't understand. Varius has informers everywhere. If Sansa Stark should be seen in the Vale, the eunuch will know within a moon's turn, and that would create unfortunate, um, complications. It's not safe to be a Stark just now, so we shall tell Lysa's people that you are my natural daughter. Natural? Sansa was aghast. You mean a bastard? Well, you can scarcely be my true-born daughter. I've never taken a wife. <laughs> That's well known. And what shall you be called? I, I could call myself after my mother, Catelyn, a bit too obvious. But after my mother, that would serve. Elaine, do you like it? Elaine is pretty. Sansa hoped she would remember. But couldn't I be the true-born daughter of some knight in your service? Perhaps he died gallantly in the battle, and— I have no gallant knights in my service, Elaine. Such a tale would draw unwanted questions, as a corpse draws crows. It is rude to pry into the origins of a man's natural children, however. He cocked his head. So, who are you? Elaine Stone, would it be? When he nodded, she said, But who is my mother? Keller? Oh, please, no, she said, mortified. <laughs> I was teasing. Your mother was a gentlewoman of Bravos, daughter of a merchant prince. We met in Gulltown when I had charge of the port. She died giving you birth and entrusted you to the faith. I have some devotional books you can look over. Learn to quote from them. Nothing discourages unwanted questions as much as a flow of pious bleating. In any case, at your flowering you decided you did not wish to be a scepter, and wrote to me. That was the first I knew of your existence. He fingered his beard. Do you think you can remember all that? I hope. It will be like playing a game, won't it? Are you fond of games, Elaine? The new name would take some getting used to. Games, I... I suppose it would depend. Grizel reappeared before he could say more, balancing a large platter. She set it down between them. There were apples and pears and pomegranates, some sad-looking grapes, a huge blood orange. The old woman had brought a round of bread as well, and a crock of butter. Pataya cut a pomegranate in two with his dagger, offering half to Sansa. You should try and eat, my lady. Thank you, my lord. Pomegranate seeds were so messy. Sansa chose a pear instead, and took a small, delicate bite. It was very ripe. The juice ran down her chin. Lord Patar loosened a seed with the point of his dagger. 
You must miss your father terribly, I know. Lord Eddard was a brave man, honest and loyal, but quite a hopeless player. He brought the seed to his mouth with a knife. In King's Landing, there are two sorts of people, the players and the pieces. And I was a piece? She dreaded the answer. Yes, but don't let that trouble you. You're still half a child. Every man's a piece to start with, and every maid as well. Even some who think they are players. He ate another seed. Cersei, for one. She thinks herself sly. But in truth, she is utterly predictable. Her strength rests on her beauty, birth, and riches. Only the first of those is truly her own. And it will soon desert her. I pity her, then. She wants power, but she has no notion what to do with it when she gets it. Everyone wants something, Elaine, and when you know what a man wants, you know who he is, and how to move him. As you move Sir Dantus to poison Joffrey? It had to have been Dantus, she had concluded. Littlefinger laughed. Sir Dantus the Red was a skin of wine with legs. He could never have been trusted with a task of such enormity. He would have bungled it or betrayed me. No, all Dantas had to do was lead you from the castle and make certain you wore your silver hairnet. The black amethyst. But if not Dantas, who? Do you have other pieces? You could turn King's Landing upside down and not find a single man with a mockingbird sewn over his heart. But that does not mean I am friendless. Patar went to the steps. Oswell, come up here and let the Lady Sansa have a look at you. The old man appeared a few moments later, grinning and bowing. Sansa eyed him uncertainly. What am I supposed to see? Do you know him? asked Patar. No. Look closer. She studied the old man's lined, wind-burnt face, hooked nose, white hair, and huge, knockly hands. There was something familiar about him, yet Sansa had to shake her head. I don't. I never saw Oswell before I got into his boat, I'm certain. Oswell grinned, showing a mouth of crooked teeth. No, but my lady might have met my three sons. It was the three sons, and that smile too. Kettleblack! Sansa's eyes went wide. You're a kettleblack? I, my lady, as it please you. She is beside herself with joy. Lord Petard dismissed him with a wave, and returned to the pomegranate again as Oswell shuffled down the steps. Tell me, Elaine, which is more dangerous, the dagger brandished by an enemy, or the hidden one pressed your back by someone you never even see? The hidden dagger? There's a clever girl. He smiled, his thin lips bright red from the pomegranate seeds. When the imp sent off her guards, the queen had Sir Lancel hire sail swords for her. Lancel found her the kettleblacks, which delighted your little lord husband, since the lads were in his pay through his man Bron. He chuckled. But it was me who told Oswell to get his sons to King's Landing, when I learned that Bron was looking for swords. Three hidden daggers, Elaine, now 
perfectly pleased. So one of the Kettle Blacks put the poison in Juff's cup. Sir Osmond had been near the king all night, she remembered. Did I say that? Lord Petire cut the blood orange in two with his dagger and offered half to Sansa. The lads are far too treacherous to be part of any such scheme, and Osmond has become especially unreliable since he joined the king's guard. That white cloak does things to a man, I find, even a man like him. He tilted his chin back and squeezed the blood orange, so the juice ran down into his mouth. I love the juice, but I loathe the sticky fingers, he complained, wiping his hands. Clean hands, Hansa. Whatever you do, make certain your hands are clean. Sansa spooned up some juice from her own orange. But if it wasn't the Kettlebacks and it wasn't Sir Dantas, you weren't even in the city, and it couldn't have been Tyrion. No more guesses, sweetling? She shook her head. I don't, Pataya smiled. I will wager you that at some point during the evening someone told you that your hairnet was crooked and straightened it for you. Sansa raised a hand to her mouth. You cannot mean... She wanted to take me to Highgarden, to marry me to her grandson. Gentle, pious, good-hearted Willis Tyrell. Be grateful you were spared. He would have bored you spitless. The old woman is not boring, though. I'll grant her that. A fearsome old harridan, and not near as frail as she pretends. When I came to Highgarden to dicker for Marjorie's hand, she let her lord son bluster while she asked pointed questions about Joffrey's nature. I praised him to the skies, to be sure, whilst my men spread disturbing tales among Lord Tyrell's servants. And that is how the game is played. I also planted the notion of Sir Loras taking the white. Not that I suggested it. That would have been too crude. But men in my party supplied grisly tales about how the mob had killed Sir Preston Greenfield and raped the Lady Lollis, and slipped a few silvers to Lord Tyrell's army of singers to sing of Ryan Redwine, Serwyn of the Mirror Shield, and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. A harp can be as dangerous as a sword in the right hands. Mace Tyrell actually thought it was his own idea to make Sir Loris's inclusion in the King's Guard part of the marriage contract. Who better to protect his daughter than her splendid knightly brother? And it relieved him of the difficult task of trying to find lands and a bride for a third son. Never easy, and doubly difficult in Sir Loris's case. Be that as it may, Lady Olenna was not about to let Joffrey harm her precious darling granddaughter. But unlike her son, she also realized that under all his flowers and finery, Sir Loris is as hot-tempered as Jamie Lannister. Toss Joffrey, Marjorie, and Loris in a pot, and you've got the makings for King Slayer Stew. The old woman understood something else as well. Her son was determined to make Marjorie a queen, and for that he needed a king. But he did not need Joffrey. We shall have another wedding soon. Wait and see. Marjorie will marry Tommen. She'll keep her queenly crown and her maidenhead, neither of which she especially wants. But what does that matter? 
the great Western alliance will be preserved for a time at least. Marjorie and Tommen. Sansa did not know what to say. She had liked Marjorie Tyrell and her small, sharp grandmother as well. She thought wistfully of Highgarden with its courtyards and musicians and the pleasure barges on the Manda, a far cry from this bleak shore. At least I am safe here. Joffrey is dead, he cannot hurt me any more, and I am only a bastard girl now. Elaine Stone has no husband and no claim. And her aunt would soon be here as well. The long nightmare of King's Landing was behind her, and her mockery of a marriage as well. She could make herself a new home here, just as Pattaya said. It was eight long days until Lysa Aaron arrived. On five of them it rained, while Sansa sat bored and restless by the fire beside the old blind dog. He was too sick and toothless to guard with Brian any more, and mostly all he did was sleep. But when she patted him, he whined and licked her hand, and after that they were fast friends. When the rains let up, Pattaya walked with her around his holdings, which took less than half a day. He owned a lot of rocks, just as he had said. There was one place where the tide came jetting up out of a blowhole to shoot thirty feet into the air, and another where someone had chiseled the seven-pointed star of the new gods upon a boulder. Pattaya said that marked one of the places the Andals had landed, when they came across the sea to wrest the veil from the first men. Farther inland a dozen families lived in huts of pile stone beside a peat bug. Mine own small folk, Pattaya said, though only the oldest seemed to know him. There was a hermit's cave on his land as well, but no hermit. He's dead now, but when I was a boy my father took me to see him. The man had not washed in forty years, so you can imagine how he smelled. But supposedly he had the gift of prophecy. He groped me a bit and said I would be a great man, and for that my father gave him a skin of wine. Pattaya snorted. <laughs> I would have told him the same thing for half a cup. Finally, on a grey windy afternoon, Brian came running back to the tower with his dogs barking at his heels to announce that riders were approaching from the southwest. Lysa. Lord Pattaya said, Come, Elaine, let us greet her. They put on their cloaks and waited outside. The riders numbered no more than a score, a very modest escort for the Lady of the Airy. Three maids rode with her, and a dozen household knights in mail and plate. She brought a septon as well, and a handsome singer with a wisp of a moustache and long sandy curls. Could that be my aunt? Lady Lysa was two years younger than her mother, but this woman looked ten years older. Thick auburn tresses fell down past her waist, but beneath the costly velvet gown and jeweled bodice her body sagged and bulged. Her face was pink and painted, her breasts heavy, her limbs thick. She was taller than Littlefinger and heavier, nor did she show any grace in the clumsy way she climbed down off her horse. Pattaya knelt to kiss her fingers. The king's small council commanded me to woo and win you, my lady. Do you think you might have me for your lord and husband? Lady Lysa pooched her lips 
and pulled him up to plant a kiss upon his cheek. Oh, mayhaps I could be persuaded, she giggled. Have you bought gifts to melt my heart? The king's peace. Oh, poo to the peace. What else have you brought me? My daughter. Littlefinger beckoned Sansa forward with a hand. My lady, allow me to present you Elaine Stone. Lysa Aaron did not seem greatly pleased to see her. Sansa did a deep curtsy, her head bowed. A bastard, she heard her aunt say. Patar, have you been wicked? Who was her mother? The wench is dead. I'd hope to take Elaine to the airy. What am I to do with her there? I have a few notions, said Lord Patar, but just now I'm more interested in what I might do with you, my lady. All the sternness melted of her aunt's round pink face, and for a moment Sansa thought Lysa Aaron was about to cry. Oh, sweet Patar, I've missed you so. You don't know. You can't know. Yon Royce has been stirring up all sorts of trouble, demanding that I call my banners and go to war. And the others all swarm around me, Hunter and Corbray and that dreadful Nestor Royce, all wanting to wed me and take my son to ward. But none of them truly love me, only you, Pattaya. I've dreamed of you so long. And I of you, my lady. He slid an arm around behind her and kissed her on the neck. How soon can we be wed? Now, said Lady Lysa, sighing. I've brought my own septon and a singer and mead for the wedding feast. Here? That did not please him. I'd sooner wed you at the area, with your whole court in attendance. Pooh to my court! I've waited so long I could not bear to wait another moment. She put her arms around him. I want to share your bed tonight, my sweet. I want us to make another child, a brother for Robert, or a sweet little daughter. I dream of that as well, sweetling. Yet there is much to be gained from a great public wedding, with all the veil. No, she stamped her foot. I want you now, this very night, and I must warn you, after all these years of silence and whisperings, I mean to scream when you love me. I'm going to scream so loud they'll hear me in the airy. Perhaps I could bed you now and wed you later. The Lady Lysa giggled like a girl. Oh, Patar Baelish, you are so wicked. No, I say no. I'm the Lady of the area, and I command you to wed me this very moment. Patar gave a shrug. As my Lady commands, then, I am helpless before you as ever. They said their vows within the hour, standing beneath a sky-blue canopy as the sun sank in the west. Afterward, trestle tables were set up beneath a small flint tower, and they feasted on quail, venison, and roast boar, washing it down with a fine light mead. Torches were lit as dusk crept in. Lysa's singer played The Vow Unspoken and Seasons of My Love and Two Hearts That Beat as One. Several younger knights even asked Sansa to dance. Her aunt danced as well, her skirts whirling when Pataya spun her in his arms. Mead and marriage had taken years off Lady Lysa. She laughed at everything so long as she held her husband's hand, and her eyes seemed to glow whenever she looked at him. When it was time for the bedding, 
Her knights carried her up to the tower, stripping her as they went and shouting bawdy jests. Tyrion spared me that, Sansa remembered. It would not have been so bad being undressed for a man she loved by friends who loved them both. By Joffrey, though, she shuddered. Her aunt had brought only three ladies with her, so they pressed Sansa to help them undress Lord Patar and march him up to his marriage bed. He submitted with good grace and a wicked tongue, giving as good as he got. By the time they had gotten him into the tower and out of his clothes, the other women were flushed, with laces unlaced, kirtles crooked, and skirts in disarray. But Littlefinger only smiled at Sansa as they marched him up to the bedchamber where his lady wife was waiting. Lady Lysa and Lord Patar had the third-story bedchamber to themselves, but the tower was small, and true to her word, her aunt screamed. It had begun to rain outside, driving the feasters into the hall one floor below, so they heard most every word. Patar, her aunt moaned. Oh, Patar, Patar, sweet Patar, oh, 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 there, Patar, there, that's where you belong. Lady Lysa's singer launched into a bawdy version of Milady's Supper, but even his singing and playing could not drown out Lysa's cries. Make me a baby, Patar, she screamed. Make me another sweet little baby, oh, Patar, my precious, my precious Patar! Her last shriek was so loud that it set the dogs to barking, and two of her aunt's ladies could scarce contain their mirth. Sansa went down the steps and out into the night. A light rain was falling on the remains of the feast, but the air smelled fresh and clean. The memory of her own wedding night with Tyrion was much with her. In the dark, I am the knight of flowers, he had said. I could be good to you, but that was only another Lannister lie. A dog can smell a lie, you know, the hound had told her once. She could almost hear the rough rasp of his voice. Look around you and take a good whiff. They're all liars here, and everyone better than you. She wondered what had become of Sandor Clegane. Did he know that they'd kill Joffrey? Would he care? He'd been the prince's sworn shield for years. She stayed outside for a long time. When at last she sought her own bed, wet and chilled, only the dim glow of a peat fire lit the darkened hall. There was no sound from above. The young singer sat in a corner playing a slow song to himself. One of her aunt's maids was kissing a knight in Lord Patar's chair, their hands busy beneath each other's clothing. Several men had drunk themselves to sleep, and one was in the privy being noisily sick. Sansa found Brian's old blind dog in her little alcove beneath the steps and lay down next to him. He woke and licked her face. "'You sad old hound,' she said, ruffling his fur. "'Elaine!' her aunt singer stood over. "'Sweet Elaine, I am Marillion. "'I saw you come in from the rain. "'The night is chill and wet. Let me warm you.' The old dog raised his head and growled, but the singer gave him a cuff and sent him slinking off, whimpering. "'Marillion?' she said, uncertain. You are kind to think of me, but pray forgive me. I'm very tired. And very beautiful. 
all night I've been making songs for you in my head. A lay for your eyes, a ballad for your lips, a duet for your breasts. I will not sing them, though. They are poor things, unworthy of such beauty. He sat on her bed and put his hand on her leg. Let me sing to you with my body instead. She caught a whiff of his breath. You're drunk. I never get drunk. Mead only makes me merry. I am on fire. His hand slipped up to her thigh. And you as well. Unhand me. You forget yourself. Mercy, I've been singing love songs for hours. My blood is stirred. And yours, I know. There's no wench half so lusty as one bastard born. Are you wet for me? I'm a maiden, she protested. Truly, oh, Elaine, Elaine, my fair maid, give me the gift of your innocence. You will thank the gods you did. I'll have you singing louder than the Lady Lysa. Sansa jerked away from him, frightened. If you don't leave me, my, uh, my father will hang you, Lord Petar. Little finger, <laughs> he chuckled. Lady Lysa loves me well, and I am Lord Robert's favourite. If your father offends me, I will destroy him with a verse. <laughs> he put a hand on her breast and squeezed. Let's get you out of these wet clothes. You wouldn't want them ripped, I know. Come, sweet lady, heed your heart. Sansa heard the soft sound of steel on leather. Singer, a rough voice said. Best go, if you want to sing again. The light was dim, but she saw a faint glimmer of a blade. The singer saw it too. Find your own wench! The knife flashed, and he cried out, You, you cut me! I'll do worse, if you don't go! And quick as that, Marillion was gone. The other remained, looming over Sansa in the darkness. Lord Petire said watch out for you. It was Lothar Bruin's voice, she realized. Not the hounds, no. How could it be? Of course, it had to be Lothar. That night, Sansa scarcely slept at all, but tossed and turned, just as she had aboard the Merlin King. She dreamt of Joffrey dying, but as he clawed at his throat and the blood ran down across his fingers, she saw with horror that it was her brother, Rob. And she dreamed of her wedding night, too, of Tyrion's eyes devouring her as she undressed. Only then he was bigger than Tyrion had any right to be, and when he climbed into the bed, his face was scarred only on one side. I'll have a song from you, he rasped, and Sansa woke and found the old blind dog beside her once again. I wish that you were lady, she said. Come the morning, Grissel climbed up to the bedchamber to serve the lord and lady a tray of morning bread with butter, honey, fruit, and cream. She returned to say that Elaine was wanted. Sansa was still drowsy from sleep. It took her a moment to remember that she was Elaine. Lady Lysa was still abed, but Lord Petire was up and dressed. Your aunt wishes to speak with you, he told Sansa as he pulled on a boot. I've told her who you are. Gods be good. I... I thank you, my lord. Batar yanked on the other boot. I've had about as much home as I can stomach. We'll leave for the airy this afternoon. He kissed his lady wife and licked a smear of honey off her lips.
then headed down the steps. Sansa stood by the foot of the bed while her aunt ate a pear and studied her. I see it now, the Lady Lysa said as she set the core aside. You look so much like Catelyn. It's kind of you to say so. It was not meant as flattery. If truth be told, you look too much like Catelyn. Something must be done. We shall darken your hair before we bring you back to the airy, I think. Darken my hair? If it please you, Aunt Lysa, you must not call me that. No word of your presence here must be allowed to reach King's Landing. I do not mean to have my son endangered. She nibbled the corner of a honeycomb. I have kept the veil out of this war. Our harvest has been plentiful. The mountains protect us, and the area is impregnable. Even so, it would not do to draw Lord Tywin's wrath down upon us. Lysa set the comb down and licked honey from her fingers. You were wed to Tyrion Lannister, Pataya says, that vile dwarf. They made me marry him. I never wanted it. No more than I did, her aunt said. John Aaron was no dwarf, but he was old. You may not think so to see me now, but on the day we wed I was so lovely, I put your mother to shame. But all John desired was my father's swords to aid his darling boys. I should have refused him. But he was such an old man, how long could he live? Half his teeth were gone, and his breath smelled like bad cheese. I cannot abide a man with foul breath. Patar's breath is always fresh. He was the first man I ever kissed, you know. My father said he was too low-born, but I knew how high he'd rise. John gave him the customs for Gulltown to please me. But when he increased the incomes tenfold, my lord husband saw how clever he was, and gave him other appointments, even brought him to King's Landing to be master of coin. That was hard, to see him every day and still be wed to that old, cold man. John did his duty in the bedchamber, but he could no more give me pleasure than he could give me children. His seed was old and weak. All my babies died but Robert, three girls and two boys. All my sweet little babies dead, and that old man just went on and on with his stinking breath. So you see, I have suffered too. Lady Lysa sniffed. You do know that your poor mother is dead? Tyrion told me, said Sansa. He said the phrase murdered her at the twins with Rob. Tears welled suddenly in Lady Lysa's eyes. We are women, alone now, you and I. Are you afraid, child? Be brave. I would never turn away Cat's daughter. We are bound by blood. She beckoned Sansa closer. You may come kiss my cheek, Elaine. Dutifully, she approached and knelt beside the bed. Her aunt was drenched in sweet scent, though under that was a sour, milky smell. Her cheek tasted of paint and powder. As Sansa stepped back, Lady Lysa caught her wrist. Now tell me, she said sharply, are you with child? The truth now? I will know if you lie. No, she said, startled by the question. You are a woman, flowered. Are you not? Yes. Sansa knew the truth of her flowering could not be long hidden in the airy. Tyrion didn't... He never... She could feel the blush creeping up her cheeks. I am still a maid. Was the dwarf incapable? No, he was only... 
He was kind. She could not say that. Not here. Not to this aunt, who hated him so. He, he had whores, my lady. He told me so. Whores? Lysa released her wrist. Of course he did. What woman would bed such a creature but for gold? I should have killed the imp when he was in my power, but he tricked me. Ooh, he's full of low cunning, that one. His cell sort slew my good Savardas Egan. Catelyn should not have brought him here. I told her that. She made off with our uncle, too. That was wrong of her. The blackfish was my knight of the gate, and since he left us, the mountain clans are growing very bold. But I will soon set all that to rights, though. I shall make him Lord Protector of the Vale. Her aunt smiled for the first time almost warmly. He may not look as tall or strong as some, but he is worth more than all of them. Trust in him and do as he says. I shall, aunt, uh, my lady. Lady Lysa seemed pleased by that. I knew that boy, Joffrey. He used to call my Robert cruel names, and once he slapped him with a wooden sword. A man will tell you that poison is dishonorable, but a woman's honor is different. The mother shaped us to protect our children, and our only dishonor is in failure. You'll know that when you have a child. A child? said Sansa uncertainly. Lysa waved a hand negligently. Not for many years. You're too young to be a mother. One day you shall want children, though, just as you will want to marry. I... I am married, my lady. Yes, but soon a widow. Be glad the imp preferred his whores. It would not be fitting for my son to take that dwarf's leavings. But as he never touched you... How would you like to marry your cousin, the Lord Robert? The thought made Sansa weary. All she knew of Robert Aaron was that he was a little boy and sickly. It's not me she wants her son to marry. It's my claim. No one will ever marry me for love. But lying came easy to her now. I can scarcely wait to meet him, my lady. But he is still a child, is he not? He is eight, and not robust, but such a good boy, so bright and clever. He will be a great man, Elaine. The seed is strong, my lord husband said before he died, his last words. The gods sometimes let us glimpse the future as we lay dying. I see no reason why you should not be wed as soon as we know that your Lannister husband is dead. A secret wedding, to be sure. The lord of the Irie could scarcely be thought to have married a bastard. That would not be fitting. The raven should bring us the word from King's Landing once the imp's head rolls. You and Robert can be wed the next day. Won't that be joyous? It will be good for him to have a little companion. He played with Vardas Egan's boy when we first returned to the area, and my Stuart's sons as well, but they were much too rough, and I had no choice but to send them away. Do you read well, Elaine? Septum Ordain was good enough to say so. Robert has weak eyes, but he loves to be read too. Lady Lysa confided. He likes stories about animals the best. Do you know the little song about the chicken who dressed as a fox? I sing him that all the time. He never grows tired of it. And he likes to play hop-frog and spin the sword and come into my castle. But you must always let him win. 
That's only proper, don't you think? He is the Lord of the Airy, after all. You must never forget that. You are well born, and the Starks of Winterfell were always proud, but Winterfell has fallen, and you are really just a beggar now. So put that pride aside. Gratitude will better become you in your present circumstances. Yes, and obedience. My son will have a grateful and obedient wife. John Day and night the axes rang. John could not remember the last time he had slept. When he closed his eyes, he dreamed of fighting. When he woke, he fought. Even in the king's tower, he could hear the ceaseless thunk of bronze and flint and stolen steel biting into wood, and it was louder when he tried to rest in the warming shed atop the wall. Mans had sledgehammers at work as well, and long saws with teeth of bone and flint. Once as he was drifting off into an exhausted sleep, there came a great cracking from the haunted forest, and a sentinel tree came crashing down in a cloud of dirt and needles. He was awake when Owen came to him, lying restless under a pile of furs on the floor of the warming shed. "'Lord Snow,' said Owen, shaking his shoulder, "'the d dawn!' He gave John a hand to help pull him back onto his feet. Others were waking as well, jostling one another as they pulled on their boots and buckled their sword belts in the close confines of the shed. No one spoke. They were all too tired to talk. Few of them ever left the wall these days. It took too long to ride up and down in the cage. Castle Black had been abandoned to Maester Eamon, Sir Winton Stout, and a few others too old or ill to fight. "'I had a dream that the king had c come,' Owen said happily. "'Maester Eamon sent a raven, and King Robert Kirk came with all his strength. I dreamed I saw his golden banners.' John made himself smile. That would be a welcome sight to see, Owen. Ignoring the twinge of pain in his leg, he swept a black fur cloak about his shoulders, gathered up his crutch, and went out onto the wall to face another day. A gust of wind sent icy tendrils wending through his long brown hair. Half a mile north, the wilding encampments were stirring. Their campfires sending up smoky fingers to scratch against the pale dawn sky. Along the edge of the forest, they had raised their tents of hide and fur, even a crude long haul of logs and woven branches. There were horse lines to the east, mammoths to the west, and men everywhere sharpening their swords, putting points on crude spears, donning makeshift armor of hide and horn and bone. For every man that he could see, John knew there were a score unseen in the wood. The brush gave them some shelter from the elements, and hid them from the eyes of the hated crows. Already their archers were stealing forward, pushing their rolling mantlets. "'Here come our breakfast arrows,' Pip announced cheerfully, as he did every morning. "'It's good he can make a jape of it,' John thought. "'Someone has to.' Three days ago one of those breakfast arrows had caught Red Allen of the rosewood in the leg. You could still see his body— at the foot of the wall, if you cared to lean out far enough. John had to think that it was better for them to smile at Pip's jest 
than to brood over Alan's corpse. The mantlets were slanting wooden shields, wide enough for five of the free folk to hide behind. The archers pushed them close, then knelt behind them to loose their arrows through slits in the wood. The first time the wildlings rolled them out, John had called for fire arrows and set a half-dozen ablaze, but after that men started covering them with raw hides. All the fire arrows in the world couldn't make them catch now. The brothers even started wagering as to which of the store sentinels would collect the most arrows before they were done. Dolorous Ed was leading with four, but Othol Yarwick, Tumberjohn, and Watt of Longlake had three apiece. It was Pip who started naming the scarecrows after their missing brothers, too. It makes it seem as if there's more of us, he said. More of us with arrows in our bellies, Gren complained, but the custom did seem to give his brother's heart, so John let the name stand and the wagering continue. On the edge of the wall, an ornate brass murrish eye stood on three spindly legs. Maester Eamon had once used it to peer at the stars, before his own eyes had failed him. John swung the tube down to have a look at the foe. Even at this distance there was no mistaking Mance Raider's huge white tent, sewn together from the pelts of snow bears. The Moorish lenses brought the wildlings close enough for him to make out faces. Of Mance himself he saw no sign this morning, but his woman, Dala, was outside tending the fire, while her sister Val milked a she-goat beside the tent. Dala looked so big it was a wonder she could move. A child must be coming very soon, John thought. He swiveled the eye east and searched amongst the tents and trees till he found the turtle. That will be coming very soon as well. The wildlings had skinned one of the dead mammoths during the night, and they were lashing the raw, bloody hide over the turtle's roof, one more layer on top of the sheepskins and pelts. The turtle had a rounded top and eight huge wheels, and under the hides was a stout wooden frame. When the wildlings had begun knocking it together, Saturn thought they were building a ship. Not far wrong. The turtle was a hull turned upside down and opened fore and aft, a long haul on wheels. "'It's done, isn't it?' asked Wren. "'Near enough.' John shoved away the eye. "'It will come today, most like. Did you fill the barrels?' "'Every one. They froze hard during the night. Pip checked.' Gren had changed a great deal from the big, clumsy, redneck boy John had first befriended. He had grown half a foot, his chest and shoulders had thickened, and he had not cut his hair nor trimmed his beard since the fist of the first men. It made him look as huge and shaggy as an oryx, the mucking name that Sir Alistair Thorne had hung on him during training. He looked weary now, though. When John said as much, he nodded. I heard their axes all night. Couldn't sleep for all the chopping. Then go sleep now. I don't need. You do. I want you rested. Go on. I'm not going to let you sleep through the fight. He made himself smile. You're the only one who can move those bloody barrels. Gren went off muttering, and John returned to the far eye, searching the wilding camp. From time to time an arrow would sail past overhead but he learned to ignore those. The range was long, and the angle was bad. The chance of being hit was small. He still saw no sign of man's raider in the camp, 
but espied Tormund Jainsbane and two of his sons around the turtle. The sons were struggling with the mammoth hide, while Tormund gnawed on the roast leg of a goat and bellowed orders. Elsewhere he found the wilding skin-changer, Varamir Sixskins, walking through the trees with his shadow-cat dogging his heels. When he heard the rattle of the winch-chains and the iron groan of the cage-door opening, he knew it would be Hub bringing their breakfast as he did every morning. The sight of Mansus Turtle had robbed John of his appetite. Their oil was all but gone, and the last barrel of pitch had been rolled off the wall two nights ago. They would soon run short of arrows as well, and there were no Fletchers making more. And the night before last, a raven had come from the west, from Sir Dennis Malister. Bowen Marsh had chased the wildlings all the way to the Shadow Tower, it seemed, and then farther, down into the gloom of the gorge. At the Bridge of Skulls he had met the Weeper and three hundred wildlings and won a bloody battle. But the victory had been a costly one. More than a hundred brothers slain, among them Sir Andrew Tarth and Sir Allardale Winch. The old pomegranate himself had been carried back to the Shadow Tower, sorely wounded. Maester Mullen was tending him, but it would be some time before he was fit to return to Castle Black. When he had read that, John had dispatched Zay to Molestown on their best horse to plead with the villagers to help man the wall. She never returned. When he sent Molly after her, he came back to report the whole village deserted, even the brothel. Most likely Zay had followed them, straight down the King's Road. Maybe we should all do the same, John reflected glumly. He made himself eat, hungry or no. Bad enough, he could not sleep. He could not go on without food as well. Besides, this might be my last meal. It might be the last meal for all of us. So it was that John had a belly full of bread, bacon, onions, and cheese when he heard Horse shout, It's coming! No one needed to ask what it was. Nor did John need the maester's murrish eye to see it creeping out from amongst the tents and trees. It doesn't really look much like a turtle, Saturn commented. Turtles don't have fur. Most of them don't have wheels either, said Pip. Sound the war horn, John commanded, and Kegs blew two long blasts to wake Gren and the other sleepers who'd had the watch during the night. If the wildlings were coming, the war would need every man. Gods know we have few enough. John looked at Pip and Kegs and Satin. Horse and Owen the Oaf, Tim Tangletongue, Molly, Spareboot, and the rest, and try to imagine them going belly to belly and blade to blade against a hundred screaming wildlings in the freezing darkness of that tunnel, with only a few iron bars between them. That was what it would come down to, unless they could stop the turtle before the gate was breached. It's big, Horse said. Pip smacked his lips. Think of all the soup it will make. The jape was stillborn. Even Pip sounded tired. He looks half dead, John thought. But so do we all. The king beyond the wall had so many men that he could throw fresh attackers at them every time. But the same handful of black brothers had to meet every assault, and it had worn them ragged. The men beneath the wooden hides would be pulling hard, John knew. 
putting their shoulders into it, straining to keep the wheels turning. But once the turtle was flush against the gate, they would exchange their ropes for axes. At least Mance was not sending his mammoths today. John was glad of that. Their awesome strength was wasted on the wall, and their size only made them easy targets. The last had been a day and a half in the dying. Its mournful trumpeting was terrible to hear. The turtle crept slowly through stones and stumps and brush. The earlier attacks had cost the free folk a hundred lives or more. Most still lay where they had fallen. In the lulls the crows would come and pay them court, but now the birds fled screeching. They liked the look of that turtle no more than he did. Saturn, horse, and the others were looking to him, John knew, waiting for his orders. He was so tired, he hardly knew any more. The wall is mine, he reminded himself. Owen, horse, to the catapults. Kegs, you and spare boot on the scorpions. The rest of you string your bows. Fire, arrows. Let's see if we can burn it. It was likely to be a futile gesture, John knew, but it had to be better than standing helpless. Cumbersome and slow-moving, the turtle made for an easy shot, and his archers and crossbowmen soon turned it into a lumbering wooden hedgehog. But the wet hides protected it, just as they had the mantlets, and the flaming arrows gutted out almost as soon as they struck. John cursed under his breath. Scorpions, he commanded. Catapults! The scorpion's bolts punched deep into the pelts, but did no more damage than the fire arrows. The rocks went bouncing off the turtle's roof, leaving dimples in the thick layers of hides. A stone from one of the trebuchets might have crushed it, but the one machine was still broken, and the wildlings had gone wide around the area where the other dropped its loads. "'John is still Kirk coming,' said Owen the Oaf. He could see that for himself. Inch by inch, yard by yard, the turtle crept closer, rolling, rumbling, and rocking as it crossed the killing ground. Once the wildlings got it flush against the wall, it would give them all the shelter they needed whilst their axes crashed through the hastily repaired outer gates. Inside, under the ice, they would clear the loose rubble from the tunnel in a matter of hours, and then there would be nothing to stop them but two iron gates, a few half-frozen corpses, and whatever brothers John cared to throw in their path to fight and die down in the dark. To his left, the catapult made a thunk and filled the air with spinning stones. They plunked down on the turtle like hail and caromed harmlessly aside. The wilding archers were still loosing arrows from behind their mantlets. One thudded into the face of a straw man, and Pip said, Four for what of Long Lake? We have a tie. The next shaft whistled past his own ear, however. Fie! he shouted down. I'm not in the tawny. The hides won't burn, John said, as much to himself as to the others. Their only hope was to try and crush the turtle when it reached the wall. For that they needed boulders. No matter how stoutly built the turtle was, a huge chunk of rock crashing straight down on top of it from seven hundred feet was bound to do some damage. Gren, Owen, Kegs, it's time. Alongside the warming shed, a dozen stout oaken barrels were lined up in a row. They were full of crushed rock, the gravel that the Black Brothers customarily spread on the footpaths to give themselves better footing atop the wall. Yesterday, 
After he'd seen the free folk covering the turtle with sheepskins, John told Gren to pour water into the barrels, as much as they would take. The water would seep down through the crushed stone, and overnight the whole thing would freeze solid. It was the nearest thing to a boulder they were going to get. "'Why do we need to freeze it?' Gren had asked him. "'Why don't we just roll the barrels off the way they are?' John answered, "'If they crash against the wall on the way down, they'll burst, and loose gravel will spray everywhere. We don't want to rain pebbles on the horses.' He put his shoulder to the one barrel with Gren, while Keggs and Owen were wrestling with another. Together they rocked it back and forth to break the grip of the ice that had formed around its bottom. "'The bugger weighs a ton,' said Gren. "'Tip it over and roll it,' John said. "'Careful. If it rolls over your foot, you'll end up like spare boot.' Once the barrel was on its side, John grabbed a torch and waved it above the surface of the wall back and forth, just enough to melt the ice a little. The thin film of water helped the barrel roll more easily. Too easily, in fact. They almost lost it. But finally, with four of them pooling their efforts, they rolled their boulder to the edge and stood it up again. They had four of the big oak barrels lined up above the gate by the time Pip shouted, "'There's a turtle at our door!' John braced his injured leg and leaned out for a look. Hoardings. Marsh should have built hoardings. So many things they should have done. The wildlings were dragging the dead giants away from the gate. Horse and Mully were dropping rocks down on them, and John thought he saw one man go down. But the stones were too small to have any effect on the turtle itself. He wondered what the free folk would do about the dead mammoth in the path. But then he saw. The turtle was almost as wide as a longhorn. So they simply pushed it over the carcass. His leg twitched, but Horse caught his arm and drew him back to safety. "'You shouldn't lean out like that,' the boy said. "'We should have built hoardings.' John thought he could hear the crash of axes on wood, but that was probably just fear ringing in his ears. He looked to Gren. "'Do it!' Gren got behind a barrel, put his shoulder against it, grunted, and began to push. Owen and Mully moved to help him. They shoved the barrel out a foot, and then another, and suddenly it was gone. They heard the thump as it struck the wall on the way down, and then, much louder, the crash and crack of splintering wood, followed by shouts and screams. Satin whooped, and Owen the Oaf danced in circles, while Pip leaned out and called, The turtle was stuffed full of rabbits! Look at them up away! Again, John barked, and Gren and Keggs slammed their shoulders against the next barrel and sent it tottering out into empty air. By the time they were done, the front of Mansus Turtle was a crushed and splintered ruin, and wildlings were spilling out the other end and scrambling for their camp. Satin scooped up his crossbow and set a few quarrels after them as they ran, to see them off the faster. Gren was grinning through his beard, Pip was making japes, and none of them would die today. On the morrow, though, John glanced toward the shed. Eight barrels of gravel remained where twelve had stood a few moments before. He realized how tired he was then, and how much his wound was hurting. I need to sleep, a few hours at least. 
He could go to Maester Aemon for some dream wine. That would help. I'm going down to the King's Tower, he told them. Call me if Manskit's up to anything. Pip, you have the wall. Me? said Pip. Em? said Gren. Smiling, he left them to it and rode down in the cage. A cup of dream wine did help, as it happened. No sooner had he stretched out on the narrow bed in his cell than sleep took him. His dreams were strange and formless, full of strange voices, shouts and cries, and the sound of a war-horn blowing low and loud, a single deep booming note that lingered in the air. When he awoke, the sky was black outside the arrow slit that served him for a window, and four men he did not know were standing over him. One held a lantern. "'John Snow,' the tallest of them said brusquely, "'pull in your boots and come with us.' His first groggy thought was that somehow the wall had fallen whilst he'd slept, that man's raider had sent more giants or another turtle and broken through the gate. But when he rubbed his eyes, he saw that the strangers were all in black. They're men of the Night's Watch, John realized. Come where? Who are you? The tall man gestured, and two of the others pulled John from the bed. With the lantern leading the way, they marched him from his cell and up a half turn of stair to the old bear Sola. He saw Maester Eamon standing by the fire, his hands folded around the head of a blackthorn cane. Septon Celador was half drunk as usual, and Sir Winton Stout was asleep in a window seat. The other brothers were strangers to him. All but one. Immaculate in his fur-trimmed cloak and polished boots, Sir Alistair Thorne turned to say, "'Here's a turn cloak now, my lord. Ned Stark's bastard of Winterfell.' "'I'm no turn cloak, Thorne,' John said coldly. "'We shall see.' In the leather chair behind the table where the old bear wrote his letters sat a big, broad, jolly man, John did not know. "'Yes, we shall see,' he said again. "'You will not deny that you are John Snow, I hope. Stark's bastard. Lord Snow, he likes to call himself. Sir Alistair was a spare, slim man, compact and sinewy, and just now his flinty eyes were dark with amusement. "'You're the one who named me Lord Snow,' said John. Sir Alistair had been fond of naming the boys he trained— during his time as Castle Black's master-at-arms. The old bear had sent Thorn to Eastwatch by the sea. These others must be Eastwatch men. The bird reached Cutter Pike, and he sent us help. How many men have you brought? he asked the man behind the table. It's me who'll ask the questions, the jolly man replied. You've been charged with oath-breaking, cowardice, and desertion, John Snow. Do you deny that you abandoned your brothers to die on the fist of the first men and join the wilding man's raider, this self-styled king beyond the wall? Abandon? John almost choked on the word. Maester Eamon spoke up then. My lord, Donald Noy and I discussed these issues when John Snow first returned to us and were satisfied by John's explanations. "'Well, I am not satisfied, mister,' said the jolly man. "'I will hear these explanations for myself.' 
Yes, I will. John swallowed his anger. I abandoned no one. I left the fist with Corrin Halfhand to scout the Skirling Pass. I joined the wildlings under orders. The Halfhand feared that Mance might have found the Horn of Winter. The Horn of Winter? Sir Alistair chuckled. Were you commanded to count their snarks as well, Lord Snow? No, but I counted their giants as best I could. Sir, snapped the jolly man, you will address Sir Alistair as Sir, and myself as my lord. I am Janus Slint, Lord of Harrenhal, and commander here at Castle Black, until such time as Bourne Marsh returns with his garrison. You will grant us our courtesies, yes? I will not suffer to hear an anointed knight like the good Sir Alistair mocked by a traitor's bastard. He raised a hand and pointed a meaty finger at John's face. Do you deny that you took a wilding woman into your bed? No. John's grief over Egret was too fresh for him to deny her now. No, my lord. I suppose it was also the half-hand who commanded you to fuck this unwashed whore, Sir Alistair asked with a smirk. Sir, she was no whore, sir. The half-hand told me not to balk whatever the wildlings asked of me, but I will not deny that I went beyond what I had to do, that I cared for her. You admit to being an oath-breaker, then, said Jana Slint. Half the men at Castle Black visited Molestown from time to time to dig for buried treasure in the brothel, John Newell, but he would not dishonor Egret by equating her with the Molestown whores. I broke my vows with a woman. I admit that, yes. Yes, my lord. When Slint scowled, his jowls quivered. He was as broad as the old bear had been, and no doubt would be as bald if he lived to Mormont's age. Half his hair was gone already, though he could not have been more than forty. Yes, my lord, John said. I rode with the wildlings and ate with them, as the half-hand commanded me, and I shared my furs with regret. But I swear to you, I never turned my cloak. I escaped the Magna as soon as I could, and never took up arms against my brothers or the realm. Lord Slint's small eyes studied him. Sir Glendon, he commanded. Bring in the other prisoner. Sir Glendon was the tall man who had dragged John from his bed. Four other men went with him when he left the room. But they were back soon enough with a captive, a small, sallow, battered man, fettered hand and foot. He had a single eyebrow, a widow's peak, and a moustache that looked like a smear of dirt on his upper lip. But his face was swollen and mottled with bruises, and most of his front teeth had been knocked out. The East Watchmen threw the captive roughly to the floor. Lord Slint frowned down on him. Is this the one you spoke of? The captive blinked yellow eyes. Aye. Not until that instant did John recognize Rattleshirt. He is a different man without his armor, he thought. Aye, the wilding repeated. He's the craven, kill a half-hand. Up in a frost fangs, it were, after we'd hunted down t'other crows, and killed them, every one. We would have done for this one, too, only he begged for his worthless life, offered to join us if we'd have him. 
The half-hand swore he'd see the craven dead first, but the wolf ripped Corrin half to pieces, and this one opened his throat. He gave John a crack-toothed smile then, and spat blood on his foot. Well, Gina Slint demanded of John harshly, do you deny it, or will you claim Corrin commanded you to kill him? He told me, the words came hard, he told me to do whatever they asked of me. Slint looked about the solar at the other East Watchmen. Does this boy think I fell off a turnip wagon onto my head? Your lies won't save you now, Lord Snow, warned Sir Alistair Thorne. We'll have the truth from you, bastard. I've told you the truth. Our garrons were failing and Rottleshirt was close behind us. Corrin told me to pretend to join the wildlings. You must not balk whatever is asked of you, he said. He knew they would make me kill him. Rattleshirt was going to kill him anyway. He knew that too. So now, you claim, the great Corrin Halfhand feared this creature? Slint looked at Rattleshirt and snorted. All men fear the Lord of Bounds, the wildling grumbled. Sir Glendon kicked him, and he lapsed back into silence. I never said that, John insisted. Slint slammed a fist on the table. I heard you. Sir Alistair had your measure true enough, it seems. You lie through your bastard teeth. Well, I will not suffer it. I will not. You might have fooled this crippled blacksmith, but not Jana Slint. Oh, no. Jana Slint does not swallow lies so easily. Do you think my skull was stuffed with cabbage? I don't know what your skull is stuffed with, my lord. Lord Snow is nothing if not arrogant, said Sir Alistair. He murdered Corrin, just as his fellow turncloaks did Lord Marmont. It would not surprise me to learn that it was all part of the same fell plot. Benjamin Stark may well have had a hand in all this as well. For all we know, he's sitting in Mance Raider's tent even now. You know these Starks, my lord? I do, said Jana Slint. I know them too well. John peeled off his glove and showed them his burned hand. I burned my hand defending Lord Mormont from a white, and my uncle was a man of honour. He would never have betrayed his vows. No more than you, mocked Sir Alistair. Septon Selador cleared his throat. Lord Slint, he said, this boy refused to swear his vows properly in the sept, but went beyond the wall to see his words before a heart tree. His father's gods, he said, but they are a wilding gods as well. They are the gods of the north, Septon. Maester Eamon was courteous but firm. My lords, when Donald Noy was slain, it was this young man, John Snow, who took the wall and held it against all the fury of the north. He has proved himself valiant, loyal, and resourceful. Were it not for him, you would have found Mance Raider sitting here when you arrived, Lord Slint. You are doing him a great wrong. John Snow was Lord Mormont's own steward and squire. He was chosen for that duty because the Lord Commander saw much promise in him. As do I. Promise? said Slint. Well, promise me turn false. Corrin Halfhand's blood is on his hands. Mormont trusted him, you see. But what of that? 
I know what it is to be betrayed by men you trusted. Oh, yes, and I know the ways of wolves as well. He pointed at John's face. Your father died a traitor. My father was murdered. John was past caring what they did to him. But he would not suffer any more lies about his father. Slint purpled. Murder, you insolent pup. King Robert was not even called when Lord Eddard moved against his son. He rose to his feet, a shorter man than Mormont, but thick about the chest and arms, with a gut to match. A small gold spear, tipped with red enamel, pinned his cloak at the shoulder. Your father died by the sword, but he was highborn, a king's hand. For you, a noose will serve. Sir Alistair, take this turn cloak to an ice cell. My lord is wise. Sir Alistair seized John by the arm. John yanked away and grabbed the knight by the throat with such ferocity that he lifted him off the floor. He would have throttled him if the East Watch men had not pulled him off. Thorn staggered back, rubbing the marks John's fingers had left on his neck. You see for yourselves, brothers, the boy is a wildling. Tyrion when dawn broke, he found he could not face the thought of food. By even fall, I may stand condemned. His belly was acid with bile, and his nose itched. Tyrion scratched at it with the point of his knife. One last witness to endure, then my turn. But what to do? Deny everything? Accuse Sansa and Sodontus? Confess in the hope of spending the rest of his days on the wall? Let the dice fly, and pray the Red Viper could defeat Sir Gregor Clegane? Tyrion stabbed listlessly at a greasy grey sausage, wishing it were his sister. It is bloody cold on the wall, but at least I would be shut of Cersei. He did not think he would make much of a ranger, but the Night's Watch needed clever men as well as strong ones. Lord Commander Mormont has said as much, when Tyrion had visited Castle Black. There are those inconvenient vows, though. It would mean the end of his marriage, and whatever claim he might ever have made for Castle Rock. But he did not seem destined to enjoy either in any case, and he seemed to recall that there was a brothel in a nearby village. It was not a life he'd ever dreamed of, but it was life. And all he had to do to earn it was trust in his father, stand up on his little stunted legs and say, Yes, I did it. I confess. That was the part that tied his bowels in knots. He almost wished he had done it, since it seemed he must suffer for it anyway. My lord, said Podrick Payne, they're here, my lord, Sir Adam and the gold cloaks. They wait without. Pod, tell me true. Do you think I did it? The boy hesitated. When he tried to speak, all he managed to produce was a weak sputter. I am doomed, Tyrion sighed. No need to answer. You've been a good squire to me, better than I deserved. Whatever happens, I thank you for your leal service. Sir Adam Marbrand waited at the door with six gold cloaks. He had nothing to say this morning, it seemed. Another good man who thinks me a kinslayer. 
Tyrion summoned all the dignity he could find and waddled down the steps. He could feel them all watching him as he crossed the yard, the guards on the walls, the grooms by the stables, the scullions and washerwomen and serving girls. Inside the throne room, knights and lordlings moved aside to let them through and whispered to their ladies. No sooner had Tyrion taken his place before the judges than another group of gold cloaks led in Shay. A cold hand tightened round his heart. Varys betrayed her, he thought. Then he remembered, No, I betrayed her myself. I should have left her with Lullis. Of course they'd question Sansa's maids. I do the same. Tyrion rubbed at the slick scar where his nose had been, wondering why Cersei had bothered. She knows nothing that can hurt me. They plotted it together, she said. This girl he'd loved. The imp and Lady Sansa plotted it after the young wolf died. Sansa wanted revenge for her brother, and Tyrion meant to have the throne. He was going to kill his sister next, and then his own lord father, so he could be hanged for Prince Tommen. But after a year or so, before Tommen got too old, he would have killed him too, so as to take the crown for his own head. How could you know all this? demanded Prince Oberon. Why would the imp divulge such plans to his wife's maid? I overheard some, my lord, said Shay, and my lady let things slip too. But most I had from his own lips. I wasn't only Lady Sansa's maid. I was his whore. All the time he was here in King's Landing. On the morning of the wedding, he dragged me down where they kept the dragon skulls and fucked me there with the monsters all around. And when I cried, he said, I ought to be more grateful that it wasn't every girl who got to be the king's whore. That was when he told me how he meant to be king. He said that poor boy Joffrey would never know his bride the way he was knowing me. She started sobbing then. I never meant to be a whore, my lord. I was to be married. A squire he was, and a good brave boy, gentle-born. But the imp saw me at the Green Fork and put the boy I meant to marry in the front rank of the van. And after he was killed, he sent his wildlings to bring me to his tent. Shagger, the big one, and Timmet with a burned eye. He said... If I didn't pleasure him, he'd give me to them. So I did. And then he brought me to the city, so I'd be close when he wanted me. He made me do such shameful things. Prince Oberon looked curious. What sort of things? Unspeakable things. As the tears rolled slowly down that pretty face, no doubt every man in the hall wanted to take Shay in his arms and comfort her. "'With my mouth and another parts, my lord, all my parts. "'He used me every way there was, "'and he used to make me tell him how big he was. "'My giant, I had to call him, <laughs> my giant of Lannister.' "'Oswald Kettleblack was the first to laugh. "'Boris and Merrin joined in, then Cersei, Sir Loris, and more lords and ladies than he could count. The sudden gale of mirth made the rafters ring and shook the iron throne. It's true, 
Shay protested. My giant of Lannister. The laughter swelled twice as loud. Their mouths were twisted in merriment. Their bellies shook. Some laughed so hard that snot flew from their nostrils. I saved you all, Tyrion thought. I saved this vile city and all your worthless lives. There were hundreds in that throne room, every one of them laughing, but his father, or so it seemed. Even the Red Viper chortled, and Mace Tyrell looked like to bust a gut. But Lord Tywin Lannister sat between them as if made of stone. His fingers steepled beneath his chin. Tyrion pushed forward. My lords! he shouted. He had to shout to have any hope of being heard. His father raised a hand. Bit by bit, the hall grew silent. Get this lying whore out of my sight, said Tyrion, and I will give you your confession. Lord Tywin nodded, gestured. Shay looked half in terror as the gold cloaks formed up around her. Her eyes met Tyrion's as they marched her from the wall. Was it shame he saw there, or fear? He wondered what Cersei had promised her. You will get the gold or jewels, whatever it was you asked for, he thought, as he watched her back recede. But before the moon has turned, she'll have you entertaining the gold cloaks in their barracks. Tyrion stared up at his father's hard green eyes with their flecks of coal bright gold. Guilty, he said. So guilty. Is that what you wanted to hear? Lord Tywin said nothing. Mace Tyrell nodded. Prince Oberon looked mildly disappointed. You admit you poisoned the king. Nothing of the sort, said Tyrion. Of Joffrey's death I am innocent. I am guilty of a more monstrous crime. He took a step toward his father. I was born. I lived. I am guilty of being a dwarf. I confess it. And no matter how many times my good father forgave me, I have persisted in my infamy. This is folly, Tyrion, declared Lord Tywin. Speak to the matter in hand. You are not on trial for being a dwarf. That is where you err, my lord. I have been on trial for being a dwarf my entire life. Have you nothing to say in your defense? Nothing but this. I did not do it. Yet now I wish I had. He turned to face the hall, that sea of pale faces. I wish I had enough poison for you all. You make me sorry that I am not the monster you would have me be. Yet there it is. I am innocent, but I will get no justice here. You leave me no choice but to appeal to the gods. I demand trial by battle. Have you taken leave? Of your wish, his father said. No, I found them. I demand trial by battle. His sweet sister could not have been more pleased. He has that right, my lord, she reminded the judges. Let the gods judge. Sir Gregor Kilgain will stand for Joffrey. He returned to the city the night before last to put his sword at my service. Lord Tywin's face was so dark that for half a heartbeat Tyrion wondered if he'd drunk some poison wine as well. He slammed his fist down on the table, 
too angry to speak. It was Mace Tyrell who turned to Tyrion and asked the question, Do you have a champion to defend your innocence? He does, my lord. Prince Oberon of Dawn rose to his feet. The dwarf has quite convinced me. The uproar was deafening. Tyrion took especial pleasure in the sudden doubt he glimpsed in Cersei's eyes. It took a hundred gold cloaks pounding the butts of their spears against the floor to quiet the throne room again. By then, Lord Tywin Lannister had recovered himself. Let the issue be decided on the morrow, he declared in iron tones. I wash my hands of it. He gave his dwarf son a cold, angry look, then strode from the hall out of the king's door behind the iron throne his brother Kevin at his side. Later, back in his tower cell, Tyrion poured himself a cup of wine and sent Podrick Payne off for cheese, bread, and olives. He doubted whether he could keep down anything heavier just now. Do you think I would go meekly, father? He asked the shadow, his candles etched upon the wall. I have too much of you in me for that. He felt strangely at peace now that he had snatched the power of life and death from his father's hands and placed it in the hands of the gods. Assuming there are gods, and they give a mummer's fart, if not, then I'm in Dornish hands. No matter what happened, Tyrion had the satisfaction of knowing that he'd kicked Lord Tywin's plans to splinters. If Prince Oberon won, it would further inflame Highgarden against the Dornish. Mace Tyrell would see the man who'd crippled his son helping the dwarf who almost poisoned his daughter to escape his rightful punishment. And if the mountain triumph, Doran Martell might well demand to know why his brother had been served with death instead of the justice Tyrion had promised him. Dawn might crown Marcella after all. It was almost worth dying to know all the trouble he'd made. Will you come to see the end, she? Will you stand there with the rest, watching as Sir Ilian lops my ugly head off? Will you miss your giant of Lannister when he's dead? He drained his wine, flung the cup aside, and sang lustily. He rolled through the streets of the city, down from his hill on high. O'er the wines and the steps and the cobbles, he rolled to a woman's sigh. For she was his secret treasure, she was his shame and his bliss, and a chain and a keep are nothing compared to a woman's kiss. Sir Kevin did not visit him that night. He was probably with Lord Tywin, trying to placate the Tyrells. I have seen the last of that uncle, I fear. He poured another cup of wine. A pity it had Simon Silvertongue killed before learning all the words of that song. It wasn't a bad song, if truth be told, especially compared to the ones that would be written about him henceforth. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm, he sang. Perhaps he should write the other verses himself, if he lives so long. That night, surprisingly, Tyrion Lannister slept long and deep. He rose at first light, well-rested, and with a hearty appetite, and broke his fast on fried bread, blood sausage, apple cakes, and a double helping of eggs, 
cooked with onions and fiery Dornish peppers. Then he begged leave of his guards to attend his champion. Sir Adam gave his consent. Tyrion found Prince Oberon drinking a cup of red wine as he donned his armour. He was attended by four of his younger Dornish lordlings. "'Good morrow to you, my lord,' the prince said. "'Will you take a cup of wine?' "'Should you be drinking before battle?' "'I always drink before battle.' "'That could get you killed. Worse, it could get me killed.' Prince Oberon laughed. "'The guards defend the innocent. You are innocent, I trust.' "'Only of killing Joffrey,' Tyrion admitted. "'I do hope you know what you are about to face. "'Gregor Clegane is large, so I've heard.' He is almost eight feet tall, and must weigh thirty stone, all of it muscle. He fights with a two-handed greatsword, but needs only one hand to wield it. He has been known to cut men in half with a single blow. His armor is so heavy that no lesser man could bear the weight, let alone move in it. Prince Oberon was unimpressed. I have killed large men before. The trick is to get them off their feet. Once they go down, they're dead. The Dornishman sounded so blithely confident that Tyrion felt almost reassured, until he turned and said, Damon, my spear. Sir Damon tossed it to him, and the Red Viper snatched it from the air. You mean to face the mountain with a spear? That made Tyrion uneasy all over again. In battle, ranks of mass spears made a formidable front. But single combat against a skilled swordsman was a very different matter. We are fond of spears in Dorne. Besides, it's the only way to counter his reach. Have a look, Lord Imp, but see you do not touch. The spear was turned ash, eight feet long, the shaft smooth, thick, and heavy. The last two feet of that was steel, a slender, leaf-shaped spearhead narrowing to a wicked spike. The edges looked sharp enough to shave with. When Oberon spun the haft between the palms of his hand, they glistened black. Oil or poison? Tyrion decided that he would sooner not know. I hope you are good with that, he said doubtfully. You will have no cause for complaint, though Sir Gregor may. However thick his plate, there will be gaps at the joints, inside the elbow and knee, beneath the arms. I will find a place to tickle him, I promise you. He set the spear aside. It is said that a Lannister always pays his debts. Perhaps you will return to Sunspear with me when the day's bloodletting is done. My brother Doran would be most pleased to meet the rightful heir to Castley Rock, especially if he brought his lovely wife, the Lady of Winterfell. Does the snake think I have Sansa squirreled away somewhere? like a nut I'm hoarding for winter. If so, Tyrion was not about to disabuse him. A trip to dawn might be very pleasant now that I reflect on it. Plan on a lengthy visit. Prince Oberon sipped his wine. You and Doran have many matters of mutual interest to discuss. Music, trade, history, wine, the dwarf's penny, the laws of inheritance and succession. No doubt an uncle's counsel would be of benefit to Queen Marcella in the trying times ahead. If Varys had his little birds listening, 
Oberon was giving them a ripe earful. I believe I will have that cup of wine, said Tyrion. Queen Marcella? It would have been more tempting if only he did have Sansa tucked under his cloak. If she declared for Marcella over Tommin, would the North follow? What the Red Viper was hinting at was treason. Could Tyrion truly take up arms against Tommen against his own father? Cersei would spit blood. It might be worth it for that alone. Do you recall the tale I told you of our first meeting imp? Prince Oberon asked, as the bastard of God's grace knelt before him to fasten his greaves. It was not for your tale alone that my sister and I came to Castle Rock. We were on a quest of sorts, a quest that took us to Starfall, the Arbor Old Town, the Shield Islands, Craycall, and finally Castle Rock. But our true destination was marriage. Doran was betrothed to Lady Malario of Norvus, so he had been left behind as Castellan of Sunspear. My sister and I were yet unpromised. Elia found it all exciting. She was of that age, and her delicate health had never permitted her much travel. I preferred to amuse myself by mocking my sister's suitors. There was little Lord Lazy Eye, Squire Squish Lips, one I named the Whale That Walks, that sort of thing. The only one who was even halfway presentable was young Baylor Hightower. A pretty lad, and my sister was half in love with him until he had the misfortune to fart once in our presence. I promptly named him Baylor Brickwind, and after that Elia couldn't look at him without laughing. I was a monstrous young fellow. Someone should have sliced out my vile tongue. Yes, Tyrion agreed silently. Baylor Hightower was no longer young, but he remained Lord Leighton's heir, wealthy, handsome, and a knight of splendid repute. Baylor Brightsmile, they called him now. Had Elia wed him in place of Rhaegar Targaryen, she might be in Old Town with her children growing tall around her. He wondered how many lives had been snuffed out by that fart. Lannisport was the end of our voyage, Prince Oberon went on, as Sir Aaron Corgill helped him into a padded leather tunic and began lacing it up the back. Were you aware that our mothers knew each other of old? They had been at court together as girls, I seem to recall, companions to Princess Riella. Just so, it was my belief that the mothers had cooked up this plot between them. Squire Squishlips and his ilk, and the various pimply young maidens who'd been paraded before me were the almonds before the feast, meant only to whet our appetites. The main course was to be served at Castle Rock. Cersei and Jamie. Such a clever dwarf. Elia and I were older, to be sure. Your brother and sister could not have been more than eight or nine. Still, a difference of five or six years is little enough. And there was an empty cabin on our ship. A very nice cabin, such as might be kept for a person of high birth. As if it were intended that we take someone back to Sunspear. A young page, perhaps, or a companion for Elia. Your lady mother meant to betroth Jamie to my sister, or Cersei to me. Perhaps both. Perhaps, said Tyrion. But my father, 
ruled the Seven Kingdoms, but was ruled at home by his lady wife, or so my mother always said. Prince Oberon raised his arm, so Lord Dagus Manwoody and the bastard of God's grace could slip a chainmail burnie down over his head. At Old Town we learned of your mother's death and the monstrous child she had borne. We might have turned back there, but my mother chose to sail on. I told you of the welcome we found at Castle Rock. What I did not tell you was that my mother waited as long as was decent and then broached your father about her purpose. Years later, on her deathbed, she told me that Lord Tywin had refused us brusquely. His daughter was meant for Prince Rhaegar, he informed her. And when she asked for Jamie to espouse Elior, he offered her you instead. Which offer she took for an outrage. It was, even you can see that, surely. Oh, surely. It all goes back and back, Tyrion thought, to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us. And one day our own children will take up our strings and dance on in our steads. Well, Prince Rhaegar married Ilya of Dawn, not Cersei Lannister of Casterly Rock, so it would seem your mother won that tilt. She thought so, Prince Oberon agreed. But your father is not a man to forget such slights. He taught that lesson to Lord and Lady Tarbeck once, and to the reigns of Castamere, and at King's Landing he taught it to my sister. My helm, Degas, Manwoody handed it to him, a high golden helm with a copper disc mounted on the brow, the sun of dawn. The visor had been removed, Tyrion saw. Ilyar and her children have waited long for justice. Prince Oberon pulled on soft red leather gloves and took up his spear again. But this day they shall have it. The Otter Ward had been chosen for the combat. Tyrion had to skip and run to keep up with Prince Oberon's long strides. The sneak is eager, he thought. Let us hope he is venomous as well. The day was grey and windy. The sun was struggling to break through the clouds, but Tyrion could no more have said who was going to win that fight than the one on which his life depended. It looked as though a thousand people had come to see if he would live or die. They lined the castle wall walks and elbowed one another on the steps of keeps and towers. They watched from the stable doors, from windows and bridges, from balconies and roofs. And the yard was packed with them, so many that the gold cloaks and the knights of the king's guard had to shove them back to make enough room for the fight. Some had dragged out chairs to watch more comfortably, while others perched on barrels. We should have done this in the dragon pit, Tyrion thought sourly. We could have charged a penny a head and paid for Joffrey's wedding and funeral both. Some of the onlookers even had small children sitting on their shoulders to get a better view. They shouted and pointed at the sight of Tyrion. Cersei seemed half a child herself beside Sir Gregor. In his armor the mountain looked bigger than any man had any right to be. Beneath a long yellow surcoat bearing the three black dogs of Clegane, he wore heavy plate over chainmail, dull, grey steel, dinted and scarred in battle. Beneath that would be boiled leather and a layer of quilting. 
A flat-topped great helm was bolted to his gorget, with breaths around the mouth and nose and a narrow slit for vision. The crest atop it was a stone fist. If Sir Gregor was suffering from wounds, Tyrion could see no sign of it from across the yard. He looks as though he was chiseled out of rock, standing there. His great sword was planted in the ground before him, six feet of scarred metal. Sir Gregor's huge hands, clad in gauntlets of lobstered steel, clasped the cross-hilt to either side of the grip. Even Prince Oberon's paramour paled at the sight of him. "'You are going to fight that?' Hilaria Sand said in a hushed voice. "'I am going to kill that,' her lover replied carelessly. Tyrion had his own doubts, now that they stood on the brink. When he looked at Prince Oberon, he found himself wishing he had Bronn defending him, or even better, Jamie. The Red Viper was lightly armoured, greaves, vambraces, gorget, spalder, steel codpiece. Elsewise, Oberon was clad in supple leather and flowing silks. Over his burney he wore his scales of gleaming copper, but mail and scale together would not give him a quarter the protection of Gregor's heavy plate. With its visor removed, the prince's helm was effectively no better than a half-helm, lacking even a nasal. His round steel shield was brightly polished, and showed the sun and spear in red gold, yellow gold, white gold, and copper. Dance around him until he's so tired he can hardly lift his arm, then put him on his back. The red viper seemed to have the same notion as Bronn. But the sellsword had been blunt about the risks of such tactics. I hope to Seven Hills that you know what you're doing, snake. A platform had been erected beside the Tower of the Hand, halfway between the two champions. That was where Lord Tywin sat with his brother Sir Kevin. King Tommen was not in evidence. For that, at least, Tyrion was grateful. Lord Tywin glanced briefly at his dwarf son, then lifted his hand. A dozen trumpeters blew a fanfare to quiet the crowd. The high septon shuffled forward in his tall crystal crown, and prayed that the Father above would help them in this judgment, and that the warrior would lend his strength through the arm of the man whose cause was just. That would be me, Tyrion almost shouted, but they would only laugh, and he was sick unto death of laughter. Sir Osmond Kettleblack brought Clegane his shield, a massive thing of heavy oak, rimmed in black iron. As the mountain slid his left arm through the straps, Tyrion saw that the hounds of Clegane had been painted over. This morning Sir Gregor bore the seven-pointed star the Andals had brought to Westeros when they crossed the narrow sea to overwhelm the first men and their gods. Very pious of you, Cersei, but I doubt the gods will be impressed. There were fifty yards between them. Prince Oberon advanced quickly. Sir Gregor more ominously. The ground does not shake when he walks, Tyrion told himself. That is only my art fluttering. When the two men were ten yards apart, the Red Viper stopped and called out, Have they told you who I am? Sir Gregor grunted through his breaths. Some dead man. He came on, inexorable. The Dornish man slid sideways. I am Oberon Martell, a prince of Dorn, he said, 
as the mountain turned to keep him in sight. Princess Elia was my sister. Who? asked Gregor Clegane. Oberon's long spear jabbed, but Sir Gregor took the point on his shield, shoved it aside, and bull back at the prince, his great sword flashing. The Dornishman spun away untouched. The spear darted forward. Clegane slashed at it. Martel snapped it back, then thrust again. Metal screamed on metal as the spearhead slid off the mountain's chest, slicing through the surcoat and leaving a long bright scratch on the steel beneath. Elier Martel, Princess of Dorn, the Red Viper hissed. You raped her. You murdered her. You killed her children. Sir Gregor grunted. He made a ponderous charge to hack at the Dornishman's head. Prince Oberon avoided him easily. You raped her. You murdered her. You killed her children. Did you come to talk or to fight? I came to hear you confess. The Red Viper landed a quick thrust on the mountain's belly to no effect. Gregor cut at him and missed. The long spear lanced in above his sword. Like a serpent's tongue, it flicked in and out, fainting low and landing high, jabbing at groin, shield, eyes. The mountain makes for a big target of the least, Tyrion thought. Prince Oberon could scarcely miss, though none of his blows was penetrating Sir Gregor's heavy plate. The Dornishman kept circling, jabbing, then darting back again, forcing the bigger man to turn and turn again. Clegane is losing sight of him. The mountain's helm had a narrow eye-slit, severely limiting his vision. Oberon was making good use of that, and the length of his spear and his quickness. It went on that way for what seemed a long time. Back and forth they moved across the yard, and round and round in spirals, Sir Gregor slashing at the air, while Oberon's spear struck at arm and leg twice at his temple. Gregor's big wooden shield took its share of hits as well, until a dog's head peeped out from under the star, and elsewhere the raw oak showed through. Clegane would grunt from time to time, and once Tyrion heard him mutter a curse, but otherwise he fought in sullen silence. Not Oberon Martell. You raped her, he called, fainting. You murdered her, he said, dodging a looping cut from Gregor's greatsword. You killed her children, he shouted, slamming the spear point into the giant's throat, only to have it glance off the thick steel gorget with a screech. Oberon is toying with him, said Ilaria Sand. That is fool's play, thought Tyrion. The mountain is too bloody big to be any man's toy. All around the yard, the throng of spectators was creeping in toward the two combatants, edging forward inch by inch to get a better view. The king's guard tried to keep them back, shoving at the gawkers forcibly with their big white shields, but there were hundreds of gawkers and only six of the men in white armor. You raped her! Prince Oberon parried a savage thrust with his spearhead. You murdered her! He sent the spear point at Clegane's eyes, so fast the huge man flinched back. You killed her children! The spear flickered sideways and down, scraping against a mountain's breastplate. You raped her! You murdered her! You killed her children! The spear was two feet longer than Sir Gregor's sword, more than enough to keep him at an awkward distance. He hacked at the shaft whenever Oberon lunged at him, trying to lop off the spearhead. But he might as well have been trying to hack the wings off a fly. You raped her! 
You murdered her. You killed her children. Grigor tried to bullrush, but Oberon skipped aside and circled around his back. You raped her. You murdered her. You killed her children. Be quiet. Sir Grigor seemed to be moving a little slower, and his great sword no longer rose quite so high as it had when the contest began. Shut your bloody mouth! You raped her, the prince said, moving to the right. Enough! Sir Grigor took two long strides and brought his sword down at Oberon's head. But the Dornishman backstepped once more. You murdered her, he said. Shut up! Grigor charged headlong, right at the point of the spear, which slammed into his right breast, then slid aside with a hideous steel shriek. Suddenly the mountain was close enough to strike, his huge sword flashing in a steel blur. The crowd was screaming as well. Oberon slipped the first blow and let go of the spear, useless now that Sir Gregor was inside it. The second cut the Dornishman caught on his shield. Metal met metal, with an ear-spitting clang, sending the red viper reeling. Sir Gregor followed, bellowing. He doesn't use words, he just roars like an animal, Tyrion thought. Oberon's retreat became a headlong, backward flight, mere inches ahead of the great sword as he slashed at his chest, his arms, his head. The stable was behind him. Spectators screamed and shoved at each other to get out of the way. One stumbled into Oberon's back. Sir Gregor hacked down with all his savage strength. The red viper threw himself sideways, rolling. The luckless stable boy behind him was not so quick. As his arm rose to protect his face, Gregor's sword took it off between elbow and shoulder. Shut up! The mountain howled at the stable boy's scream, and this time he swung the blade sideways, sending the top half of the lad's head across the yard in a spray of blood and brains. Hundreds of spectators suddenly seemed to lose all interest in the guilt or innocence of Tyrion Lannister, judging by the way they pushed and shoved at each other to escape the yard. But the red viper of dawn was back on his feet, his long spear in hand. Elia, he called at Sir Gregor. You raped her. You murdered her. You killed her children. Now say her name. The mountain whirled. Helm, shield, sword, surcoat. He was spattered with gore from head to heels. You talk too much, he grumbled. You make my head hurt. I will hear you say it. She was Elia of Dawn. The mountain snorted contemptuously and came on, and in that moment the sun broke through the low clouds that had hidden the sky since dawn. The sun of dawn, Tyrion told himself, but it was Gregor Clegane who moved first to put the sun at his back. This is a dim and brutal man, but he has a warrior's instincts. The red viper crouched, squinting, and sent his spear darting forward again. Sir Gregor hacked at it, but the thrust had only been a feint. Off balance, he stumbled forward a step. Prince Oberon tilted his dinted metal shield. A shaft of sunlight blazed blindingly of polished gold and copper into the narrow slit of his foe's helm. Clegane lifted his own shield against the glare. Prince Oberon's spear flashed like lightning and found the gap in the heavy plate, the joint under the arm. The point punched through mail and boiled leather. Gregor gave a choked grunt as the Dornishman twisted his spear and yanked it free. Elier, say it, Elier of Dawn. He was circling, spear poised for another thrust. See it. Tyrion had his own prayer. Fall down and die, was how it went. Damn you, fall down and die. 
The blood trickling from the mountain's armpit was his own now, and he must be bleeding even more heavily inside the breastplate. When he tried to take a step, one knee buckled. Tyrion thought he was going down. Prince Oberon had circled behind him. Eliar of Dawn! he shouted. Sir Gregor started to turn, but too slow and too late. The spearhead went through the back of the knee this time, through the layers of chain and leather, between the plates on thigh and calf. The mountain reeled, swayed, then collapsed, face first on the ground. His huge sword went flying from his hand. Slowly, ponderously, he rolled onto his back. The Dornishman flung away his ruined shield, grasped the spear in both hands, and sorted away. Behind him the mountain let out a groan, and pushed himself onto an elbow. Oberon whirled, cat quick, and ran at his fallen foe. Elia! He screamed as he drove the spear down with the whole weight of his body behind it. The crack of the ashwood shaft snapping was almost as sweet a sound as Circe's wail of fury, and for an instant Prince Oberon had wings. The sneak has vaulted over the mountain. Four feet of broken spear jutted from Clegane's belly as Prince Oberon rolled, rose, and dusted himself off. He tossed aside the splintered spear and claimed his foe's greatsword. If you die before you say her name, sir, I will hunt you through all seven hells, he promised. Sir Gregor tried to rise. The broken spear had gone through him and was pinning him to the ground. He wrapped both hands about the shaft, grunting, but could not pull it out. Beneath him was a spreading pool of red. I am feeling more innocent by the instant, Tyrion told Ilaria Sand beside him. Prince Oberon moved closer. Say the name! He put his foot on the mountain's chest and raised the great sword with both hands. Whether he intended to hack off Grigor's head or shove the point through his eye slit was something Tyrion would never know. Clegane's hand shot up and grabbed the Dornishman behind the knee. The Red Viper brought down the greatsword in a wild slash, but he was off balance, and the edge did no more than put another dent in the mountain's vambrace. Then the sword was forgotten, as Gregor's hand tightened and twisted, yanking the Dornishman down on top of him. They wrestled in the dust and blood, the broken spear wobbling back and forth. Tyrion saw with horror that the mountain had wrapped one huge arm around the prince, drawing him tight against his chest, like a lover. Elia of Dawn, they all heard Sir Gregor say when they were close enough to kiss, his deep voice booming within the helm. I killed her screaming whelp. He thrust his free hand into Oberon's unprotected face, pushing steel fingers into his eyes. Then I raped her. Clegane slammed his fist into the Dornishman's mouth, making splinters of his teeth. Then I smashed her fucking head in like this. As he drew back his huge fist, the blood on his gauntlet seemed to smoke in the cold dawn air. There was a sickening crunch. Ilaria Sand wailed in terror, and Tyrion's breakfast came boiling back up. He found himself on his knees, retching bacon and sausage and apple cakes, and that double helping of fried eggs cooked up with onions and fiery Dornish peppers.
He never heard his father speak the words that condemned him. Perhaps no words were necessary. I put my life in the red viper's hands, and he dropped it. When he remembered too late that snakes had no hands, Tyrion began to laugh hysterically. He was halfway down the serpentine steps before he realized that the gold cloaks were not taking him back to his tower room. I've been consigned to the black cells, he said. They did not bother to answer. Why waste your breath on the dead? Daenerys Danny broke her fast under the persimmon tree that grew in the terrace garden, watching her dragons chase each other about the apex of the Great Pyramid, where the huge bronze harpy once stood. Marine had a score of lesser pyramids, but none stood even half as tall. From here she could see the whole city, the narrow, twisting alleys and wide brick streets, the temples and granaries, hovels and palaces, brothels and baths, gardens and fountains, the great red circles of the fighting pits. And beyond the walls was the Pewter Sea, the whining Skahazadan, the dry brown hills, burnt orchards and blackened fields. Up here in her garden, Danny sometimes felt like a god, living atop the highest mountain in the world. Do all gods feel so lonely? Some must, surely. Miss Andy had told her of the Lord of Harmony, worshipped by the peaceful people of Nath. He was the only true god, her little scribe said, the god who always was and always would be, who made the moon and stars and earth and all the creatures that dwelt upon them. Poor Lord of Harmony. Danny pitied him. It must be terrible to be alone for all time, attended by hordes of butterfly women you could make or unmake at a word. Westeros had seven guards at least, though Viserys had told her that some septums said the seven were only aspects of a single god, seven facets of a single crystal. That was just confusing. The Red Priest believed in two gods she had heard, but two who were eternally at war. Danny liked that even less. She would not want to be eternally at war. Missandei served her duck eggs and dog sausage, and half a cup of sweetened wine mixed with the juice of a lime. The honey drew flies, but a scented candle drove them off. The flies were not so troublesome up here as they were in the rest of her city, she had found. Something else she liked about the pyramid. I must remember to do something about the flies, Danny said. Are there many flies on Nath, Miss Andy? On Nath there are butterflies, the scribe responded in the common tongue. More a wine? No, I must hold court soon. Danny had grown very fond of Miss Andy. The little scribe with the big golden eyes was wise beyond her years. She is brave as well. She had to be, to survive the life she's lived. One day she hoped to see this fabled isle of Nath. Miss Andy said the peaceful people made music instead of war. They did not kill, not even animals. They ate only fruit and never flesh. The butterfly spirits, sacred to their lord of harmony, protected their isle against those who would do them harm. Many conquerors had sailed on Nath to blood their swords, only to sicken and die. 
The butterflies do not help them when the slave ships come raiding, though. I'm going to take you home one day, Miss Andy, Danny promised. If I had made the same promise to Jorah, would he still have sold me? I swear it. Oh, this one is content to stay with you, your grace. Nath, I will be there always. You are good to this, to me. And you to me. Danny took the girl by the hand. Come help me dress. Jiqui helped Miss Andy bathe her, while Iri was laying out her clothes. Today she wore a robe of purple samite and a silver sash, and on her head the three-headed dragon crown the Tourmaline Brotherhood had given her in Karth. Her slippers were silver as well, with heels so high she was always half afraid she was about to topple over. When she was dressed, Miss Andy brought her a polished silver glass so she could see how she looked. Danny stared at herself in silence. Is this the face of a conqueror? So far as she could tell, she still looked like a little girl. No one was calling her Daenerys the Conqueror yet, but perhaps they would. Aegon the Conqueror had won Westeros with three dragons, but she had taken Marine with sewer rats and a wooden cock in less than a day. Poor Grolio. He still grieved for his ship, she knew. If a war galley could ram another ship, why not a gate? That had been her thought when she commanded the captains to drive their ships ashore. Their masts had become her battering rams, and swarms of freedmen had torn their hulls apart to build mantlets, turtles, catapults, and ladders. The sail swords had given each ram a bawdy name, and it had been the mainmast of Maraxes, formerly Joso's prank, that had broken the eastern gate. Joso's cock, they called it. The fighting had raged bitter and bloody for most of a day, and well into the night before the wood began to splinter, and Maraxes' iron figurehead, a laughing jester's face, came crashing through. Danny had wanted to lead the attack herself, but to a man her captain said that would be madness, and her captains never agreed on anything. Instead, she remained in the rear, sitting atop her silver in a long shirt of mail. She heard the city fall from half a league away, though, when the defender's shouts of defiance changed to cries of fear. Her dragons had roared as one in that moment, filling the night with flames. The slaves are rising, she knew at once. My sewer rats have gnawed off their chains. When the last resistance had been crushed by the unsolid and the sack had run its course, Danny entered her city. The dead were heaped so high before the broken gate that it took her freedmen nearly an hour to make a path for her silver. Joseph's cock and the great wooden turtle that had protected it, covered with horse hides, lay abandoned within. She rode past burned buildings and broken windows, through brick streets where the gutters were choked with the stiff and swollen dead. Cheering slaves lifted blood-stained hands to her as she went by and called her mother. In the plaza before the great pyramid, the Miranese huddled forlorn. The great masters had looked anything but great in the morning light. Stripped of their jewels and their fringed tokars, they were contemptible. A herd of old men with shriveled balls and spotted skin, and young men with ridiculous hair. 
Their women were either soft and fleshy or as dry as old sticks, their face paint streaked by tears. I want your leaders, Danny told them. Give them up, and the rest of you shall be spared. How many? an old woman had asked, sobbing. How many must you have to spare us? One hundred and sixty-three, she answered. She had them nailed to wooden posts around the plaza, each man pointing at the next. The anger was fierce and hot inside her when she gave the command. It made her feel like an avenging dragon. But later, when she passed the men dying on the posts, when she heard their moans and smelled their bowels and blood, Danny put the glass aside, frowning. It was just. It was. I did it for the children. Her audience chamber was on the level below, an echoing high ceiling room with walls of purple marble. It was a chilly place for all its grandeur. There had been a throne there, a fantastic thing of carved and gilded wood in the shape of a savage harpy. She had taken one long look and commanded it to be broken up for firewood. I will not sit in the harpy's lap, she told them. Instead, she sat upon a simple ebony bench. It served, though she heard the Myrnies muttering that it did not befit a queen. Her blood riders were waiting for her. Silver bells tinkled in their oiled braids, and they wore the gold and jewels of dead men. Maureen had been rich beyond imagining. Even her sellsword seemed sated, at least for now. Across the room, Grey Worm wore the plain uniform of the unsolid, his spiked bronze cap beneath one arm. These at least she could rely on, or so she hoped. And Brown Ben Plum as well, solid Ben, with his grey-white hair and weathered face so beloved of her dragons, and Dario beside him, glittering in gold. Dario and Ben Plum, Grey Worm, Iri, Jiqui, Missandei, as she looked at them, Danny found herself wondering which of them would betray her next. The dragon has three heads. There are two men in the world who I can trust, if I can find them. I will not be alone, then. We will be three against the world, like Aegon and his sisters. Was the night as quiet as it seemed? Danny asked. It seems it was, Your Grace, said Brown Ben Plum. She was pleased. Marine had been sacked savagely, as new fallen cities always were, but Danny was determined that should end now that the city was hers. She had decreed that murderers were to be hanged, that looters were to lose a hand, and rapists their manhood. Eight killers swung from the walls, and the unsolid had filled a bushel basket with bloody hands and soft red worms. But Marine was calm again. But for how long? A fly buzzed her head. Danny waved it off, irritated. But it returned almost at once. There are too many flies in this city. Ben Plum gave a bark of laughter. There were flies in my ale this morning. I swallowed one of them. Flies are the dead man's revenge, Dario smiled and stroked the center prong of his beard. Corpses breed maggots, and maggots breed flies. We will rid ourselves of the corpses, then. Starting with those in the plaza below. Grey Worm, will you see to it? The Queen commands these ones obey. 
Best bring sacks, as well as shovels, worm, Brian Ben counselled. Well past ripe, those ones, falling off those poles in bits and pieces and crawling with, he knows, so do I. Danny remembered the horror she had felt when she had seen the plaza of punishment in Astapor. I made a horror just as great, but surely they deserved it. Harsh justice is still justice. I are a glace, said Miss Andy. Guess Harley and her their hundred dead in crypts below their mansas. If you would boil their bones clean and return them to their kin, it would be a kindness. The widows will curse me all the same. Let it be done, Danny Beckner Daria. How many seek audience this morning? Uh, to have presented themselves to bask in your radiance. Dario had planted himself a whole new wardrobe in Marine, and to match it he had re-dyed his tritoned beard and curly hair a deep, rich purple. It made his eyes look almost purple, too, as if he were some lost Valerian. They arrived in the night on the Indigostar, a trading galley out of Karth. A slaver, you mean. Danny frowned. Who are they? The star's master, and one who claims to speak for Astapor. I will see the envoy first. He proved to be a pale, ferret-faced man, with ropes of pearls and spun gold hanging heavy about his neck. Your worship, he cried. My name is Gull. I bring greetings to the mother of dragons from King Cleon of Astapor, Cleon the Great. Danny stiffened. I left a council to rule Astapor, a healer, a scholar, and a priest. Your worship, those sly rogues betrayed your trust. It was revealed that they were scheming to restore the good masters to power and the people to chains. Great Cleon exposed their plots and hacked their heads off with a cleaver, and the grateful folk of Astapor have crowned him for his valor. A noble girl, said Miss Sandy in the dialect of Astapor, is thus the same Cleon once owned by Glasdan Ulhur? Her voice was guileless, yet the question plainly made the envoy anxious. The same, he admitted, a great man. Miss Sandy leaned closer to Danny. He was a butcher in Glasdan's kitchen, the girl whispered in her ear. It is said he could slaughter a pig faster than any man in Astapor. I have given Astapor a butcher king. Danny felt ill, but she knew she must not let the envoy see it. I will pray that King Cleon rules well and wisely. What would he have of me? Gull rubbed his mouth. Perhaps we shall speak more privily, your grace. I have no secrets for my captains and commanders. As you wish. Grey Cleon bids me declare his devotion to the Mother of Dragons. Your enemies are his enemies, he says. And chief among them are the wise masters of Yankai. He proposes a pact between Astapor and Marine against the Yankai. I swore no harm would come to Yankai if they released their slaves said Danny. These Yankish dogs cannot be trusted, your worship. Even now they plot against you. New levies have been raised, 
and can be seen drilling outside the city walls. Warships are being built. Envoys have been sent to New Gis and Valentis in the West to make alliances and hire sellswords. They have even dispatched riders to Vase Dothrak to bring a Kalasar down upon you. Great Cleon bid me tell you not to be afraid. Astapor remembers. Astapor will not forsake you. To prove his faith, Great Cleon offers to seal your alliance with a marriage. A marriage? To me? Gaul smiled. His teeth were brown and rotten. Great Cleon will give you many strong sons. Danny found herself bereft of words, but little Miss Sandy came to her rescue. Oh, did his first wife give him sons? The envoy looked at her unhappily. Grey Cleon has three daughters by his first wife. Two of his newer wives are with child, but he means to put all of them aside if the mother of dragons will consent to wed him. How noble of him, said Danny. I will consider all you said, my lord. She gave orders that Gaal be given chambers for the night somewhere lower in the pyramid. All my victories turn to dross in my hands, she thought. Whatever I do, all I make is death and horror. When word of what had befallen Astapor reached the streets, as it surely would, tens of thousands of newly freed Meronese slaves would doubtless decide to follow her when she went west, for fear of what awaited them if they stayed. Yet it might well be that worse would await them on the march. Even if she emptied every granary in the city and left Marine to starve, how could she feed so many? The way before her was fraught with hardship, bloodshed, and danger. Sir Jorah had warned her of that. He'd warned her of so many things. He'd— No, I will not think of Jorah Mormont. Let him keep a little longer. I shall see this a traitor, Captain, she announced. Perhaps he would have some better tidings. That proved to be a forlorn hope. The master of the Indigo Star was Cathine, so he wept copiously when asked about Astapor. The city bleeds. Dead men rot unburied in the streets. Its pyramid is an armed camp, and the markets have neither food nor slaves for sale. And the poor children, King Cleaver's thugs, have seized every high-born boy in Astapor to make new unsullied for the trade, though it will be years before they are trained. The thing that surprised Danny most was how unsurprised she was. She found herself remembering Eroa, the Lazarine girl she had once tried to protect, and what had happened to her. It will be the same in Marine once I march, she thought. The slaves from the fighting pits, bred and trained to slaughter, were already proving themselves unruly and quarrelsome. They seemed to think they owned the city now, and every man and woman in it. Two of them had been among the eight she'd hanged. There is no more I can do, she told herself. What do you want of me, Captain? Slaves, he said. My holes are full to bursting with ivory ambergris, zorse hides, and other fine goods. I would trade them here for slaves to sell in lice and volantis. We have no slaves for sale, 
said Danny. My queen, Dario stepped forward. The riverside is full of Marinis, begging leave to be allowed to sell themselves to this Cathine. They are thicker than the flies. Danny was shocked. They want to be slaves? The ones who come are well-spoken and gently born, sweet queen. Such slaves are prized. In the free cities they will be tutors, scribes, bed-slaves, even healers and priests. They will sleep in soft beds, eat rich foods, and dwell in manses. Here they have lost all, and live in fear and squalor. I see. Perhaps it was not so shocking if these tales of Astapor were true. Danny thought a moment. Any man who wishes to sell himself into slavery may do so. Or woman. She raised a hand. But they may not sell their children, nor a man his wife. In Astapor, the city took a tenth part of the price, each time a slave changed hands, Miss Sandy told her. We'll do the same, Danny decided. Wars were won with gold as much as swords. A tenth part, in gold, or silver coin, or ivory. Marine has no need of saffron, cloves, or zorsides. It shall be done as you command, glorious queen, said Daria. My storm crows will collect your tenth. If the storm crows soared to the collections, at least half the gold would somehow go astray, Danny knew. But the second sons were just as bad, and the unsolid were as unlettered as they were incorruptible. Records must be kept, she said. Seek among the freedmen for men who can read, write, and do sums. His business done, the captain of the Indigo Star bowed and took his leave. Danny shifted uncomfortably on the ebony bench. She dreaded what must come next, yet she knew she had put it off too long already. Yunkai and Astapor, threats of war, marriage proposals, the march west looming over all. I need my knights, I need their swords, and I need their counsel. Yet the thought of seeing Jara Mormont again made her feel as if she'd swallowed a spoonful of flies, angry, agitated, sick. She could almost feel them buzzing around her belly. I am the blood of the dragon. I must be strong. I must have fire in my eyes when I face them, not tears. Tell Belwas to bring my knights, Danny commanded, before she could change her mind. My good knights. Strong Belwas was puffing from the climb when he marched them through the doors. One meaty hand wrapped tight around each man's arm. Sir Barristan walked with his head held high, but Sir Jaro stared at the marble floor as he approached. The one is proud, the other guilty. The old man had shaved off his white beard. He looked ten years younger without it. But her balding bear looked older than he had. They halted before the bench. Strong Belwa stepped back and stood with his arms crossed across his scarred chest. Sir Jorah cleared his throat. Khaleesi? She had missed his voice so much. But she had to be stern. Be quiet. I will tell you when to speak. She stood. When I sent you down into the sewers, part of me hoped I'd seen the last of you. It seemed a fitting end for liars to drown in slavers' filth. I thought the guards would deal with you. But instead you returned to me. My gallant knights of Westeros, an informer and a turncloak. 
my brother would have hanged you both. The series would have anyway. She did not know what Rhaegar would have done. I will admit you helped me win the city. Sir Jorah's mouth tightened. We won you, the city. We saw rats. Be quiet, she said again, though there was truth to what he said. While Joseph's cock and the other rams were battering the city gates, and her archers were firing flights of flaming arrows over the walls, Danny had sent two hundred men along the river under cover of darkness to fire the hulks in the harbour. But that was only to hide their true purpose. As the flaming ships drew the eyes of the defenders on the walls, a few half-mad swimmers found the sewer mouths and pried loose a rusted iron grating. Sir Jorah, Sir Barriston, Strong Belwas, and twenty brave fools slipped beneath the brown water and up the brick tunnel, a mixed force of sellswords, unsolid, and freedmen. Danny had told them to choose only men who had no families, and preferably no sense of smell. They had been lucky as well as brave. It had been a moon's turn since the last good rain, and the sewers were only thigh-high. The oilcloth they had wrapped around their torches kept them dry, so they had light. A few of the freedmen were frightened of the huge rats until Strong Belwas caught one and bit it in two. One man was killed by a great pale lizard that reared up out of the dark water to drag him off by the leg, but when next ripples were spied, Sir Jorah butchered the beast with his blade. They took some wrong turnings, but once they found the surface, Strong Belwas led them to the nearest fighting pit, where they surprised a few guards and struck the chains off the slaves. Within an hour, half the fighting slaves and marine had risen. You helped win this city, she repeated stubbornly, and you have served me well in the past. Sir Barriston saved me from the Titan's bastard, and from the sorrowful man in Carth. Sir Jorah saved me from the poisoner in Vase Dothrak, and again from Drogo's blood riders after my sun and stars had died. So many people wanted her dead. Sometimes she lost count. And yet you lied, deceived me, betrayed me. She turned to Sir Barristan. You protected my father for many years, fought beside my brother on the Trident, but you abandoned Viserys in his exile and bent your knee to the usurper instead. Why? And tell it true. Some truths are hard to hear. Robert was, um, a good knight, chivalrous, brave. He spared my life and the lives of many others. Prince Viserys was only a boy. It would have been years before he was fit to rule. And, uh, forgive me, my queen, but you ask for truth. Even as a child, your brother Viserys off seemed to be his father's son, in ways that Rhaegar never did. His father's son? Danny frowned. What does that mean? The old knight did not blink. Your father is called the Mad King in Westeros. Has no one ever told you? Viserys did. The Mad King. The usurper called him that. The usurper and his dogs. The Mad King? It was a lie. Why ask for truth? Sir Barristan said softly. If you will close your ears to it. He hesitated, then continued. I told you before that I used a false name, 
so the Lannisters would not know that I joined you. That was less than half of it, Your Grace. The truth is, I wanted to watch you for a time before pledging you my sword, to make certain that you were not my father's daughter. If she was not her father's daughter, who was she? Mad, he finished. But I see no taint in you. Taint, Danny bristled. I am no maester to quote history at you, Your Grace. Swords have been my life, not books. But every child knows that the Targaryens have always danced too close to madness. Your father was not the first. King Jaerys once told me that madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, he said, the gods toss the coin in the air, and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. Jaerys? This old man knew my grandfather? The thought gave her pause. Most of what she knew of Westeros had come from her brother, and the rest from Sir Jorah. Sir Barristan would have forgotten more than the two of them had ever known. This man can tell me what I came from. So I am a coin in the hands of some god. Is that what you're saying, sir? No, Sir Barristan replied. You are the true-born heir of Westeros. To the end of my days, I shall remain your faithful knight. Should you find me worthy to bear a sword again? If not, I am content to serve Strong Belwas as his squire. What if I decide you're only worthy to be my fool? Danny asked scornfully. Or perhaps my cook? I would be honoured, Your Grace, Selmy said with quiet dignity. I can bake apples and boil beef as well as any man, and I roasted many a duck over a campfire. I hope you like them greasy, with charred skin and bloody bones. That made her smile. I'd have to be mad to eat such fare. Ben Plum, come, give Sir Barriston your longsword. But Whitebeard would not take it. I flung my sword at Joffrey's feet, and have not touched one since. Only from the hand of my queen— Will I accept a sword again? As you wish. Danny took the sword from Brown Ben and offered it hilt first. The old man took it reverently. Now kneel, she told him, and swear it to my service. He went to one knee and laid the blade before her as he said the words. Danny scarcely heard them. He was the easy one, she thought. The other will be harder. When Sir Barristan was done, she turned to Jorah Mormont. And now you, sir, tell me true. The big man's neck was red, whether from anger or shame she did not know. I have tried to tell you true half a hundred times. I, I told you Arstan was more than he seemed. I warned you that Zaro and Piat Pri were not to be trusted. I warned you. You warned me against everyone except yourself. His insolence angered her. He should be humbler. He should beg for my forgiveness. Trust no one but Jorah Mormont, you said, and all the time you were the spider's creature. I'm no man's creature. I took the eunuch's gold, yes, I learned some ciphers and wrote some letters, but that was all... All? You spied on me and sold me to my enemies. For a time, he said it grudgingly, I stopped. 
When? When did you stop? I made one report from Carth, but... From Carth? Danny had been hoping it had ended much earlier. What did you write from Carth? That you were my man now? That you wanted no more of their schemes? Sir Jorah could not meet her eyes. When Carl Drogo died, you asked me to go with you to Yeeti and the Jade Sea. Was that your wish, or Robert's? That was to protect you, he insisted, to keep you away from them. I knew what snakes they were. Snakes? And what are you, sir? Something unspeakable occurred to her. You told them I was carrying Drogo's child, Khaleesi. Do not think to deny it, sir, Sir Barristan said sharply. I was there when the eunuch told the council, and Robert decreed that her grace and her child must die. You were the source, sir. There was even talk that you might do the deed for a pardon. A lie, Sir Joris' face darkened. I, I would never, Daenerys, it was me who stopped you from drinking the wine. Yes, and how was it you knew the wine was poisoned? I, I but suspected. The caravan brought a letter from Boris. He warned me there would be attempts. He wanted you watched, yes, but not harmed. He went to his knees. If I had not told them, someone else would have. You know that. I know that you betrayed me. She touched her belly where her son Rago had perished. I know a poisoner tried to kill my son because of you. That's what I know. No, no, he shook his head. I never meant... Forgive me. You have to forgive me. Have to. It was too late. He should have begun by begging forgiveness. She could not pardon him as she'd intended. She had dragged the wine-cellar behind her horse until there was nothing left of him. Didn't the man who brought him deserve the same? This is Jorah, my fierce bear, the right arm that never failed me. I would be dead without him, but— I can't forgive you, she said. I can't. You forgave the old man? He lied to me about his name. You sold my secrets to the men who killed my father and stole my brother's throne. I protected you. I fought for you, killed for you. Kissed me, she thought, betrayed me. I went down into the sores like a rat for you. It might have been kinder if you'd died there. Danny said nothing. There was nothing to say. Daenerys, he said, I have loved you. And there it was. Three treasons, you will know, once for blood, and once for gold, and once for love. The guards do nothing without a purpose, they say. You did not die in battle, so it must be they still have some use for you. But I don't. I will not have you near me. You are banished, sir. Go back to your masters in King's Landing, and collect your pardon, if you can. Or to Astapor. No doubt the butcher king needs knights. No, he reached for her. Daenerys, please, hear me. She slapped his hand away. Do not ever presume to touch me again, or to speak my name. You have until dawn to collect your things and leave the city. If you are found in Marine past break of day, 
I will have strong Belwas twist your head off. I will. Believe that. She turned her back on him, her skirt swirling. I cannot bear to see his face. Remove this liar from my sight, she commanded. I must not weep. I must not. If I weep, I will forgive him. Strong Belwas seized Sir Jorah by the arm and dragged him out. When Danny glanced back, the knight was walking as if drunk, stumbling and slow. She looked away until she heard the doors open and close. Then she sank back onto the ebony bench. He's gone, then. My father and my mother, my brothers, Sir Willem Derry, Drogo, who was my son and stars, his son, who died inside me, and now Sir Jorah. The Queen has a good heart, Dario purred through his deep purple whiskers. But that one is more dangerous than all the Osnarks and Merrows rolled up in one. His strong hands caressed the hilts of his matched blades, those wanton golden women. You need not even say the word, my radiance. Only give the tiniest nod, and your Dario shall fetch you back his ugly head. Leave him be. The scales are balanced now. Let him go home. Danny pictured Jorah moving amongst old gnarled oaks and tall pines, past flowering thorn bushes, grey stones bearded with moss, and little creeks running icy down the steep hillsides. She saw him entering a hall built of huge logs, where dogs slept by the hearth, and the smell of meat and mead hung thick in the smoky air. We are done for now, she told her captains. It was all she could do not to run back up the wide marble stairs. Erie helped her slip from her court clothes and into more comfortable garb, baggy woolen breeches, a loose felted tunic, a painted Dothraki vest. You are trembling, Khaleesi, the girl said as she knelt to lace up Danny's sandals. I'm cold, Danny lied. Bring me the book I was reading last night. She wanted to lose herself in the words, in other times and other places. The fat leather-bound volume was full of songs and stories from the Seven Kingdoms. Children's stories, if truth be told, too simple and fanciful to be true history. All the heroes were tall and handsome, and you could tell the traitors by their shifty eyes. Yet she loved them all the same. Last night she had been reading of the three princesses in the Red Tower, locked away by the king for the crime of being beautiful. When her handmaid brought the book, Danny had no trouble finding the page where she had left off, but it was no good. She found herself reading the same passage half a dozen times. Sir Jorah gave me this book as a bride's gift, the day I wed Karl Droger. But Dario is right. I shouldn't have banished him. I should have kept him, or I should have killed him. She played at being a queen, yet sometimes she still felt like a scared little girl. Vizier has always said what adult I was. Was he truly mad? She closed the book. She could still recall Sir Jorah, if she wished, or send Dario to kill him. Danny fled from the choice, out onto the terrace. She found Rhaegal asleep beside the pool, 
a green and bronze coil basking in the sun. Drogon was perched up atop the pyramid, in the place where the huge bronze harpy had stood before she had commanded it to be pulled down. He spread his wings and roared when he spied her. There was no sign of a Syrian, but when she went to the parapet and scanned the horizon, she saw pale wings in the far distance, sweeping above the river. He is hunting. They grow bolder every day. Yet it still made her anxious when they flew too far away. One day, one of them may not return, she thought. Your Grace! She turned to find Sir Barriston behind her. What more would you have of me, sir? I spared you. I took you into my service. Now give me some peace. Forgive me, Your Grace. It was only... Now that you know who I am, the old man hesitated. A knight of the King's Guard is in the King's presence day and night. For that reason, our vows require us to protect his secrets as we would his life. But your father's secrets by rights belong to you now, along with his throne, and uh, I thought perhaps you might have questions for me. Questions? She had a hundred questions, a thousand, ten thousand. Why couldn't she think of one? Was my father truly mad? She blurted out. Why did I ask that? Desiree said this talk of madness was a ploy of the usurpers. Viserys was a child, and the queen sheltered him as much as she could. Your father always had a little madness in him, I now believe. Yet he was charming, and generous as well, so his lapses were forgiven. His reign began with such promise, but as the years passed, the lapses grew more frequent until— Danny stopped him. Do I want to hear this now? Sir Barriston considered a moment. Perhaps not. Not now. Not now, she agreed. One day, one day you must tell me all, the good and the bad. There is some good to be said of my father, surely. There is, Your Grace, of him and those who came before him. Your grandfather, Jaehaerys, and his brother, their father, Aegon, your mother, and Rhaegar, him most of all. I wish I could have known him. Her voice was wistful. I wish he could have known you, the old knight said. When you are ready, I will tell you all. Danny kissed him on the cheek and sent him on his way. That night her handmaids brought her lamb, with a salad of raisins and carrots soaked in wine, and a hot flaky bread dripping with honey. She could eat none of it. Did Rhaegar ever grow so weary? she wondered. Did Aegon, after his conquest? Later, when the time came for sleep, Danny took Eri into bed with her, for the first time since the ship. But even as she shuddered in release and wound her fingers through her handmaid's thick black hair, she pretended it was Drogo holding her. Only somehow his face kept turning into Dario's. If I want Dario, I need only say so. She lay with Iri's legs entangled in her own. His eyes looked almost purple today. Danny's dreams were dark that night, and she woke three times from half-remembered nightmares. 
After the third time, she was too restless to return to sleep. Moonlight streamed through the slanting windows, silvering the marble floors. A cool breeze was blowing through the open terrace doors. Irie slept soundly beside her, her lips slightly parted, one dark brown nipple peeping out above the sleeping silks. For a moment Danny was tempted, but it was Drogo she wanted, or perhaps Dario, not Irie. The maid was sweet and skilful, but all her kisses tasted of duty. She rose, leaving Iria asleep in the moonlight. Jiqui and Missandei slept in their own beds. Danny slipped on a robe and padded barefoot across the marble floor out onto the terrace. The air was chilly, but she liked the feel of grass between her toes and the sound of the leaves whispering to one another. Wind ripples chased each other across the surface of the little bathing pool and made the moon's reflection dance and shimmer. She leaned against a low brick parapet to look down upon the city. Marine was sleeping too. Lost in dreams of kinder days, perhaps? Night covered the streets like a black blanket, hiding the corpses and the grey rats that came up from the sewers to feast on them the swarms of stinging flies. Distant torches glimmered red and yellow where her sentries walked their rounds, and here and there she saw the faint glow of lanterns bobbing down an alley. Perhaps one was Sir Jorah, leading his horse slowly toward the gate. Farewell, old bear. Farewell, betrayer. She was Daenerys Stormborn, the unburnt, Khaleesi, and queen, mother of dragons, slayer of warlocks, breaker of chains, and there was no one in the world that she could trust. Your grace, Miss Handy stood at her elbow, wrapped in a bedrobe, wooden sandals on her feet. I awoke and saw that you were gone. Did you sleep well? What are you looking at? My city, said Danny. I was looking for a house with a red door, but by night, all the doors are black. A red door? Masandi was puzzled. What house is this? Uh, no house. It does not matter. Danny took the younger girl by the hand. Never lie to me, Masandi. Never betray me. I never would, Masandi promised. Look, dawn comes. The sky had turned a cobalt blue from the horizon to the zenith and behind the line of low hills to the east a glow could be seen, pale gold and oyster pink. Danny held Masandi's hand as they watched the sun come up. All the grey bricks became red and yellow and blue and green and orange. The scarlet sands of the fighting pits transformed them into bleeding sores before her eyes. Elsewhere, the golden dome of the Temple of the Graces blazed bright, and bronze stars winked along the walls where the light of the rising sun touched the spikes on the helms of the unsolid. On the terrace a few flies stirred sluggishly. A bird began to chirp in the persimmon tree, and then two more. Danny cocked her head to hear their song, but it was not long before the sounds of the waking city drowned them out. The sounds of my city. That morning she summoned her captains and commanders to the garden rather than descending to the audience chamber. 
Aegon the Conqueror brought fire and blood to Westeros, but afterward he gave them peace, prosperity, and justice. But all I have brought to Slaver's Bay is death and ruin. I have been more carl than queen, smashing and plundering than moving on. There is nothing to stay for, said Brown Ben Plum. Your Grace, the slavers brought their doom on themselves, said Dario Naharis. You have brought freedom as well, Masandi pointed out. Freedom to starve? Danny asked sharply. Freedom to die? Am I a dragon or a harpy? Am I mad? Do I have the taint? A dragon, Sir Barristan said with certainty. Marine is not westrous, your grace. But how can I rule seven kingdoms if I cannot rule a single city? He had no answer to that. Danny turned away from them to gaze out over the city once again. My children need time to heal and learn. My dragons need time to grow and test their wings. And I need the same. I will not let this city go the way of Astapor. I will not let the harpier of Yonkai chain up those I've freed all over again. She turned back to look at their faces. I will not march. What will you do then? Khaleesi asked Ricaro. Stay, she said. Rule and be a queen. Jamie the king sat at the head of the table, a stack of cushions under his ass, signing each document as it was presented to him. Only a few more, your grace, Sir Kevin Lannister assured him. This is a bill of attainder against Lord Edmure Tully, stripping him of River Run and all its lands and incomes, for rebelling against his lawful king. This is a similar attainder against his uncle, Sir Brynden Tully the Blackfish. Tommen signed them one after the other, dipping the quill carefully and writing his name in a broad, childish hand. Jamie watched from the foot of the table, thinking of all those lords who aspired to a seat on the king's small council. They can bloody well have mine. If this was power, why did it taste like tedium? He did not feel especially powerful, watching Tommen dip his quill into the ink pot again. He felt bored. And sore. Every muscle in his body ached, and his ribs and shoulders were bruised from the battering they'd gotten, courtesy of Sir Adam Marbrand. Just thinking of it made him wince. He could only hope the man would keep his mouth shut. Jamie had known Marbrand since he was a boy, serving as a page at Castle Rock. He trusted him as much as he trusted anyone, enough to ask him to take up shields and tawny swords. He'd wanted to know if he could fight with his left hand. And now I do. The knowledge was more painful than the beating that Sir Adam had given him, and the beating was so bad he could hardly dress himself this morning. If they had been fighting in earnest, Jamie would have died two dozen deaths. It seemed so simple, changing hands. It wasn't. Every instinct he had was wrong. He had to think about everything, where once he'd just moved. And while he was thinking, Marbrandt was thumping him. His left hand couldn't even seem to hold a longsword properly. Sir Adam had disarmed him thrice, sending his blade spinning. 
This grant said lands, incomes, and castle to Sir Eamon Frey and his a lady wife, Lady Jenna. Sir Kevin presented another sheath of parchments to the king. Tom and dipped and signed. This is a decree of legitimacy for a natural son of Lord Roos Bolton of the Dreadfort. And this name's Lord Bolton, your warden of the north. Tom and dipped, signed, dipped, signed. This grants Sir Rolf a spicer title to the castle Castamere and raises him to the rank of lord. Tom and scrawled his name. I should have gone to Sir Ilian Payne, Jamie reflected. The king's justice was not a friend as Marbrand was, and might have beat him bloody, but, without a tongue, he was not like to boast of it afterward. All it would take would be one chance remark by Sir Adam in his cups, and the whole world would soon know how useless he'd become. Lord Commander of the King's Guard. It was a cruel jape, that, though not quite so cruel as the gift his father had sent him. This is your royal pardon for Lord Gawain Westerling, his lady wife, and his daughter Jane, welcoming them back into the king's peace, Sir Kevin said. This is a pardon for Lord Jonas Bracken of Stonehenge. This is a pardon for Lord Vance. This for Lord Goodbrook. This for Lord Mouton of Maidenpool. Jamie pushed himself to his feet. You seem to have these matters well in hand, uncle. I shall leave his grace to you. As you wish. Sir Kevin rose as well. Jamie, you should go to your father. This breach between you is his doing. Nor will he mend it by sending me mocking gifts. Tell him that, if you can pry him away from the Tyrells long enough. His uncle looked distressed. The gift was heartfelt. We thought it might encourage you. To grow a new hand? Jamie turned to Tommin. Though he had Joffrey's golden curls and green eyes, the new king shared little else with his late brother. He inclined to plumpness. His face was pink and round, and he even liked to read. He is still shy of nine, this son of mine. The boy is not the man. It would be seven years before Tommen was ruling in his own right. Until then, the realm would remain firmly in the hands of his lord grandfather. Sire, he asked, do I have your leave to go? As you like, sir uncle. Tommen looked back to Sir Kevin. Can I seal them now, great uncle? Pressing his royal seal into the hot wax was his favorite part of being king, so far. Jamie strode from the council chamber. Outside the door, he found Sir Merrin Trant, standing stiff at guard in white-scale armor and snowy cloak. If this one should hear how feeble I am, or Kettleblack, or Blunt should hear of it. Remain here until his grace is done, he said. Then escort him back to Magor's. Trant inclined his head. As you say, my lord. The outer ward was crowded and noisy that morning. Jamie made for the stables, where a large group of men were saddling their horses. Steel shanks, he called. Are you off then? As soon as Milady is mounted, said Steel shanks Walton. My lord of Bolton expects us. Here she is now. 
A groom led a fine grey mare out of the stable door. On her back was mounted a skinny, hollow-eyed girl wrapped in a heavy cloak. Grey it was, like the dress beneath it, and trimmed with white satin. The clasp that pinned it to her breast was wrought in the shape of a wolf's head with slitted opal eyes. The girl's long brown hair blew wild in the wind. She had a pretty face, he thought, but her eyes were sad and weary. When she saw him, she inclined her head. "'Sir Jamie,' she said in a thin, anxious voice, "'you are kind to see me off.' Jamie studied her closely. "'You know me, then?' She bit her lip. "'You may not recall, my lord, as I was littler then, but I had the honour to meet you at Winterfell when King Robert came to visit my father, Lord Eddard. She lowered her big brown eyes and mumbled. I'm Arya Stark. Jamie had never paid much attention to Arya Stark, but it seemed to him that this girl was older. I understand you're to be married. I am to wed Lord Bolton's son, Ramsay. He used to be a snow, but his grace has made him a Bolton. They say he's very brave. I'm so happy. Then why do you sound so frightened? I wish you joy, my lady, Jamie turned back to Steelshanks. You have the coin you were promised? Aye, and we've shared it out. You have my thanks, the Northman grinned. A Lannister always pays his debts. Always, said Jamie, with a last glance at the girl. He wondered if there was much resemblance. Not that it mattered. The real Arya Stark was buried in some unmarked grave in Flea Bottom, in all likelihood. With her brothers dead and both parents, who would dare name this one a fraud? Good speed, he told Steelshanks. Nage raised his peace manner, and the Northmen formed a column as ragged as their fur cloaks and trotted out the castle gate. The thin girl on the grey mare looked small and forlorn in their midst. A few of the horses still shied away from the dark splotch on the hard-packed ground, where the earth had drunk the life's blood of the stable-boy Gregor Clegane had killed so clumsily. The sight of it made Jamie angry all over again. He had told his king's guard to keep the crowd out of the way, but that oaf, Sir Boris, had let himself be distracted by the duel. The fool-boy himself shared some of the blame, to be sure, the dead Dornishman as well, and Clegane most of all. The blow that took the boy's arm off had been mischance, but that second cut. Well, Gregor is paying for it now. Grand Maester Pycelle was tending to the man's wounds, but the howls heard ringing from the Maester's chambers suggested that the healing was not going as well as it might. The flesh mortifies, and the wounds ooze pus, Pycelle told the council. Even maggots will not touch such foulness. His convulsions are so violent that I have had to gag him to prevent him from biting off his tongue. I have cut away as much tissue as I dare, and treated the rot with boiling wine and bread mould to no avail. The veins in his arm are turning black. When I leached him, all the leeches died. My lords, I must know what malignant substance Prince Oberon used on his spear. 
Let us detain these other Gornishmen until they are more forthcoming. Lord Tywin had refused him. There will be trouble enough with Sunspear over Prince Oberon's death. I do not mean to make matters worse by holding his companions captive. Then I fear Sir Gregor may die. Undoubtedly. I swore as much in the letter I sent to Prince Doran with his brother's body. But it must be seen to be the sword of the king's justice that slays him, not a poisoned spear. Heal him. Grandmaster Pycel blinked in dismay. My lord, heal him! Lord Tywin said again, vexed. You are aware that Lord Varys has sent fishermen into the waters around Dragonstone. They report that only a token force remains to defend the island. The Lysini are gone from the bay, and the great part of Lord Stannis's strength with them. Well and good, announced Pycelle. Let Stannis rot in lice, I say. We are well rid of the man and his ambitions. Did you turn into an utter fool when Tyrion shaved your beard? This is Stannis Baratheon. The man will fight to the bitter end, and then some. If he is gone, it can only mean he intends to resume the war. Most likely he will land at Storm's End and try to rouse the Storm Lords. If so, he's finished. But a bolder man might roll the dice for dawn. If he should win Sunspear to his cause, he might prolong this war for years. So we will not offend the Martells any further, for any reason. The Dornishmen are free to go, and you will heal, Sir Gregor. And so the mountains screamed day and night. Lord Tywin Lannister could cow even the stranger, it would seem. As Jamie climbed the winding steps of the White Sword Tower, he could hear Sir Boris snoring in his cell. Sir Balan's door was shut as well. He had the king tonight, and would sleep all day. Aside from blunt snores, the tower was very quiet. That suited Jamie well enough. I ought to rest myself. Last night, after his dance with Sir Adam, he had been too sore to sleep. But when he stepped into his bedchamber, he found his sister waiting for him. She stood beside the open window, looking over the curtain walls and out to sea. The bay wind swirled around her, flattening her gown against her body in a way that quickened Jamie's pulse. It was white, that gown, like the hangings on the wall and the draperies on his bed. Swirls of tiny emeralds brightened the ends of her wide sleeves and spiraled down her bodice. Larger emeralds were set in the golden spiderweb that bound her golden hair. The gown was cut low to bare her shoulders and the tops of her breasts. She is so beautiful. He wanted nothing more than to take her in his arms. Cersei, he closed the door softly. Why are you here? Where else could I go? When she turned to him, there were tears in her eyes. Father's made it clear that I am no longer wanted on the council. Jamie, won't you talk to him? 
Jamie took off his cloak and hung it from a peg on the wall. I talk to Lord Tywin every day. Must you be so stubborn? All he wants is to force me from the King's Guard and send me back to Castley Rock. That need not be so terrible. He is sending me back to Castley Rock as well. He wants me far away, so he'll have a free hand with Tommen. Tommen is my son, not his. Tommen is the king. He is a boy, a frightened little boy, who saw his brother murdered at his own wedding. And now they are telling him that he must marry. The girl is twice his age and twice a widow. He eased himself into a chair, trying to ignore the ache of bruised muscles. The Tyrells are insisting. I see no arm in it. Tommen's been lonely since Marcella went to dawn. He likes having Marjorie and her ladies about. Let them wed. He is your son. He is my seed. He's never called me father, no more than Joffrey ever did. You warned me a thousand times never to show any undue interest in them. To keep them safe, you as well. How would it have looked if my brother had played the father to the king's children? Even Robert might have grown suspicious. Well, he's beyond suspicion now. Robert's death still left a bitter taste in Jamie's mouth. It should have been me who killed him, not Cersei. I only wished he'd died at my hands, when I still had two of them. If I'd let king-slaying become a habit, as he'd like to say, I could have taken you for my wife for all the world to see. I'm not ashamed of loving you, only of the things I've done to hide it. That boy at Winterfell. Did I tell you to throw him out of the window? If you'd gone hunting as I begged you, nothing would have happened. But no, you had to have me. You could not wait until we returned to the city. I'd waited long enough. I hated watching Robert stumble to your bed every night, always wondering if maybe this night he'd decide to claim his rights as husband. Jamie suddenly remembered something else that troubled him about Winterfell. At River Run, Catelyn Stark seemed convinced I'd sent some footpad to slit her son's throat, that I'd given him a dagger. That, she said scornfully. Tyrion asked me about that. There was a dagger. The scars on Lady Catelyn's hands were real enough. She showed them to me. Did you— Oh, don't be absurd. Cersei closed the window. Yes, I hoped the boy would die. So did you. Even Robert thought that would have been for the best. We kill our horses when they break a leg, our dogs when they go blind. But we are too weak to give the same mercy to crippled children, he told me. He was blind himself at the time, from drink. Robert. Jamie had guarded the king long enough to know that Robert Baratheon said things in his cups that he would have denied angrily the next day. Were you alone when Robert said this? You don't think he said it to Ned Stark, I hope. Of course we were alone, us and the children. Cersei removed her hairnet and draped it over a bedpost, then shook out her golden curls. Perhaps Marcella sent this man with a dagger, do you think so? It was meant as mockery, but she'd cut right to the heart of it, Jamie saw at once. Not Marcella, Joffrey. 
Cersei frowned. Joffrey had no love for Rob Stark, but the younger boy was nothing to him. He was only a child himself. A child hungry for a pat on the head from that sut you let him believe was his father. He had an uncomfortable thought. Tyrion almost died because of this bloody dagger. If he knew the whole thing was Joffrey's work, that might be why— I don't care why, Cersei said. He can take his reasons down to hell with him. If you had seen how Joff died, he fought, Jamie, he fought for every breath. But it was as if some malign spirit had its hands about his throat. He had such terror in his eyes. When he was little, he'd run to me when he was scared or hurt, and I would protect him. But that night, there was nothing I could do. Tyrion murdered him in front of me, and there was nothing I could do. Cersei sank to her knees before her chair and took Jamie's good hand between both of hers. Joff is dead, and Marcella's in dawn. Tummins all I have left. You mustn't let father take him from me, Jamie, please. Lord Tywin has not asked for my approval. I can talk to him, but he will not listen. He will, if you agree to leave the King's Guard. I'm not leaving the King's Guard. His sister fought back tears. Jamie, you're my shining knight. You cannot abandon me when I need you most. He's stealing my son, sending me away. And unless you stop him, father is going to force me to wed again. Jamie should not have been surprised, but he was. The words were a blow to his gut, harder than any Sir Adam Marbrandt had dealt him. Who? Does it matter? Some lord or other? Someone father thinks he needs? I don't care. I will not have another husband. You are the only man I want in my bed ever again. Then tell him that. She pulled her hands away. You're talking madness again. Would you have us ripped apart, as mother did that time she caught us playing? Tommen would lose the throne, Marcella her marriage. I want to be your wife. We belong to each other. But it can never be, Jamie. We are brother and sister. The Targaryens, we are not Targaryens. Quiet, he said scornfully. So loud, you'll wake my sworn brothers. We can't have that now, can we? People might learn that you had come to see me. Jamie, she sobbed, don't you think I want it as much as you? It makes no matter who they wed me to, I want you at my side. I want you in my bed. I want you inside me. Nothing has changed between us. Let me prove it to you. She pushed up his tunic and began to fumble with the laces of his breeches. Jamie felt himself responding. No, he said, not here. They'd never done it in the White Sword Tower, much less in the Lord Commander's chambers. Cersei, this is not the place. You took me in the sept. This is no different. She drew out his cock and bent her head over it. Jamie pushed her away with a stump of his right hand. No, not here, I said. He forced himself to stand. For an instant he could see a confusion in her bright green eyes, and fear as well. Then rage replaced it. Cersei gathered herself together, got to her feet, straightened her skirts. Was it your hand they hacked off at Harrenhal, or your manhood? As she shook her head, 
her hair tumbled around her bare white shoulders. I was a fool to come. You lacked the courage to avenge Joffrey. Why would I think that you'd protect Tommen? Tell me, if the imp had killed all three of your children, would that have made you wroth? Tyrion is not going to harm Tommen or Marcella. I am still not certain he killed Joffrey. Her mouth twisted in anger. How can you say that? After all his threats. Threats mean nothing. He swears he did not do it. Oh, he swears. Is that it? And dwarfs don't lie. Is that what you think? Not to me. No more than you would. You great golden fool. He's lied to you a thousand times, and so have I. She bound up her hair again and scooped up the hairnet from the bedpost where she'd hung it. Think what you will. The little monster is in a black cell, and soon Sir Ilian will have his head off. Perhaps you'd like it for a keepsake. She glanced at the pillow. He can watch over you as you sleep alone in that cold white bed, until his eyes rot out, that is. You had best go, says he. You are making me angry. Oh, an angry cripple. How terrifying, she laughed. A pity Lord Tywin Lannister never had a son. I could have been the heir he wanted, but I lack the cock. And speaking of such, best tuck yours away, brother. It looks rather sad and small, hanging from your breeches like that. When she was gone, Jamie took her advice, fumbling one-handed at his laces. He felt a bone-deep ache in his phantom fingers. I've lost a hand, a father, a son, a sister, and a lover. And soon enough, I will lose a brother. And yet they keep telling me House Lannister won this war. Jamie donned his cloak and went downstairs, where he found Sir Boris Blunt having a cup of wine in the common room. When you've done with your drink, tell Solaris I'm ready to see her. Sir Boris was too much of a coward to do much more than glower. You are ready to see who? Just tell Loris. I, Sir Boris drained his cup, I, Lord Commander. He took his own good time about it, though, or else the Knight of Flowers proved hard to find. Several hours had passed by the time they arrived, the slim, handsome youth and the big, ugly maid. Jamie was seated alone in the round room, leafing idly through the white book. "'Lord Commander,' Sir Laura said, "'you wish to see the maid of Tarth?' "'I did.' Jamie waved them closer with his left hand. "'You have talked with her, I take it?' "'Yes, you commanded, my lord.' "'And?' The lad tensed. I... It may be it happened as she says, sir, that it was Stannis. I cannot be certain. Varys tells me that the Castellan of Storm's End perished strangely as well, said Jamie. Sir Courtney Penrose, said Brienne sadly, a good man. A stubborn man. One day he stood square in the way of the King of Dragonstone. The next he leapt from a tower. Jamie stood. Solaris, we will talk more of this later. You may leave Brian with me. The wench looked as ugly and awkward as ever, he decided, when Tyrell left them. Someone had dressed her in woman's clothes again, but this dress fit much better than that hideous pink rag the goat had made her wear.
Blue is a good colour on you, my lady, Jamie observed. It goes well with your eyes. She does have astonishing eyes. Brian glanced down at herself, flustered. Scepter Dunnies padded out the bodice to give it that shape. She said you sent her to me. She lingered by the door, as if she meant to flee at any second. You look... Different, he managed a half-smile. More meat on the ribs and fewer lice in my hair, that's all. The stump's the same. Close the door and come here. She did as he bid her. The white cloak is new, but I'm sure I'll soil it soon enough. That wasn't... I was about to say that it becomes you. She came closer, hesitant. Jamie, did you mean what you told Sir Loris about... about King Renly and the Shadow? Jamie shrugged. I would have killed Renly myself if we'd met in battle. What do I care who cut his throat? You said I had honor. I'm the bloody Kingslayer, remember? When I say you have honor, that's like a whore vouchsafing your maidenhood. He leaned back and looked up at her. Steelshanks is on his way back north to deliver Arya Stark to Roose Bolton. You gave her to him? She cried, dismayed. You swore an oath to Lady Catelyn. With a sword at my throat? But never mind. Lady Catelyn's dead. I could not give her back her daughters, even if I had them. And the girl my father sent with Steelshanks was not Arya Stark. Not Arya Stark? You heard me. My lord father found some skinny northern girl, more or less the same age, with more or less the same colouring. He dressed her up in white and grey, gave her a silver wolf to pin her cloak, and sent her off to wed Bolton's bastard. He lifted his stump to point at her. I wanted to tell you that before you went galloping off to rescue her and got yourself killed for no good purpose. You're not half bad with a sword, but you're not good enough to take on two hundred men by yourself. Brian shook her head. When Lord Bolton learns that your father paid him with false coin, oh, he knows. Lannister's lie, remember? It makes no matter this girl serves his purpose just as well. Who is going to say that she isn't Arya Stark? Everyone the girl was close to is dead, except for her sister, who has disappeared. Why would you tell me all this, if it's true? You are betraying your father's secrets. The hand's secrets, he thought. I no longer have a father. I pay my debts like every good little lion. I did promise Lady Stark her daughters, and one of them is still alive. My brother may know where she is, but if so, he isn't saying. Cersei is convinced that Sansa helped him murder Joffrey. The wench's mouth got stubborn. I will not believe that gentle girl a poisoner. Lady Catelyn said she had a loving heart. It was your brother. There was a trial, Sir Loris said. Two trials, actually. Words and swords both failed him. A bloody mess. Did you watch from your window? My cell faces a sea. I heard the shouting, though. 
Prince Oberon of Dawn is dead. Sir Gregor Clegane lies dying, and Tyrion stands condemned before the eyes of gods and men. They're keeping him in a black cell till they kill him. Brian looked at him. You do not believe he did it. Jamie gave her a hard smile. See, wench, we know each other too well. Tyrion's wanted to be me since he took his first step, but he'd never follow me in kingslaying. Sansa Star killed Joffrey. My brothers kept silent to protect her. He gets these fits of gallantry from time to time. The last one cost him a nose. This time it will mean his head. No, Brian said, it was not my lady's daughter. It could not have been her. There's the stubborn, stupid wench that I remember. She reddened. My name is Brian of Tarth, Jamie sighed. I have a gift for you. He reached down under the Lord Commander's chair and brought it out, wrapped in folds of crimson velvet. Brian approached as if the bundle was like to bite her, reached out a huge freckled hand and flipped back a fold of cloth. Rubies glimmered in the light. She picked the treasure up gingerly, curled her fingers around the leather grip and slowly slid the sword free of its scabbard. Blood and black the ripple shone. A finger of reflected light ran red along the edge. As as Valerian steel? I've never seen such colors. Nor I. There was a time that I would have given my right hand to wield a sword like that. Now it appears I have. So the blade is wasted on me. Take it. Before she could think to refuse, he went on, A sword so fine must bear a name. It would please me if you would call this one Oathkeeper. One more thing. The blade comes with a price. Her face darkened. I told you I will never serve such foul creatures as us. Yes, I recall. Year me out, Brian. Both of us swore oaths concerning Sansa Stark. Cersei means to see that the girl is found and killed wherever she has gone to ground. Brian's homely face twisted in fury. If you believe that I would harm my lady's daughter for a sword, you— Just listen, he snapped, angered by her assumption. I want you to find Sansa first and get her somewhere safe. How else are the two of us going to make good our stupid vows to your precious dead Lady Catelyn? The wench blinked. I, I thought, I know what you thought. Suddenly Jamie was sick of the sight of her. She bleats like a bloody sheep. When Ned Stark died, his great sword was given to the king's justice, he told her. But my father felt that such a fine blade was wasted on a mere headsman. He gave Sir Ilion a new sword, and had ice melted down and reforged. There was enough metal for two new blades. You're holding one. So you'll be defending Ned Stark's daughter with Ned Stark's own steel, if that makes any difference to you. Sir, I... I owe you an apology. He cut her off. Take the bloody sword and go, before I change my mind. 
There's a bay mare in the stables, as homely as you are, but somewhat better trained. Chase after steel shanks, search for Sansa, or ride home to your Isle of Sapphires. It's not to me. I don't want to look at you any more. Jamie, Kingslayer, he reminded her. Best use that sword to clean the wax out of your ears, wench. We're done. Stubbornly, she persisted. Joffrey was your, my king. Leave it at that. You say Sansa killed him? Why protect her? Because Joff was no more to me than a squirt of seed in Cersei's cunt, and because he deserved to die. I have made kings and unmade them. Sansa Stark is my last chance for honor. Jamie smiled thinly. Besides, kingslayers should band together. Are you ever going to go? Her big hand wrapped tight around Oathkeeper. I will. And I will find the girl and keep her safe, for her lady mother's sake, and for yours. She bowed stiffly, whirled, and went. Jamie sat alone at the table, while the shadows crept across the room. As dusk began to settle, he lit a candle and opened the white book to his own page. Quill and ink he found in a drawer. Beneath the last line Sir Barristan had entered, he wrote in an awkward hand that might have done credit to a six-year-old being taught his first letters by a maester. Defeated in the Whispering Wood by young wolf Rob Stark during the War of the Five Kings, held captive at River Run, and ransom for a promise unfulfilled, captured again by the brave companions, and maimed at the word of Vargo Hoot, their captain, losing his sword hand to the blade of Zolo, the fat, return safely to King's Landing by Brian, the maid of Tath. When he was done, more than three quarters of his page still remained to be filled between the gold lion on the crimson shield on top and the blank white shield at the bottom. Sir Gerald Hightower had begun his history, and Sir Barristan Selmy had continued it. But the rest Jamie Lannister would need to write for himself. He could write whatever he chose henceforth. Whatever he chose. John The wind was blowing wild from the east. So strong the heavy cage would rock whenever a gust gutted in its teeth. It scurled along the wall, shivering off the ice, making John's cloak flap against the bars. The sky was slate grey. The sun, no more than a faint patch of brightness behind the clouds. Across the killing ground, he could see the glimmer of a thousand campfires burning. But their light seemed small and powerless against such gloom and cold. A grim day. 
Jon Snow wrapped gloved hands around the bars and held tight as the wind hammered at the cage once more. When he looked straight down past his feet, the ground was lost in shadow, as if he were being lowered into some bottomless pit. Well, death is a bottomless pit, of sorts, he reflected, and when this day's work is done, my name will be shadowed forever. Bastard children were born from lust and lies, men said. Their nature was wanton and treacherous. Once John had meant to prove them wrong, to show his lord father that he could be as good and true a son as Rob. I made a botch of that. Rob had become a hero king. If John was remembered at all, it would be as a turncloak, an oathbreaker, and a murderer. He was glad that Lord Eddard was not alive to see his shame. I should have stayed in that cave with regret. If there was a life beyond this one, he hoped to tell her that. She will claw my face the way the eagle did and curse me for a coward, but I'll tell her all the same. He flexed his sword hand as Maester Eamon had taught him. The habit had become part of him, and he would need his fingers to be limber to have even half a chance of murdering Mance Raider. They had pulled him out this morning, after four days in the ice, locked up in a cell five by five by five, too low for him to stand, too tight for him to stretch out on his back. The stewards had long ago discovered that food and meat kept longer in the icy storerooms carved from the base of the wall, but prisoners did not. You will die in here, Lord Snow, Sir Alistair had said just before he closed the heavy wooden door, and John had believed it. But this morning they had come and pulled him out again, and marched him, cramped and shivering, back to the King's Tower, to stand before jowly Jaina Slint once more. That old meester says I cannot hang you, Slint declared. He has written Cutter Pike, and even had the bloody gall to show me the letter. He says you are no turncloak. Eamon's lived too long, my lord, Sir Alistair assured him. His wits have gone dark as his eyes. Aye, Slint said, a blind man with a chain about his neck. Who does he think he is? Eamon Targaryen. John thought. A king's son, and a king's brother, and a king who might have been. But he said nothing. Still, Slint said, I will not have it said that Gina Slint hanged a man unjustly. I will not. I have decided to give you one last chance to prove you are as loyal as you claim, Lord Snow. One last chance to do your duty, yes? He stood. Mance Reader wants to parley with us. He knows he has no chance, now that Gina Slint has come, so he wants to talk. This king beyond the wall. But the man is craven, and he will not come to us. No doubt he knows I'll hang him. Hang him by his feet, from the top of the wall on a rope two hundred feet long. But he will not come. He asks that we send an envoy to him. We're sending you. Lord Snow, Sir Alistair smiled. Me? John's voice was flat. Why me? You rode with his wildlings, said Thorn. Mance Raider knows you. 
he will be more inclined to trust you. That was so wrong, John might have laughed. You've got it backwards. Man suspected me from the first. If I showed up in his camp, wearing a black cloak again, and speaking for the night's watch, he'll know that I betrayed him. He asked for an envoy. We're sending one, said Slint. If you are too craven to face this turncloak king, we can return you to your ice cell. This time without the furs, I think. Yes? No need for that, my lord, said Sir Alistair. Lord Snow will do as we ask. He wants to show us that he's no turncloak. He wants to prove himself a loyal man of the Night's Watch. Thorn was much the more clever of the two, John realized. This had his stink all over it. He was trapped. I'll go, he said, in a clipped, curt voice. My lord, Jana Slint reminded him, you'll address me. I'll go, my lord. But you are making a mistake, my lord. You are sending the wrong man, my lord. Just the sight of me is going to anger Mance. My lord would have a better chance of reaching terms if he sent... Terms? Sir Alistair chuckled. Jana Slint does not make terms with lawless savages, Lord Snow. No, he does not. We're not sending you to talk with Mance Raider, Sir Alistair said. We're sending you to kill him. The wind whistled through the bars, and Jon Snow shivered. His leg was throbbing, and his head. He was not fit to kill a kitten, yet here he was. The trap had teeth. With Maester Eamon insisting on Jon's innocence, Lord Janus had not dared to leave him in the ice to die. This was better. Our honour means no more than our lives, so long as the realm is safe, Karn Halfhand had said in the Frostfangs. He must remember that. Whether he slew Mance, or only tried and failed, the free folk would kill him. Even desertion was impossible, if he'd been so inclined. To Mance he was a proven liar and betrayer. When the cage jerked to a halt, John swung down onto the ground and rattled Longclaw's hilt to loosen the bastard blade in its scabbard. The gate was a few yards to his left, still blocked by the splintered ruins of the turtle, the carcass of a mammoth ripening within. There were other corpses, too, strewn amidst broken barrels, hardened pitch, and patches of burnt grass, all shadowed by the wall. John had no wish to linger here. He started walking toward the wilding camp, past the body of a dead giant whose head had been crushed by a stone. A raven was pulling out bits of brain from the giant's shattered skull. It looked up as he walked by. Snow! It screamed at him. Snow! Snow! Then it opened its wings and flew away. No sooner had he started out than a lone rider emerged from the wilding camp and came toward him. He wondered if Mance was coming out to parley in no man's land. That might make it easier, though nothing will make it easy. But as the distance between them diminished, John saw that the horseman was short and broad, with gold rings glinting on thick arms and a white beard spreading out across his massive chest. Har! Tormund boomed when they came together. 
Jon Snow, the crow. I feared we'd seen the last of you. I never knew you feared anything, Torment. That made the wilding grin. Well said, lad. I see your cloak is black. Mance won't like that. If you've come to change sides again, best climb back on that wall of yours. They've sent me to treat with the king beyond the wall. Treat! Torman laughed. No, there's a word. <laughs> Mance wants to talk. That's true enough. Can't say he want to talk with you, though. I'm the one they've sent. I see that. Best come along, then. You want to ride? I can walk. Your fort is hard here. Torman turned his garron back towards the wilding camp. You and your brothers, I'll give you that. Two hundred dead and a dozen giants. Mag himself went in that gate of yours and never did come out. He died on the sword of a brave man named Donald Noy. Aye, some great lord was he, there's Donald Noy, one of your shiny knights in their steel small clothes. A blacksmith. He only had one arm. A one-armed smith slew Mag the Mighty? <laughs> that must have been a fight to see. Mance will make a song of it, see if he don't. Torman took a water-skin off his saddle and pulled the cork. This will warm us some. To Donald Noy and Mag the Mighty. He took a swig and handed it down to John. To Donald Noy and Mag the Mighty. The skin was full of mead, but a mead so potent that it made John's eyes water and sent tendrils of fire snaking through his chest. After the ice cell and the cold ride down in the cage, the warmth was welcome. Tormund took the skin back and downed another swig, then wiped his mouth. The Magnar of Sen swore to us that he'd have the gate wide open, so all we'd need to do was stroll through singing. He was going to bring the whole wall down. He brought down part, said John, on his head. Ha <laughs> ha! said Tormund. Well, I never had much use for stir. When a man's got no beard, no hair, no ears, you can't get a good grip on him when you fight. He kept his horse at a slow walk, so John could limp beside him. What happened to that leg? An arrow. One of regrets, I think. That's a woman for you. One day she's kissing you, the next she's filling you with arrows. She's dead. Aye? Torman gave a sad shake of the head. A waste. If I'd been ten years younger, I'd have stolen her myself. That air she had. Oh, well, the hottest fires burn out quickest. He lifted the skin of mead. To regret. Kiss by fire. He drank deep. To regret. Kiss by fire. John repeated when Torman handed him back the skin. He drank even deeper. Was it you? Killed her. My brother. John had never learned which one, and hoped he never would. You bloody crows. Torman's tone was gruff, yet strangely gentle. That long spear stole me daughter, Munda, me little autumn apple, took her right out of my tent, with all four of her brothers about. Toreg slept through it, the great lout, and Torwin well. Tall in the tame, that says all it needs saying, don't it? The young ones 
Gave the lad a fight, though. And Munda? asked John. She's me own blood, said Tormon proudly. She broke his lip for him and bit one ear half off, and I hear he's got so many scratches on his back he can't wear a cloak. She likes him well enough, though. And why not? He don't fight with no spear, you know. Never has. So where do you think he got that name, eh? John had to laugh. Even now, even here. Egret had been fond of Longspear Rick. He hoped he'd found some joy with Tormund's munder. Someone needed to find some joy somewhere. You know nothing, Jon Snow, Egret would have told him. I know that I'm going to die, he thought. I know that much at least. All men die, he could almost hear her say. And women too, and every beast that flies, or swims, or runs. It's not the when of dying that matters. It's the how of it, Jon Snow. Easy for you to say, he thought back. You died brave in battle, storming the castle of a foe. I'm going to die a turncloak and a killer. Nor would his death be quick, unless it came on the end of Mansa's sword. Soon they were among the tents. It was the usual wilding camp. A sprawling jumble of cook fires and piss pits, children and goats wandering freely, sheep bleating among the trees, horse hides pegged up to dry. There was no plan to it, no order, no defences, but there were men and women and animals everywhere. Many ignored him, but for everyone who went about his business, there were ten who stopped to stare. Children squatting by the fires, old women in dog carts, cave-dwellers with painted faces, raiders with claws and snakes and severed heads painted on their shields, all turned to have a look. John saw spare wives, too, their long hair streaming in the piney wind that sighed between the trees. There were no true hills here, but Mance Raider's white fur tent had been raised on a spot of high stony ground right on the edge of the trees. The king beyond the wall was waiting outside, his ragged red and black cloak blowing in the wind. Harmer Dogshead was with him, John saw, back from her raids and faints along the wall, and Varamir Sixkins as well, attended by his shadow cat and two lean grey wolves. When they saw who the watch had sent, Harmer turned her head and spat, and one of Varamir's wolves bared its teeth and growled. You must be very brave or very stupid, Jon Snow, Mansraider said, to come back to us wearing a black cloak. What else would a man of the Night's Watch wear? Kill him, urged Harmer. Send his body back up in that cage of theirs, and tell them to send us someone else. I'll keep his head for my standard. A turncoat's worse than a dog. I warned you he was false. Vadimir's tone was mild, but his shadow cat was staring at John hungrily through slitted grey eyes. I never did like the smell of him. Pull in your claws, beastling! Tormund Giantsbane swung down off his horse. The lad's here to hear. You lay a paw on him. Might be I'll take that shadow-skin cloak I've been wanting. Tormund Crow-lover, Harmer sneered. 
You are a great sack of wind, old man. The skin changer was grey-faced, round-shouldered, and bald, a mass of a man with a wolfling's eyes. Once a horse is broken to the saddle, any man can mount him, he said in a soft voice. Once a beast been joined to a man, any skin changer can slip inside and ride him. Orel was withering inside his feathers, so I took the eagle for my own. But the joining works both ways, Wag. Orel lives inside me now, whispering how much he hates you, and I can soar above the wall and see with eagle eyes. So we know, said Mance, we know how few you were when you stopped the turtle. We know how many came from Eastwatch. We know how your supplies have dwindled. Pitch, oil, arrows, spears, even your stare is gone. And that cage can only lift so many. We know. And now you know we know. He opened the flap of his tent. Come inside. The rest of you, wait here. What even me? said Tolman. Particularly you, always. It was warm within. A small fire burned beneath the smoke holes, and a brazier smouldered near the pile of furs, where Dala lay, pale and sweating. Her sister was holding her hand. Val, John remembered. I was sorry when Jarl fell, he told her. Val looked at him with pale grey eyes. He always climbed too fast. She was as fair as he remembered. Slender, full-breasted, graceful, even at rest, with high, sharp cheekbones and a thick braid of honey-coloured hair that fell to her waist. Dallas' time is near, Mance explained. She and Val will stay. They know what I mean to say. John kept his face as still as ice. Foul enough to slay a man in his own tent under truce. Must I murder him? in front of his wife as their child is being born. He closed the fingers of his sword hand. Mance was not wearing armour, but his own sword was sheathed on his left hip. And there were other weapons in the tent, daggers and dirks, a bow and a quiver of arrows, a bronze-headed spear lying beside that big black horn. John sucked in his breath. A war-horn, a bloody great war-horn. Yes, man said, the horn of winter that Joraman once blew to wake giants from the earth. The horn was huge, eight feet along the curve and so wide at the mouth that he could have put his arm inside up to the elbow. If this came from an oryx, it was the biggest that ever lived. At first he thought the bands around it were bronze, but when he moved closer he realized they were gold. Old gold more brown than yellow, and graven with runes. Egret said you never found the horn. Did you think only crows could lie? <laughs> I liked you well enough for a bastard, but I never trusted you. A man needs to earn my trust. John faced him. If you've had the horn of Joraman all along, why haven't you used it? Why bother building turtles and sending thens to kill us in our beds? If this horn is all the songs say, why not just sound it and be done? 
It was Darla who answered him. Darla, great with child, lying on her pile of furs beside the brazier. We free folk know things you kneelers have forgotten. Sometimes the short road is not the safest, John Snow. The Horn Lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. Mance ran a hand along the curve of the great horn. No man goes hunting with only one arrow in his quiver, he said. I had hoped that Stir and Jarl would take your brothers unawares and open the gate for us. I drew your garrison away with feints and raids and secondary attacks. Bormarsh swallowed that lure, as I knew he would, but your band of cripples and orphans proved to be more stubborn than anticipated. Don't think you've stopped us, though. The truth is, you are too few, and we are too many. I could continue the attack here, and still send ten thousand men to cross the Bay of Seals on rafts, and take Eastwatch from the rear. I could storm the Shadow Tower, too. I know the approaches as well as any man alive. I could send men and mammoths to dig out the gates of the castles you've abandoned, all of them at once. Why don't you, then? John could have drawn Longclaw then, but he wanted to hear what the wilding had to say. Blood, said Mans Raider. I'd win in the end, yes, but you'd bleed me, and my people have bled enough. Your losses haven't been that heavy. Not at your hands. Man studied John's face. You saw the fists of the first men. You know what happened there. You know what we are facing. The others? Yeah, they grow stronger as the days grow shorter and the nights colder. First they kill you. Then they send your dead against you. The giants have not been able to stand against them, nor the Thens, the Ice River clans, the Hornfoots. Nor you, nor me. There was anger in that admission, and bitterness too deep for words. Raymond Redbeard, Bale the Bard, Gendel and Gorn, the Horn Lord, they all came south to conquer. But I've come with my tail between my legs to hide behind your wall. He touched the horn again. If I sound the horn of winter, the wall will fall or so the songs would have me believe. There are those among my people who want nothing more. But once the wall is fallen, Dalla said, what will stop the others? Mans gave her a fond smile. It's a wise woman I found, a true queen. He turned back to John. Go back and tell them to open their gate and let us pass. If they do, I will give them the horn and the wall will stand until the end of days. Open the gate and let them pass. Easy to say, but what must follow? Giants camping in the ruins of Winterfell? Cannibals in the Wolfswood? Chariots sweeping across the Barrowlands? Free folk stealing daughters of shipwrights and silversmiths from White Harbour? And fishwives off the stony shore? Are you a true king? John asked suddenly. I've never had a crown on my head or sat my ass on a bloody throne, if that's what you're asking, Mance replied. 
my birth is as low as a man's can get. No septons ever smeared my head with oils. I don't own any castles, and my queen wears furs and amber, not silk and sapphires. I am my own champion, my own fool, and my own harpist. You don't become king beyond the wall because your father was. The fee folk won't follow a name, and they don't care which brother was born first. They follow fighters. When I left the Shadow Tower, there were five men making noises about how they might be the stuff of kings. Tormund was one, the Magnar another. The other three I slew. When they made it plain, they'd sooner fight than follow. You can kill your enemies, John said bluntly, but can you rule your friends? If we let your people pass, are you strong enough to make them keep the king's peace and obey the laws? Whose laws? The laws of Winterfell and King's Landing? Mance laughed. When we want laws, we'll make our own. You can keep your king's justice, too, and your king's taxes. I'm offering you the horn, not our freedom. We will not kneel to you. What if we refuse the offer? John had no doubt that they would. The old bear might at least have listened, though he would have balked at the notion of letting thirty or forty thousand wildlings loose on the Seven Kingdoms. But Alistair Thorne and Jaina Slint would dismiss the notion out of hand. If you refuse, Mance Raider said, Tormund Jainsbane will sound the horn of winter three days hence, at dawn. He could carry the message back to Castle Black and tell them of the horn, but if he left man still alive, Lord Janus and Sir Alistair would seize on that as proof that he was a turncloak. A thousand thoughts flickered through John's head. If I can destroy the horn, smash it here and now. But before he could begin to think that through, he heard the low moan of some other horn, made faint by the tent's hide walls. Mans heard it too. Frowning, he went to the door. John followed. The war horn was louder outside. Its call had stirred the wildling camp. Three hornfoot men jogged past, carrying long spears. Horses were whinnying and snorting, giants roaring in the old tongue, and even the mammoths were restless. Outriders horn, Tormund told Mance. Something's coming. Varamir sat cross-legged on the half-frozen ground. His wolves circled restlessly around him. A shadow swept over him, and John looked up to see the eagle's blue-gray wings. Coming from the east. When the dead walk, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing, he remembered. You cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half so well as me. Harmer scowled. East, the white should be behind us. East, the skin changer repeated. Something's coming. The others, John asked. Mance shook his head. The others never come when the sun is up. Chariots were rattling across the killing ground, jammed with riders waving spears of sharpened bone. The king groaned. Where the bloody hell do they think they're going? Quen, get those fools back where they belong. Someone bring me horse. The mare, not the stallion. I'll want me armor, too. 
Mance glanced suspiciously at the wall. Atop the ice of parapets, the straw soldiers stood collecting arrows, but there was no sign of any other activity. Hammer! Mount up your raiders! Tormund! Find your sons, and give me a triple line of spears! Aye, said Tormund, striding off. The mousy little skin-changer closed his eyes and said, I see them. They're coming along the streams and game trails. Who? Men. Men on horses, men in steel, and men in black. Crows! Mans made the word a curse. He turned on John. Did my old brothers think they'd catch me with me britches down if they attacked while we were talking? If they planned an attack, they never told me about it. John did not believe it. Lord Janus lacked the men to attack the wilding camp. Besides, he was on the wrong side of the wall, and the gate was sealed with rubble. He had a different sort of treachery in mind. This can't be his work. If you're lying to me again, you won't be leaving here alive, Mance warned. His guards brought him his horse and armor. Elsewhere around the camp, John saw people running at cross-purposes, some men forming up as if to storm the wall, while others slipped into the woods, women driving dog-carts east, mammoths wandering west. He reached back over his shoulder and drew Longclaw, just as a thin line of rangers emerged from the fringes of the wood three hundred yards away. They wore black mail, black half-helms, and black cloaks. Half-armoured, Mance drew his sword. "'Ye knew nothing of this, did ye?' he said to John coldly. Slow as honey on a cold morning, the rangers swept down on the wilding camp, picking their way through clumps of gorse and stands of trees over roots and rocks. Wildlings flew to meet them, shouting war cries and waving clubs and bronze swords and axes made of flint, galloping headlong at their ancient enemies. A shout, a slash, and a fine brave death. John had heard brothers say of the free folk's way of fighting. "'Believe what you will,' John told the king beyond the wall, "'but I knew nothing of any attack.' Harmer thundered past before Mance could reply, riding at the head of thirty raiders. Her standard went before her, a dead dog impaled on a spear, raining blood at every stride. Mance watched as she smashed into the rangers. "'Might be you're telling it true,' he said. Those look like East Watchmen. Sailors on horses. Cutter Pike always had more guts than sense. He took the Lord of Bones at Longborough. He might have thought to do the same with me. If so, he's a fool. He doesn't have the man he— Mance! The shout came. It was a scout, bursting from the trees on a lathered horse. Mance! There's more! They're all around us! Iron men! Iron! A host of iron men! Cursing, Mance swung up into the saddle. Varamir, stay, and see that no harm comes to Dalla. The king beyond the wall pointed his sword at John. And keep a few extra eyes on this crow. If he runs, rip out his throat. Aye, I'll do that. The skin changer was a head shorter than John, slumped and soft. But that shadow cat could disembowel him with one paw. They're coming from the north, too, Varamir told Mance. You best go.
Mance donned his helm with its raven wings. His men were mounted up as well. Arrowhead! Mance snapped. To me! Form wedge! Yet when he slammed his heels into the mare and flew across the field at the rangers, the men who raced to catch him lost all semblance of formation. John took a step toward the tent, thinking of the horn of winter, but the shadow cat blocked him, tail lashing. The beast's nostrils flared, and Slaver ran from his curved front teeth. He smells my fear. He missed Ghost more than ever then. The two wolves were behind him, growling. Banners, he heard Varamir murmur. I see golden banners, ooh. A mammoth lumbered by, trumpeting, a half-dozen bowmen in the wooden tower on its back. The king, no. Then the skin-changer threw back his head and screamed. The sound was shocking, ear-piercing, thick with agony. Varamir fell, writhing, and the cat was screaming too. And high, high in the eastern sky, against the wall of cloud, John saw the eagle burning. For a heartbeat it flamed brighter than a star, wreathed in red and gold and orange, its wings beating wildly at the air, as if it could fly from the pain. Higher it flew, and higher and higher still. The scream brought Val out of the tent, white-faced. What is it? What's happened? Varamir's wolves were fighting each other, and the shadow cat had raced off into the trees, but the man was still twisting on the ground. What's wrong with him? Val demanded, horrified. Where's Mance? There, John pointed, gone to fight. The king led his ragged wedge into a knot of rangers, his sword flashing. Gone? He can't be gone, not now. It started. The battle? He watched the rangers scatter before Harmer's bloody dog's head. The raiders screamed and hacked and chased the men in black back into the trees. But there were more men coming from the wood, a column of horse. Knights on heavy horse, John saw. Harmer had to regroup and wheel to meet them, but half of her men had raced too far ahead. The birth! Val was shouting at him. Trumpets were blowing all around, loud and brazen. The wildlings have no trumpets, only war horns. They knew that as well as he did. The sound sent free folk running in confusion, some toward the fighting, others away. A mammoth was stumping through a flock of sheep that three men were trying to herd off west. The drums were beating as the wildlings ran to form squares and lines, but they were too late, too disorganized, too slow. The enemy was emerging from the forest, from the east, the northeast, the north, three great columns of heavy horse, all dark glinting steel and bright wool surcoats. Not the men of Eastwatch. Those had been no more than a line of scouts, an army, the king. John was as confused as the wildlings. Could Rob have returned? Had the boy on the Iron Throne finally bestirred himself? You'd best get back inside the tent, he told Val. Across the field one column had washed over Harmer Dog's head. Another smashed into the flank of Tormund's spearmen as he and his sons desperately tried to turn them. The giants were climbing onto their mammoths, though, and the knights on their barded horses did not like that at all. 
He could see how the coarsers and destriers screamed and scattered at the sight of those lumbering mountains. But there was fear on the wilding side as well. Hundreds of women and children rushing away from the battle, some of them blundering right under the hooves of garrons. He saw an old woman's dog-cart veer into the path of three chariots to send them crashing into each other. Guards, Val whispered, guards, why are they doing this? Go inside the tent and stay with Darla. It's not safe out here. It wouldn't be a great deal safer inside, but she didn't need to hear that. I need to find the midwife, Val said. You're the midwife. I'll stay here until Mance comes back. He had lost sight of Mance, but now he found him again, cutting his way through a knot of mounted men. The mammoths had shattered the center column, but the other two were closing like pincers. On the eastern edge of the camps, some archers were loosing fire arrows at the tents. He saw a mammoth pluck a knight from his saddle and fling him forty feet with a flick of his trunk. Wildlings streamed past, women and children running from the battle, some with men hurrying them along. A few of them gave John dark looks, but Longclaw was in his hand, and no one troubled him. Even Varamir fled, crawling off on his hands and knees. More and more men were pouring from the trees, not only knights now, but free riders and mounted bowmen and men-at-arms in jacks and kettle-helms, dozens of men, hundreds of men. A blaze of banners flew above them. The wind was whipping them too wildly for John to see the sigils, but he glimpsed a seahorse, a field of birds, a ring of flowers, and yellow, so much yellow, yellow banners with a red device. Whose arms were those? East and north and northeast, he saw bands of wildlings trying to stand and fight, but the attackers rode right over them. The free folk still had the numbers, but the attackers had steel armor and heavy horses. In the thickest part of the fray, John saw Mance standing tall in his stirrups. His red and black cloak and raven-winged helm made him easy to pick out. He had his sword raised, and men were rallying to him, when a wedge of knights smashed into them with lance and sword and long axe. Mance's mare went up on her hind legs, kicking, and a spear took her through the breast. Then the steel tide washed over him. It's done, John thought. They're breaking. The wildlings were running, throwing down their weapons. Horn-footmen and cave-dwellers and thens in bronze scales, they were running. Mance was gone. Someone was waving Harmer's head on a pole. Tormund's lines had broken. Only the giants on the mammoths were holding. Hairy islands in a red steel sea. The fires were leaping from tent to tent, and some of the tall pines were going up as well and through the smoke another wedge of armoured riders came, unbarded horses. Floating above them were the largest banners yet, royal standards as big as sheets, a yellow one with long-pointed tongues that showed a flaming heart, and another like a sheet of beaten gold with a black stag prancing and rippling in the wind. Robert, John thought for one mad moment, remembering poor Owen, but when the trumpets blew again and the knights charged, the name they cried was, Stannis! 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 John turned away and went inside the tent. Aria Outside the inn, on a weathered gibbet, 
a woman's bones were twisting and rattling at every gust of wind. I know this inn. There hadn't been a gibbet outside the door when she had slept here with her sister Sansa under the watchful eye of Septimordain, though. We don't want to go in, Arya decided suddenly. There might be ghosts. You know how long it's been since I had a cup of wine? Sandor swung down from the saddle. Besides, we need to learn who holds the ruby ford. Stay with the horses if you want. It's no hair off my arse. What if they know you? Sandor no longer troubled to hide his face. He no longer seemed to care who knew him. They might want to take you captive. Let them try. He loosened his long sword in its scabbard and pushed through the door. Arya would never have a better chance to escape. She could ride off on Craven and take Stranger, too. She chewed her lip. Then she led the horses to the stables and went in after him. They know him. The silence told her that. But that wasn't the worst thing. She knew them, too. Not the skinny innkeep, nor the women, nor the field hands by the hearth, but the others, the soldiers. She knew the soldiers. Look in for your brother, Sandor. Polliver's hand was down the bodice of the girl on his lap, but now he slid it out. Look in for a cup of wine. Innkeep, a flag and a red. Clegane threw a handful of cuppers on the floor. "'I don't want no trouble, sir,' the innkeeper said. "'Then don't call me, sir!' His mouth twitched. "'Are you deaf, fool? I ordered wine!' As the man ran off, Clegane shouted after him. Two cups! The girl's thirsty, too!' "'There are only three, Arya thought. Polliver gave her a fleeting glance, and the boy beside him never looked at her at all, but the third one gazed long and hard. He was a man of middling height and build, with a face so ordinary that it was hard to say how old he was. The Tickler. The Tickler and Polliver both. The boy was a squire, judging by his age and dress. He had a big white pimple on one side of his nose, and some red ones on his forehead. Is this the lost poppy Sir Gregor spoke of? he asked the tickler, the one who piddled in the rushes and ran off. The tickler put a warning hand on the boy's arm and gave a short, sharp shake of his head. Arya read that plain enough. The squire didn't, or else he didn't care. Sir said his puppy brother tucked his tail between his legs when the battle got too warm at King's Landing. He said he ran off, whimpering. He gave the hound a stupid, mocking grin. Clegane studied the boy, and never said a word. Polliver shoved the girl off his lap and got to his feet. The large drunk, he said. The man-at-arms was almost as tall as the hound, though not so heavily muscled. A spade-shaped beard covered his jaw and jowls, thick and black and neatly trimmed, but his head was more bald than not. He can't hold his wine, is all. Then he shouldn't drink. The puppy doesn't scare, the boy began, till the tickler casually twisted his ear between thumb and forefinger. The words became a squeal of pain. The innkeep came scurrying back with two stone cups and a flagon on a pewter platter. Sandor lifted the flagon to his mouth. Arya could see the muscles in his neck working as he gulped. When he slammed it back down on the table, 
Half the wine was gone. Now you can pour. Best pick up those cuppers, too. It's the only coin you'll like to see today. We'll pay when we've done drinking, said Polliver. When you're done drinking, you'll tickle the innkeep to see where he keeps his gold, the way you always do. The innkeep suddenly remembered something in the kitchen. The locals were leaving, too, and the girls were gone. The only sound in the common room was the faint crackling of the fire in the hearth. We should go, too, Arya knew. If you're looking for Sir, you've come too late, Polliver said. He was at Harrenhal, but now he's not. The Queen sent for him. He wore three blades on his belt, Arya saw, a long sword on his left hip, and on his right a dagger and a slimmer blade, too long to be a dirk and too short to be a sword. King Joffrey's dead, you know, he added, poisoned at his own wedding feast. Arya edged further into the room. Joffrey's dead. She could almost see him with his blonde curls and his mean smile and his fat, soft lips. Joffrey's dead? She knew it ought to make her happy, but somehow she still felt empty inside. Joffrey was dead, but if Rob was dead too, what did it matter? So much for my brave brothers of the King's Guard. The hound gave a snort of contempt. Who killed him? The imp, it's thought. Him and his little wife. What wife? Oh, I forgot you've been hiding under a rock. The northern girl, Winterfell's daughter. We heard she killed the king with a spell, and afterward changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat, and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind, and Cersei means to have his head. That's stupid, Arya thought. Sansa only knows songs, not spells, and she'd never marry the imp. The hound sat on the bench closest to the door. His mouth twitched, but only the burn side. She ought to dip him in wildfire and cook him, or tickle him till the moon turns black. He raised his wine cup and drained it straight away. He's one of them, Arya thought when she saw that. She bit her lip so hard she tasted blood. He's just like they are. I should kill him when he sleeps. So, Gregor took Harrenhal, Sander said. Didn't require much taking, said Polliver. The cell swords fled as soon as they knew we were coming, all but a few. One of the kooks opened a Boston gate for us to get back at Hoot for cutting off his foot. He chuckled. We kept him to cook for us, a couple of wenches to warm our beds, and put all the rest to the sword. All the rest? Arya blurted out. Well, sir kept hope to pass the time. Sander said, The blackfish is still in River Run? Not for long, said Polliver. He's under siege. Old Frey's going to hang Edmure Tully unless he yields the castle. The only real fighting's around Raven Tree, Blackwoods, and Brackens. The Brackens are ours now. The hound poured a cup of wine for Arya and another for himself, and drank it down while staring at the hearth fire. The little bird flew away, did she? Well, bloody good for her. She shit on the imp's head and flew off. They'll find her, said Polliver. 
if it takes half the gold in Castle Rook. A pretty girl, I hear, said the tickler. Honey sweet. He smacked his lips and smiled. And courteous, the hound agreed. A proper little lady, not like her bloody sister. They found her, too, said Poliver. The sister. She's for Bolton's bastard, I hear. Aria sipped her wine so they could not see her mouth. She didn't understand what Poliver was talking about. Sansa has no other sister? Sandor Clegane laughed aloud. What's so bloody funny? asked Poliver. The hound never flicked an eye at Arya. If I'd wanted you to know, I'd have told you. Are there ships at Saltpans? Saltpans? How should I know? The traders are back at Maidenpool, I heard. Randall Tarley took the castle and locked Mooton in a tower cell. I haven't heard shit about salt pans. The tickler leaned forward. Would you put to sea without bidding farewell to your brother? It gave Arya chills to hear him ask a question. Sir, would sooner you return to Harrenhal with us, Sander? <laughs> I bet he would. <laughs> or King's Landing. Bugger that. Bugger him. Bugger you! The tickler shrugged, straightened, and reached a hand behind his head to rub the back of his neck. Everything seemed to happen at once then. Sander lurched to his feet. Poliver drew his longsword, and the tickler's hand whipped around in a blur to send something silver flashing across the common room. If the hound had not been moving, the knife might have cored the apple of his throat. Instead, it only grazed his ribs and wound up quivering in the wall near the door. He laughed then, a laugh as cold and hollow as if it had come from the bottom of a deep well. I was hoping you'd do something stupid. His sword slid from its scabbard just in time to knock aside Poliver's first cut. Arya took a step backward as the long steel song began. The tickler came off the bench with a short sword in one hand and a dagger in the other. Even the chunky brown-haired squire was up, fumbling for his sword hilt. She snatched her wine cup off the table and threw it at his face. Her aim was better than it had been at the twins. The cup hit him right on his big white pimple, and he went down hard on his tail. Poliver was a grim, methodical fighter, and he pressed Sandor steadily backward, his heavy longsword moving with brutal precision. The hound's own cuts were sloppier. His parries rushed, his feet slow and clumsy. He's drunk, Arya realized with dismay. He drank too much too fast, with no food in his belly, and the tickler was sliding around the wall to get behind him. She grabbed the second wine cup and flung it at him, but he was quicker than the squire had been and ducked his head in time. The look he gave her then was cold with promise. Is there gold hidden in the village? She could hear him ask. The stupid squire was clutching the edge of a table and pulling himself to his knees. Arya could taste the beginnings of panic in the back of her throat. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Fear cuts deeper. Sander gave a grunt of pain. The burned side of his face ran red from temple to cheek, and the stub of his ear was gone. That seemed to make him angry. He drove Poliver back with a furious attack, hammering at him with the old Nick longsword he had swapped for in the hills. The bearded man gave way, but none of the cuts so much as touched him. And then the tickler leapt over a bench quick as a snake and slashed at the back of the hound's neck with the edge of his short sword. 
They're killing him. Ari had no more cups, but there was something better to throw. She drew the dagger they'd robbed off the dying archer and tried to fling it at the tickler the way he'd done. It wasn't the same as throwing a rock or a crab apple, though. The knife wobbled and hit him in the arm, hilt first. He never even felt it. He was too intent on Clegane. As he stabbed, Clegane twisted violently aside, winning himself half a heartbeat's respite. Blood ran down his face and from the gash in his neck. Both of the mountain's men came after him hard, Polliver hacking at his head and shoulders while the tickler darted in to stab at back and belly. The heavy stone flagon was still on the table. Aria grabbed it with both hands. But as she lifted it, someone grabbed her arm. The flagon slipped from her fingers and crashed to the floor. Wrenched around, she found herself nose to nose with a squire. You stupid! You forgot all about him. His big white pimple had burst, she saw. Are you the puppy's puppy? He had his sword in his right hand and her arm in his left. But her own hands were free, so she jerked his knife from its sheath and sheathed it again in his belly, twisting. He wasn't wearing mail or even boiled leather, so it went right in, the same way Needle had when she killed the stable boy at King's Landing. The squire's eyes got big, and he let go of her arm. Arya spun to the door and wrenched the tickler's knife from the wall. Polliver and the tickler had driven the hound into a corner behind a bench, and one of them had given him an ugly red gash on his upper thigh to go with his other wounds. Sandor was leaning against the wall, bleeding and breathing noisily. He looked as though he could barely stand, let alone fight. "'Throw down the sword, and we'll take you back to Harrenhal,' Polliver told him. "'So Gregor can finish me himself?' The tickler said, "'Maybe he'll give you to me. "'If you want me, come and get me.' Sandor pushed away from the wall and stood in a half-crouch behind the bench, his sword held across his body. "'You think we won't?' said Polliver. "'You're drunk.' "'Might be.' said the hound, but you're dead. His foot lashed out and caught the bench, driving it hard into Polliver's shins. Somehow the bearded man kept his feet, but the hound ducked under his wild slash and brought his own sword up in a vicious backhand cut. Blood spattered on the ceiling and walls, the blade caught in the middle of Polliver's face, and when the hound wrenched it loose, half his head came with it. The tickler backed away. Aria could smell his fear. The short sword in his hand seemed almost a toy against the long blade the hound was holding, and he wasn't armoured either. He moved swiftly, light on his feet, never taking his eyes off Sandor Clegane. It was the easiest thing in the world for Arya to step up behind him and stab him. "'Is there gold hidden in the village?' she shouted as she drove the blade up through his back. "'Is there silver? Gems?' she stabbed twice more. "'Is there food? Where is Lord Berwick?' "'She was on top of him by then, still stabbing. "'Where did he go? How many men were with him? "'How many knights? How many bowmen? "'How many? How many? How many? How many? How many? How many? "'Is there gold in the village?' "'Her hands were red and sticky when Sandor dragged her off him. "'Enough,' was all he said. "'He was bleeding like a butchered pig himself.' and dragging one leg when he walked. "'There's one more,' Arya reminded him. The squire had pulled the knife out of his belly and was trying to stop the blood with his hands. When the hound yanked him upright, he screamed, 
and started to blubber like a baby. Mercy, he wept. Please, don't kill me. Mother, have mercy. Do I look like your bloody mother? The hound looked like nothing human. You killed this one too, he told Arya. Pricked him in his bowels. That's the end of him. He'll be a long time dying, though. The boy didn't seem to hear him. I, I came for the girls, he whimpered. Make me a man, Polly said. Oh, God, please, take me to a castle, a maester. Take me to a maester. My father's got gold. It was only for the girls. Mercy, sir. The hound gave him a crack across the face that made him scream again. Don't call me, sir. He turned back to Arya. This one is yours, she-wolf. You do it. She knew what he meant. Arya went to Pulliver and knelt in his blood long enough to undo his sword belt. Hanging beside his dagger was a slimmer blade, too long to be a dirk, too short to be a man's sword, but it felt just right in her hand. You remember where the heart is? the hound asked. She nodded. The squire rolled his eyes. Mercy! Needle slipped between his ribs and gave it to him. Good! Sander's voice was thick with pain. If these three were hoarding here, Gregor must hold the fort as well as Aranel. More of his pets could ride up any moment, and we've killed enough of the bloody buggers for one day. Where will we go? she asked. Salt pans. He put a big hand on her shoulder to keep from falling. Get some wine, she-wolf, and take whatever coin they have as well. We'll need it. If there's ships at salt pans, we can reach the Vale by sea. His mouth twitched at her as more blood ran down from where his ear had been. Maybe Lady Lysart will marry you to a little rubbit. There's a match I'd like to see. He started to laugh, then groaned instead. When the time came to leave, he needed Arya's help to get back up on Stranger. He had tied a strip of cloth about his neck and another around his thigh, and taken the squire's cloak off its peg by the door. The cloak was green, with a green arrow and a white bend, but when the hound wadded it up and pressed it to his ear, it soon turned red. Arya was afraid he would collapse the moment they set out, but somehow he stayed in the saddle. They could not risk meeting whoever held the ruby ford, so instead of following the king's road, they angled south by east, through weedy fields, woods, and marshes. It was hours before they reached the banks of the Triton. The river had returned meekly to its accustomed channel, Arya saw. All its wet brown rage vanished with the rains. It's tired, too, she thought. Close by the water's edge, they found some willows, rising from a jumble of weathered rocks. Together the rocks and trees formed a sort of natural fort where they could hide from both river and trail. "'Here will do,' the hound said. "'Water the horses and gather some dead wood for a fire.' When he dismounted, he had to catch himself on a tree limb to keep from falling. "'Won't the smoke be seen? Anyone wants to find us, all they need to do is follow my blood.' Water and wood, but bring me that wineskin first. When he got the fire going, Sandor propped up his helm in the flames, emptied half the wineskin into it, and collapsed back against a jut of moss-covered stone 
as if he never meant to rise again. He made Arya wash out the squire's cloak and cut it into strips. Those went into his helm as well. If I had more wine, I'd drink till I was dead to the world. Maybe I ought to send you back to that bloody inn for another skin or three. No, Arya said. He wouldn't, would he? If he does, I'll just leave him and ride off. Sander laughed at the fear on her face. A jest, wolf girl, a bloody jest. Find me a stick, about so long, and not too big around, and wash the mud off it. I ate the taste of mud. He didn't like the first two sticks she brought him. By the time she found one that suited him, the flames had scorched his dog's snout black all the way to the eyes. Inside the wine was boiling madly. Get a cup for my bedroll and dip it half full, he told her. Be careful, you knock the damn thing over. I will send you back for more. Take the wine and pour it on my wounds. Think you can do that? Arya nodded. Then what are you waiting for? he growled. Her knuckles brushed the steel the first time she filled the cup, burning her so badly she got blisters. Arya had to bite her lip to keep from screaming. The hound used the stick for the same purpose, clamming it between his teeth as she poured. She did the gash in his thigh first, then the shallower cut on the back of his neck. Sandor coiled his right hand into a fist and beat against the ground when she did his leg. When it came to his neck, he bit the stick so hard it broke, and she had to find a new one. She could see the terror in his eyes. Turn your head. She trickled the wine down over the raw red flesh where his ear had been, and fingers of brown blood and red wine crept over his jaw. He did scream then, despite the stick. Then he passed out from the pain. Arya figured the rest out by herself. She fished the strips they'd made of the squire's cloak out of the bottom of the helm and used them to bind the cuts. When she came to his ear, she had to wrap up half his head to stop the bleeding. By then, dusk was settling over the trident. She let the horses graze, then hobbled them for the night, and made herself as comfortable as she could in a niche between two rocks. The fire burned a while and died. Arya watched the moon through the branches overhead. Sir Gregor the mountain, she said softly. Dunson. Raph the sweetling. Sir Ilian. Sir Mirren, Queen Circe. It made her feel queer to leave out Polliver and the Tickler, and Joffrey too. She was glad he was dead, but she wished she could have been there to see him die, or maybe kill him herself. Polliver said that Sansa killed him and the imp. Could that be true? The imp was a Lannister, and Sansa— I wish I could change into a wolf and grow wings and fly away. If Sansa was gone, too, there were no more Starks but her. John was on the wall a thousand leagues away, but he was a snow, and these different aunts and uncles the Hound wanted to sell her to, they weren't Starks either. They weren't wolves. Sandor moaned, and she rolled onto her side to look at him. She had left his name out, too, she realized. Why had she done that? She tried to think of Micah but it was hard to remember what he'd looked like. She hadn't known him long. All he ever did 
was play at swords with me? The hound, she whispered, and Valar Mogullus. Maybe he'd be dead by morning. But when the pale dawn light came filtering through the trees, it was him who woke her with the toe of his boot. She had dreamed she was a wolf again, chasing a riderless horse up a hill with a pack behind her. But his foot brought her back, just as they were closing for the kill. The hound was still weak, every movement slow and clumsy. He slumped in the saddle and sweated, and his ear began to bleed through the bandage. He needed all his strength just to keep from falling off stranger. Had the mountain's men come hunting them, she doubted if he would even be able to lift a sword. Arya glanced over her shoulder, but there was nothing behind them but a crow flitting from tree to tree. The only sound was the river. Long before noon, Sandor Clegane was reeling. There were hours of daylight still remaining when he called a halt. I need to rest, was all he said. This time, when he dismounted, he did fall. Instead of trying to get back up, he crawled weakly under a tree and leaned up against the trunk. Bloody hell, he cursed. Bloody hell. When he saw Arya staring at him, he said, I skin you alive for a cup of wine, girl. She brought him water instead. He drank a little of it, complained it tasted of mud, and slid into a noisy, fevered sleep. When she touched him, his skin was burning up. Arya sniffed at his bandages, the way Maester Lewin had done sometimes when treating her cut or scrape. His face had bled the worst, but it was the wound on his thigh that smelt funny to her. She wondered how far this salt pans was, and whether she could find it by herself. I wouldn't have to kill him. If I just rode off and left him, he'd die all by himself. He'll die of fever, and lie there beneath the tree until the end of days. But maybe it would be better if she killed him herself. She had killed the squire at the inn, and he hadn't done anything except grab her arm. The hound had killed Micah. Micah and more. Betty's killed a hundred Micahs. He probably would have killed her too, if not for the ransom. Needle glinted as she drew it. Poliver had kept it nice and sharp at least. She turned her body sideways in a water dancer's stance without even thinking about it. Dead leaves crunched beneath her feet. Quick as a snake, she thought. Smooth as summer silk. His eyes opened. You remember where the art is? he asked in a hoarse whisper. As still as stone she stood. I... I was only... Don't lie, he growled. I hate lies. I hate gutless frauds even worse. Go on, do it. When Arya did not move, he said, I killed your butcher's boy. I cut him near in half and laughed about it after. He made a queer sound, and it took her a moment to realize he was sobbing. And the little bird, your pretty sister, I stood there in my white cloak and let them beat her. I took the bloody song she never gave it. I meant to take her too, I should have. I should have plucked her bloody and ripped her out out before leaving her for that dwarf. 
A spasm of pain twisted his face. Do you mean to make me beg, bitch? Do it! The gift of mercy! Avenge a little Michael! Micah! Arya stepped away from him. You don't deserve the gift of mercy. The hound watched her saddle craven through eyes bright with fever. Not once did he attempt to rise and stop her, but when she mounted, he said, A real wolf would finish a wounded animal. Maybe some real wolves will find you, Arya thought. Maybe they'll smell you when the sun goes down. Then he would learn what wolves did to dogs. You shouldn't have hit me with that axe, she said. You should have saved my mother. She turned a horse and rode away from him, and never looked back once. On a bright morning, six days later, she came to a place where the triton began to widen out, and the air smelled more of salt than trees. She stayed close to the water, passing fields and farms, and a little after midday a town appeared before her. Salt pans, she hoped. A small castle dominated the town, no more than a holdfast, really, a single tall square keep with a bailey and a curtain wall. Most of the shops and inns and alehouses around the harbour had been plundered or burned, though some looked still inhabited. But the port was there, and eastward spread the Bay of Crabs, its waters shimmering blue and green in the sun. And there were ships. Three, Arya thought. There are three. Two were only river galleys, shallow draft boats made to ply the waters of the Trident. The third was bigger, a salt-sea trader, with two banks of oars, a gilded prow, and three tall masts with furled purple sails. Her hull was painted purple, too. Aya rode Craven down to the docks to get a better look. Strangers are not so strange in a port as they are in little villages, and no one seemed to care who she was or why she was here. I need silver. The realization made her bite her lip. They had found a stag and a dozen coppers on Polliver, eight silvers on the pimply squire she'd killed, and only a couple of pennies in the tickler's purse. But the hound had told her to pull off his boots and slice open his blood-drenched clothes, and she'd turned up a stag in each toe, and three golden dragons sewn in the lining of his jerkin. Sander had kept it all, though. That wasn't fair. It was mine as much as his. If she had given him the gift of mercy... She hadn't, though. She couldn't go back, no more than she could beg for help. Begging for help never gets you any. She would have to sell Craven, and hope she brought enough. The stable had been burned she learned from a boy by the docks. But the woman who'd owned it was still trading behind the sept. Arya found her easily, a big, robust woman with a good, horsey smell to her. She liked Craven at first look, asked Arya how she'd come by her, and grinned at her answer. She's a well-bred horse, that's plain enough, but I don't doubt she belonged to a knight, sweetling, she said. But the knight was no dead brother of yours. I've been dealing with a castle there many a year, so I know what gentle-born folk is like. This mare is well-bred, but you're not. She poked a finger at Arya's chest. Found her or stole her, 
Never mind which. That's how it was. Only way a scruffy little thing like you comes to ride a palfrey. Aria bit her lip. Does that mean you won't buy her? The woman chuckled. <laughs> it means you'll take what I give you, sweetling. Else we go down to the castle and maybe you'll get nothing. Or even hanged for stealing some good knight's horse. A half-dozen other salt-pans folk were around, going about their business, so Arya knew she couldn't kill the woman. Instead, she had to bite her lip and let herself be cheated. The purse she got was pitifully flat, and when she asked for more, for the saddle and bridle and blanket, the woman just laughed at her. She would never have cheated the hound, she thought, during the long walk back to the docks. The distance seemed to have grown by miles since she'd ridden it. The purple galley was still there. If the ship had sailed while she was being robbed, that would have been too much to bear. A cask of mead was being rolled up the plank when she arrived. When she tried to follow, a sailor up on deck shouted down at her in a tongue she did not know. "'I want to see the captain,' Arya told him. He only shouted louder, but the commotion drew the attention of a stout grey-haired man in a coat of purple wool, and he spoke the common tongue. "'I am captain here,' he said. "'What is your wish? Be quick, child. We have a tide to catch.' "'I want to go north, to the wall. Here I can pay.' She gave him the purse. "'The night's watch has a castle on the sea. East watch.' The captain spilled out the silver onto his palm and frowned. Is this all you have? It is not enough. Arya knew without being told. She could see it on his face. I wouldn't need a cabin or anything, she said. I could sleep down in the hold or... Take her on as cabin girl, said a passing oarsman, a bolt of wool over one shoulder. She can sleep with me. Mind your tongue, the captain snapped. I could work, said Arya. I could scrub the decks. I scrubbed a castle steps once, or I could row. No, he said. You couldn't. He gave her back the coins. It would make no difference if you could, child. The North has nothing for us. Ice and war and pirates. We saw a dozen pirate ships making north as we rounded Crackclaw Point, and I have no wish to meet them again. From here... We bend our oars for home, and I suggest you do the same. I have no home, Arya thought. I have no pack, and now I don't even have a horse. The captain was turning away when she said, What ship is this, my lord? He paused long enough to give her a weary smile. This is the Gallius, Titan's daughter, of the free city of Brevus. Wait. Arya said suddenly, I have something else. She had stuffed it down inside her small clothes to keep it safe, so she had to dig deep to find it, while the oarsman laughed and the captain lingered with obvious impatience. One more silver will make no difference, child, he finally said. It's not silver. Her fingers closed on it. It's iron, here. She pressed it into his hand, the small black iron coin that Jake and Hagar had given her. So worn, the man whose head it bore had no features. 
It's probably worthless, but... The captain turned it over and blinked at it, then looked at her again. This... How... Jenkins had to say the words, too. Aria crossed her arms against her chest. Velar Morgullus, she said, as loud as if she'd known what it meant. Velar Doheris, he replied, touching his brow with two fingers. Of course you shall have a cabin. Samwell He sucks harder than mine. Gilly stroked the babe's head as she held him to her nipple. He's hungry, said the blonde woman, Val, the one the Black Brothers called the Wilding Princess. He's lived on goat's milk up to nail, and potions from that blind maester. The boy did not have a name yet, no more than Gillies did. That was the Wilding way. Not even Mance Raider's son would get a name till his third year, it was him, though Sam had heard the brothers calling him the Little Prince and Born in Battle. He watched the child nurse at Gilly's breast, and then he watched John watch. John is smiling. A sad smile still, but definitely a smile of sorts. Sam was glad to see it. It is the first time I've seen him smile since I got back. They had walked from the night fort to Deep Lake, and from Deep Lake to Queensgate, following a narrow track from one castle to the next, never out of sight of the wall. A day and a half from Castle Black, as they trudged along on calloused feet, Gilly heard horses behind them, and turned to see a column of black riders coming from the west. "'My brothers,' Sam assured her, "'no one uses this road but the Night's Watch.' It had turned out to be Sir Dennis Malister, from the Shadow Tower, along with the wounded Bowen Marsh and the survivors from the fight at the Bridge of Skulls. When Sam saw Dywin, Giant, and Dolorous Ed Tullet, he broke down and wept. It was from them that he learned about the battle beneath the wall. Stannis landed his knights at East Watch, and Cotterpike led him along the ranger's roads to take the wildlings unawares, Giant told him. He smashed them. Mansraider was taken captive, a thousand of his best slain, including Harmer Dogshead. The rest scattered like leaves before a storm, we heard. The guards are good, Sam thought. If he had not gotten lost as he made his way south from Craster's Keep, he and Gilly might have walked right into the battle, or into Mance Raider's camp at the very least. That might have been well enough for Gilly and the boy, but not for him. Sam had heard all the stories about what wildlings did with captured crows. He shuddered. Nothing that his brothers told him prepared him for what he found at Castle Black, however. The common hall had burned to the ground, and the great wooden stair was a mound of broken ice and scorched timbers. Donald Noy was dead, along with Rast, Deaf Dick, Red Allen, and so many more, yet the castle was more crowded than Sam had ever seen. Not with black brothers, but with the king's soldiers, more than a thousand of them. There was a king in the king's tower for the first time in living memory, and banners flew from the lance, Harden's tower, the grey keep, the shield hall, and other buildings that had stood empty and abandoned for long years. The big one, 
the gold with a black stag, that's a royal standard of Alice Baratheon, he told Gilly, who had never seen banners before. The fox and flowers is House Florent, the turtle is Estermont, the swordfish is Bar Eamon, and the cross trumpets are for Wensington. They're all bright as flowers, Gilly pointed. I like those yellow ones with the fire. Look, and some of the fighters have the same thing on their blouses. A fiery art? I don't know whose sigil that is. He found out soon enough. Cool, Queen's men, Pip told him, after he let out a whoop and shouted, Run and bar the doors, lads, it's Sam the Slayer, come back from the grave. While Gren was hugging Sam so hard, he thought his ribs might break. But best you don't go asking where the Queen is. Stannis left her at Eastwatch, with her daughter and his fleet. He brought no woman, but the red one. The red one, said Sam uncertainly. Malisande of a shy, said Gren, the king's sorceress. They say she burned a man alive at Dragonstone, so Stannis would have favourable winds for his voyage north. She rode beside him in the battle, too, and gave him his magic sword, Lightbringer, they call it. Wait till you see it. It glows like it had a piece of sun inside it. He looked at Sam again and grinned a big, helpless, stupid grin. Oh, I, I, I still can't believe you're here. John Snow had smiled to see him too, but it was a tired smile, like the one he wore now. You made it back after all, he said, and brought Gilly out as well. You've done well, Sam. John had done more than well himself, to hear Gren tell it. Yet even capturing the Horn of Winter and a wildling prince had not been enough for Sir Alistair Thorne and his friends who still named him Turn Cloak. Though Maester Eamon said his wound was healing well, John bore other scars, deeper than the ones around his eye. He grieves for his wildling girl, and for his brothers. It's strange, he said to Sam. Craster had no love for Mance, nor Mance for Craster, but now Craster's daughter is feeding Mance's son. I have the milk, Gilly said her voice soft and shy. Mine only takes a little. He's not so greedy as this one. The wilding woman, Val, turned to face them. I've heard the Queen's men saying that the red woman means to give mens to the fire as soon as he's strong enough. John gave her a weary look. Mance is a deserter from the Night's Watch. The penalty for that is death. If the Watch had taken him, he would have been hanged by now but he's the king's captive, and no one knows the king's mind but the red woman. "'I want to see him,' Val said. "'I want to show him his son. He deserves that much before you kill him.' Sam tried to explain. "'No one is permitted to see him but Maester Eamon, my lady.' "'If it were in my power, Mance could hold his son.' John's smile was gone. "'I'm sorry, Val.' He turned away. Sam and I have duties to return to. Well, Sam does anyway. We'll ask about your seeing Mance. That's all I can promise. Sam lingered long enough to give Gilly's hand a squeeze and promised to return again after supper. Then he hurried after. There were guards outside the door, Queen's men with spears. John was halfway down the steps 
but he waited when he heard Sam puffing after him. You're more than fond of Gilly, aren't you? Sam reddened. Gilly's good. She's good and kind. He was glad that his long nightmare was done, glad to be back with his brothers at Castle Black. But some nights, alone in his cell, he thought of how warm Gilly had been when they curled up beneath the firs with a babe between them. She, uh, she made me braver, John. Not brave, but braver. You know you cannot keep her, John said gently. No more than I could stay with Egret. You said the word, Sam, the same as I did, the same as all of us. I know. Gilly said she'd be a wife to me, but I told her about the words and what they meant. I don't know if that made her sad or glad, but I told her. He swallowed nervously and said, John, could there be honour in a lie if it were told for a, a good purpose? It would depend on the lie and the purpose, I suppose. John looked at Sam. I wouldn't advise it. You're not made to lie, Sam. You blush and squeak and stammer. I do, said Sam. But I could lie in a letter. I'm better with a quill in hand. I had a... a thought. When things are more settled here, I thought maybe the best thing for Gilly... I, I thought I might send her to Horn Hill, to my mother and sisters and my... my f father. If Gilly were to say the babe was m m mine... He was blushing again. My mother would want him, I know. She would find some place for Gilly, some kind of service. It wouldn't be as hard as serving Craster. And Lord R R Randolph, he, he, he would never say so, but he might be pleased to believe I got a bastard on some wildling girl. At least it would prove I was man enough to lie with a woman and f father a child. He told me once that I was sure to die a maiden, that no woman would ever... You know, John, if I did this, wrote this lie, would that be a good thing? The life the boy would have? Growing up a bastard in his grandfather's castle? John shrugged. That depends in great part on your father and what sort of boy this is. If he takes after you... He won't. Craster's his real father. You saw him. He was hard as an old tree stump, and Gilly is stronger than she looks. If the boy shows any skill, with sword or lance, he should have a place with your father's household guard at the least, John said. It's not unknown for bastards to be trained as squires and raised to knighthood. But you'd best be sure Gilly can play this game convincingly. From what you've told me of Lord Randall, I doubt he would take kindly to being deceived. More guards were posted on the steps outside the tower. These were king's men, though. Sam had quickly learned the difference. The king's men were as earthy and impious as any other soldiers, but the queen's men were fervid in their devotion to Melisande of Ashaï and her lord of light. "'Are you going to the practice yard again?' Sam asked as they crossed the yard. "'Is it wise to train so hard before your leg's done healing?' John shrugged. What else is there for me to do? Marsh has removed me from duty for fear that I'm still a turncloak. 
It's only a few who believe that, some assured him. Sir Alistair and his friends. Most of the brothers know better. King Stannis knows as well, I'll wager. You brought in the Horn of Winter and captured Mance Raider's son. All I did was protect Val and the babe against Lutus when the wildlings fled, and keep them there until the rangers found us. I never captured anyone. King Stannis keeps his men well in hand, that's plain. He lets them plunder some, but I've only heard of three wilding women being raped, and the men who did it have all been gelded. I suppose I should have been killing the free folk as they ran. Sir Alistair has been putting it about that the only time I bared my sword was to defend our foes. I failed to kill Mans Raider because I was in league with him, he says. That's only Sir Alistair, Sam said. Everyone knows the sort of man he is. With his noble birth, his knighthood, and his long years in the watch, Sir Alistair Thorne might have been a strong challenger for the Lord Commander's title. But almost all the men he'd trained during his years as master-at-arms despised him. His name had been offered, of course, but after running a week sixth on the first day and actually losing votes on the second, Thorne had withdrawn to support Lord Janus Slint. What everyone knows is that Sir Alistair is a knight from a noble line and true-born, while I am the bastard who killed Corrin Halfhand and bedded with a spearwife. The Warg, I've heard them call me. How can I be a Warg without a wolf, I ask you? His mouth twisted. I don't even dream of ghosts anymore. All my dreams are of the crypts of the stone kings on their thrones. Sometimes I hear Rob's voice and my father's as if they were at a feast. But there's a wall between us, and I know that no place has been set for me. The living have no place at the feasts of the dead. It tore the heart from Sam to hold his silence then. Pran's not dead, John, he wanted to say. He's with friends, and they're going north on a giant elk to find a three-eyed crow in the depths of the haunted forest. It sounded so mad that there were times Sam Tarley thought he must have dreamt it all, conjured it whole from fever and fear and hunger. But he would have blurted it out anyway, if he had not given his word. Three times he had sworn to keep the secret. Once to Bran himself, once to that strange boy, Jojen Reed, and last of all to Cold Hands. The world believes a boy is dead, his rescuer had said as they parted. Let his bones lie undisturbed. We want no seekers coming after us. Swear it, Samwell, of the Night's Watch, swear it, for the life you owe me. Miserable, Sam shifted his weight and said, Lord Janus will never be chosen Lord Commander. It was the best comfort he had to offer, John. The only comfort. That won't happen. Sam, you're a sweet fool. Open your eyes. It's been happening for days. John pushed his hair back out of his eyes and said, I may know nothing, but I know that. Now pray excuse me. I need to hit someone very hard with a sword. There was naught that Sam could do but watch him stride off toward the armory and the practice yard. That was where John Snow spent most of his waking hours. With Sir Andrew dead and Sir Alistair disinterested, Castle Black had no master at arms. So John had taken it on himself 
to work with some of the rawer recruits, Satin, Horse, Hop Robin with his clubfoot, Aaron, and Emric. And when they had duties, he would train alone for hours with sword and shield and spear, or match himself against anyone who cared to take him on. Sam, you're a sweet fool, he could hear John saying, all the way back to the maester's keep. Open your eyes. It's been happening for days. Could he be right? A man needed the votes of two-thirds of the sworn brothers to become the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, and after nine days and nine votes, no one was even close to that. Lord Janus had been gaining, true, creeping up past first Bonemarsh and then Othel Yarvik, but he was still well behind Sir Dennis Malister of the Shadow Tower and Cutter Pike of Eastwatch by the Sea. One of them will be the new Lord Commander, surely, Sam told himself. Stannis had posted guards outside the maester's door, too. Within, the rooms were hot and crowded with the wounded from the battle. Black brothers, king's men, and queen's men, all three. Clydus was shuffling amongst them with flagons of goat's milk and dream wine. But Maester Eamon had not yet returned from his morning call on Mance Raider. Sam hung his cloak on a peg and went to lend a hand. But even as he fetched and poured and changed dressings, John's words nagged at him. Sam, you're a sweet fool. Open your eyes. It's been happening for days. It was a good hour before he could excuse himself to feed the ravens. On the way up to the rookery, he stopped to check the tally he had made of last night's count. At the start of the choosing, more than thirty names had been offered, but most of them had withdrawn once it became clear they could not win. Seven remained as of last night. Sir Dennis Malister had collected two hundred and thirteen tokens, Cutter Pike one hundred and eighty-seven, Lord Slint seventy-four, Othel Yarwick sixty, Bowen Marsh forty-nine, Three Finger Hub five, and Dolores Ed Tullet one. Pip and his stupid japes. Sam shuffled through the earlier counts. Sir Dennis, Cutter Pike, and Burn Marsh had all been falling since the third day. Othel Yarwick since the sixth. Only Lord Janus Slint was climbing, day after day after day. He could hear the birds quawking in the rookery, so he put the papers away and climbed the steps to feed them. Three more ravens had come in, he saw with pleasure. Snow! They cried at him. Snow! 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 He had taught them that. Even with the newcomers, the ravenry seemed dismally empty. Few of the birds that Eamon had sent off had returned as yet. One reached Stannis, though. One found Dragonstone and a king who still cared. A thousand leagues south, Sam knew, his father had joined House Tarly to the cause of the boy on the Iron Throne. But neither King Joffrey nor little King Tommen had bestirred himself when the watch cried out for help. What good is a king who will not defend his realm? He thought angrily, remembering the night on the fist of the first men and the terrible trek to Crastus keep through darkness, fear, and falling snow. The Queen's men made him uneasy, it was true, but at least they had come. That night at supper, Sam looked for Jon Snow but he did not see him anywhere in the cavernous stone vault 
where his brothers now took their meals. He finally took a place on the bench near his other friends. Pip was telling Dolores Ed about the contest they'd had to see which of the straw soldiers could collect the most wilding arrows. You were leading most of the way, but what of Longlake got three in the last day and passed you? Cool, I never win anything, eh? Dolores Ed complained. The gods always smiled on what, though, eh? When the wildlings knocked him off the bridge of skulls, somehow he landed in a nice deep pool of water, eh? How lucky was that, missing all those rocks, eh? Was it a long fall? Gren wanted to know. Did landing in the pool of water save his life? No, said Dolores Ed. He was dead already, eh? From the axe in his head. Still, it was pretty lucky, eh? Missing the rocks. Three Finger Hub had promised the brothers roast haunch of mammoth that night, maybe in hopes of catching a few more votes. If that was his notion, he should have found a younger mammoth, Sam thought, as he pulled a string of gristle out from between his teeth. Sighing, he pushed the food away. There would be another vote shortly, and the tensions in the air were thicker than the smoke. Cutter Pike sat by the fire, surrounded by rangers from East Watch. Sir Dennis Malister was near the door with a smaller group of Shadow Tower men. Jaina Slint has the best place, Sam realized, halfway between the flames and the drafts. He was alarmed to see Bowen Marsh beside him, one-faced and haggard, his head still wrapped in linen but listening to all that Lord Janus had to say. When he pointed that out to his friends, Pip said, And look down there. That's Alistair whispering with Uthel Yarwick. After the meal, Maester Eamon rose to ask if any of the brothers wished to speak before they cast their tokens. Dolores Ed got up, stone-faced and glum as ever. Cor, I just want to say... Uh, to whoever is voting for me, that I would certainly make an awful Lord Commander, eh? But, cool, so would all these others, eh? He was followed by Bowen Marsh, who stood with one hand on Lord Slint's shoulder. Brothers and friends, I'm asking that my name be withdrawn from this choosing. My wound still troubles me, and the task is too large for me, I fear. But not for Lord Janus here who commanded the gold cloaks at King's Landing for many years. Let us all give him our support. Sam heard angry mutters from Cutter Pike's end of the room, and Sir Dennis looked at one of his companions and shook his head. It's too late. The damage is done. He wondered where John was, and why he had stayed away. Most of the brothers were unlettered, so by tradition the choosing was done by dropping tokens into a big pot-bellied iron kettle that Three-Finger Hub and Owen the Oaf had dragged over from the kitchens. The barrels of tokens were off in a corner behind a heavy drape, so the voters could make their choice unseen. You were allowed to have a friend cast your token if you had duty, so some men took two tokens, three or four, and Sir Dennis and Cutter Pike voted for the garrisons they had left behind. When the hall was finally empty, save for them, Sam and Clydus upended the kettle in front of Maester Eamon. A cascade of seashells, stones, and copper pennies covered the table. 
Eamon's wrinkled hands sorted with surprising speed. Moving the shells here, the stones there, the pennies to one side, the occasional arrowhead, nail, and acorn off to themselves. Sam and Clytus counted the piles, each of them keeping his own tally. Tonight it was Sam's turn to give his results first. Two hundred and three for Sir Dennis Malister, he said. One hundred and sixty-nine for Cutter Pike. One hundred and thirty-seven for Lord Janus Slint. Seventy-two for Uthel Yarwick. Five for Three Finger Hob. And two for Dolores Ed. I had one hundred and sixty-eight for Pike. Clyda said. We are two votes short by my count, and one by Sam's. Sam's count is correct, said Maester Eamon. John Snow did not cast a token. It makes no matter. No one is close. Sam was more relieved than disappointed. Even with Bowen Marsh's support, Lord Janus was still only third. Who are these five who keep voting for three-finger hub? He wondered. "'Brothers who want him out of the kitchens,' said Clydus. "'Sir Dennis is down ten votes since yesterday,' Sam pointed out, "'and Cutter Pike is down almost twenty. That's not good.' "'Not good for their hopes of becoming Lord Commander, certainly,' said Maester Eamon. "'Yet it may be good for the Knight's Watch in the end. That is not for us to say. Ten days is not unduly long.' There was once a choosing that lasted nearly two years, some seven hundred votes. The brothers will come to a decision in their own time. Yes, Sam thought, but what decision? Later, over cups of watered wine, in the privacy of Pipsell, Sam's tongue loosened, and he found himself thinking aloud. Cutter Pike and Sir Dennis Malister have been losing ground, but between them— they still have almost two-thirds, he told Pip and Gren. Either one would be fine as Lord Commander. Someone needs to convince one of them to withdraw and support the other. Someone? said Gren, doubtfully. What someone? Gren is so dumb he thinks someone might be him, said Pip. Maybe when someone is done— with Pike and Malister, he should convince King Stannis to marry Queen Cersei, too. King Stannis is married, Gren objected. What am I going to do with him, Sam? sighed Pip. Cutter Pike and Sir Dennis don't like each other much, Gren argued stubbornly. They fight about everything. Yes, but only because they have different ideas about what's best for the watch said Sam. If we explained— We, said Pip, how did someone change to we? I'm the mama's monkey, remember? And Gren is, well, Gren. He smiled at Sam and wiggled his ears. You now, uh, you're a lord's son, and the maester's to it. And Sam the slayer, said Gren. You slew another. It was the dragon glass that killed it. Sam told him for the hundredth time. A lord's son, the maceless do it, and Sam the slayer. Pip mused. You could talk to them. Might be. I could, said Sam, sounding as gloomy as Dolores Ed. 
if I wasn't too craven to face them. John John prowled around Satin, in a slow circle, sword in hand, forcing him to turn. Get your shield up, he said. It's too heavy, the old town boy complained. It's as heavy as it needs to be to stop a sword, John said. Now get it up. He stepped forward, slashing. Saturn jerked the shield up in time to catch the sword on its rim and swung his own blade at John's ribs. Good, John said, when he felt the impact on his own shield. That was good, but you need to put your body into it. Get your weight behind the steel, and you'll do more damage than with your arm strength alone. Come try it again. Drive at me. But keep the shield up, or I'll ring your head like a bell. Instead, Saturn took a step backward and raised his visor. John? he said, in an anxious voice. When he turned, she was standing behind him, with half a dozen Queen's men around her. Small wonder the yard grew so quiet. He had glimpsed Melisande at her night fires, and coming and going about the castle, but never so close. She's beautiful he thought. But there was something more than a little unsettling about red eyes. My lady, the king would speak with you, John Snow. John thrust the practice sword into the earth. Might I be allowed to change? I am in no fit state to stand before a king. We shall await you atop the wall, said Merlissant. We, John heard, not he, it's as they say. This is his true queen, not the one he left at Eastwatch. He hung his mail and plate inside the armory, returned to his own cell, discarded his sweat-stained clothes, and donned a fresh set of blacks. It would be cold and windy in the cage, he knew, and colder and windier still, on top of the ice, so he chose a heavy hooded cloak. Last of all, he collected Longclaw, and slung the bastard sword across his back. Melisande was waiting for him at the base of the wall. She had sent her queen's men away. "'What does his grace want of me?' John asked her as they entered the cage. "'All you have to give, Jon Snow. He is a king.' He shut the door and pulled the bell cord. The winch began to turn. They rose. The day was bright, and the wall was weeping long fingers of water trickling down its face and glinting in the sun. In the close confines of the iron cage, he was acutely aware of the red woman's presence. She even smells red. The scent reminded him of Micken's forge, of the way iron smelled when red-hot. The scent was smoke and blood. Kissed by fire, he thought, remembering Ygritte. The wind got in amongst Melisande's long red robes and sent them flapping against John's legs as he stood beside her. "'You're not cold, my lady?' he asked. She laughed. "'Never.' The ruby at her throat seemed to pulse in time with the beating of her heart. "'The Lord's fire lives within me, Jon Snow. Feel.' She put her hand on his cheek and held it there while he felt how warm she was. That is how life should feel, she told him. Only death is cold. They found Stannis Baratheon standing alone at the edge of the wall. 
brooding over the field where he had won his battle, and the great green forest beyond. He was dressed in the same black breeches, tunic, and boots that a brother of the Night's Watch might wear. Only his cloak set him apart, a heavy gold cloak trimmed in black fur and pinned with a brooch in the shape of a flaming heart. I have brought you the bastard of Winterfell, your grace, said Melisande. Stannis turned to study him. Beneath his heavy brow were eyes like bottomless blue pools. His hollow cheeks and strong jaw were covered with a short-cropped blue-black beard that did little to conceal the gauntness of his face, and his teeth were clenched. His neck and shoulders were clenched as well, and his right hand. John found himself remembering something Donald Noy once said about the Baratheon brothers. Robert was the true steel, Stannis is pure iron, black and hard and strong, but brittle, the way iron gets. He'll break before he bends. Uneasily, he knelt, wondering why this brittle king had need of him. Rise. I've heard much and more of you, Lord Snow. I am no lord, sire. John rose. I know what you have heard, that I am a turncloak and craven, that I slew my brother Corrin Halfhand so the wildlings would spare my life, that I rode with Mance Raider and took a wilding wife. Aye, all that and more. You're a wag, too, they say, a skin-changer who walks at night as a wolf. King Stannis had a hard smile. How much of it is true? I had a direwolf, Ghost. I left him when I climbed the wall near Greyguard, and have not seen him since. Corrin Halfhand commanded me to join the wildlings. He knew they would make me kill him to prove myself, and told me to do whatever they asked of me. The woman was named Igret. I broke my vows with her, but I swear to you on my father's name that I never turned my cloak. I believe you, the king said. That startled him. Why? Stannis snorted. <laughs> I know Janus Slint, and I knew Ned Stark as well. Your father was no friend of mine, but only a fool would doubt his honor or his honesty. You have his look. A big man, Stannis Baratheon, tired over John, but he was so gaunt that he looked ten years older than he was. I know more than you might think, Jon Snow. I know it was you who found the dragon-glass dagger that Randall Tarley's son used to slay the other. Ghost found it. The blade was wrapped in a ranger's cloak and buried beneath the fist of the first men. There were other blades as well, spearheads, arrowheads, all dragon-glass. I know you held the gate here, King Stannis said. If not, I would have come too late. Donald Noy held the gate. He died below in the tunnel, fighting the King of the Giants. Stannis grimaced. Noy made my first sword for me, and Robert's warhammer as well. Had the guards seen fit to spare him, he would have made a better lord commander for your order than any of these fools who are squabbling over it now. Cutterpike and Sir Dennis Malister are no fools, sire, John said. They're good men and capable. Uthel Yarvik as well, in his own way. Lord Mormont trusted each of them. Your Lord Mormont trusted too easily, else he would not have died as he did. 
but we were speaking of you. I've not forgotten that it was you who brought us this magic horn, and captured Mance Raider's wife and son. Dala died. John was saddened by that still. Val is her sister. She and the babe did not require much capturing, Your Grace. You had put the wildlings to flight, and the skin-changer, Mance had left to guard his queen, went mad when the eagle burned. John looked at Melisande. Some say that was your doing. She smiled, her long copper hair tumbling across her face. The Lord of Light has fiery talons, Jon Snow. John nodded and turned back to the king. Your Grace, you spoke of Val. She has asked to see Mance Raider to bring his son to him. It would be a... a kindness. The man is a deserter from your order. Your brothers are all insisting on his death. Why should I do him a kindness? John had no answer for that. If not for him, for Val, for her sister's sake, the child's mother. You're fond of this, Val? I scarcely know her. They tell me she is comely. Very, John admitted. Beauty can be treacherous. My brother learned that lesson from Cersei Lannister. She murdered him. Do not doubt it. Your father and John Aaron as well, he scowled. You rolled with these wildlings. Is there any honour in them, do you think? Yes, John said. But their own sort of honour, sire. In Mansreader? Yes, I think so. In the Lord of Bones? John hesitated. Rattleshirt, we called him. Treacherous and bloodthirsty. If there's honour in him, he hides it down beneath his suit of bones. And this other man, this torment of the many names who eluded us after the battle, answer me truly. Tormund Giantsbane seemed to me the sort of man who would make a good friend and a bad enemy, Your Grace. Stannis gave a curt nod. Your father was a man of honour. He was no friend to me, but I saw his worth. Your brother was a rebel and a traitor who meant to steal half my kingdom, but no man can question his courage. What of you? Does he want me to say I love him? John's voice was stiff and formal, as he said, I am a man of the night's watch. Words, words of wind. Why do you think I abandoned Dragonstone and sailed to the wall, Lord Snow? I am no lord, sire. You came because we sent for you, I hope, though I could not say why you took so long about it. Surprisingly, Stannis smiled at that. You're bold enough to be a Stark. Yes, I should have come sooner. If not for my hand, I might not have come at all. Lord Seaworth is a man of humble birth, but he reminded me of my duty, when all I could think of was my rights. I had the cart before the horse, Davis said. I was trying to win the throne to save the kingdom, when I should have been trying to save the kingdom to win the throne. Stannis pointed north. There is where I'll find the foe that I was born to fight. His name may not be spoken, Melisande added softly. He is the god of night and terror, Jon Snow, and these shapes in the snow are his creatures. They tell me that you slew one of these walking corpses to save Lord Mormont's life, Stannis said. 
It may be that this is your war as well, Lord Snow. If you will give me your help. My sword is pledged to the Knight's Watch, Your Grace, Jon Snow answered carefully. That did not please the king. Stannis ground his teeth and said, I need more than a sword from you. Jon was lost. My lord, I need the North. The North? I, uh, my brother Rob was king in the North. Your brother was the rightful lord of Winterfell. If he had stayed home and done his duty, instead of crowning himself and riding off to conquer the Riverlands, he might be alive today. Be that as it may, you are not Rob, no more than I am Robert. The harsh words had blown away whatever sympathy John might have had for Stannis. I loved my brother, he said, and I mine. Yet they were what they were, and so are we. I am the only true king in Westeros, north or south, and you are Ned Stark's bastard. Stannis studied him with those dark blue eyes. Tywin Lannister has named Roose Bolton his Warden of the North to reward him for betraying your brother. The Iron Men are fighting amongst themselves since Balon Greyjoy's death, yet they still hold Moat Caelin, Deepwood Mott, Torrin Square, and most of the Stony Shore. Your father's lands are bleeding, and I have neither the strength nor the time to staunch the wounds. What is needed is a Lord of Winterfell, a loyal Lord of Winterfell. He is looking at me, John thought, stunned. Winterfell is no more. Theon Greyjoy put it to the torch. Granite does not burn easily, Stannis said. The castle can be rebuilt in time. It's not the walls that make a lord, it's the man. Your Northmen do not know me, have no reason to love me, yet I will need their strength in the battles yet to come. I need a son of Eddard Stark to win them to my banner. He would make me Lord of Winterfell. The wind was gusting, and John felt so light-headed he was half afraid it would blow him off the wall. Your Grace, he said, you forget, I am a snow not a Stark. It's you who are forgetting, King Stannis replied. Melisande put a warm hand on John's arm. A king can remove the taint of bastardy with a stroke, Lord Snow. Lord Snow. Sir Alistair Thorne had named him that, to mock his bastard birth. Many of his brothers had taken to using it as well, some with affection, others to wound. But suddenly— it had a different sound to it in John's ears. It sounded real. Yes, he said hesitantly. Kings have legitimized bastards before, but I am still a brother of the Night's Watch. I knelt before Heart Tree and swore to hold no lands and father no children. John, Melisande was so close he could feel the warmth of her breath. Relor is the only true god. A vow sworn to a tree has no more power than one sworn to your shoes. Open your heart, and let the light of the Lord come in. Burn these weirwoods, and accept Winterfell as a gift of the Lord of Light. When John had been very young, too young to understand what it meant to be a bastard, he used to dream that one day Winterfell might be his. 
Later, when he was older, he had been ashamed of those dreams. Winterfell would go to Rob, and then his sons, or to Bran or Rickon, should Rob die childless. And after them came Sansa and Arya. Even to dream otherwise seemed disloyal, as if he were betraying them in his heart, wishing for their deaths. I never wanted this, he thought, as he stood before the blue-eyed king and the red woman. I loved Rob, loved all of them. I never wanted any harm to come to any of them. But it did. And now there's only me. All he had to do was say the word, and he would be John Stark, and never more a snow. All he had to do was pledge this king his fealty, and Winterfell was his. All he had to do was forswear his vows again. And this time it would not be a ruse. To claim his father's castle, he must turn against his father's gods. King Stannis gazed off north again, his gold cloak streaming from his shoulders. It may be that I am mistaken in you, Jon Snow. We both know the things that are said of bastards. You may lack your father's honor, or your brother's skill in arms, but you are the weapon the Lord has given me. I have found you here, as you found the cache of dragonglass beneath the fist, and I mean to make use of you. Even Azor High did not win his war alone. I killed a thousand wildlings, took another thousand captive, and scattered the rest. But we both know they will return. Melisande has seen it in her fires. This torment Thunderfist is likely reforming them even now, and planning some new assault. And the more we bleed each other, the weaker we shall all be when the real enemy falls upon us. John had come to that same realization. As you say, Your Grace. He wondered where this king was going. Whilst your brothers have been struggling to decide who shall lead them, I have been speaking with this man's raider. He ground his teeth. A stubborn man, that one, and prideful. He will leave me no choice but to give him to the flames. But we took other captives as well, other leaders. The one who calls himself the Lord of Bones, some of their clan chiefs, the new Magnar of Sen. Your brothers will not like it, no more than your father's lords, but I mean to allow the wildlings through the wall. Those who will swear me their fealty, pledged to keep the king's peace and the king's laws, and take the Lord of Light as their god. Even the giants, if those great knees of theirs can bend, I will settle them on the gift once I have wrested it away from your new Lord Commander. When the cold winds rise, we shall live or die together. It is time we made alliance against our common foe. He looked at John. Would you agree? My father dreamed of resettling the gift, John admitted. He and my uncle Benjamin used to talk of it. He never thought of settling it with wildlings, though. But he never rode with wildlings, either. He did not fool himself. The free folk would make for unruly subjects and dangerous neighbors. Yet when he weighed Egret's red hair against the cold blue eyes of the whites, the choice was easy. I agree. Good, 
King Stannis said, for the surest way to seal a new alliance is with a marriage. I mean to wed my lord of Winterfell to this wildling princess. Perhaps John had ridden with the free folk too long. He could not help but laugh. Your grace, he said, captive or no, if you think you can just give Val to me, I fear you have a deal to learn about wilding women. Whoever weds her had best be prepared to climb in a tower window and carry her off at sword point. Whoever? Stannis gave him a measuring look. Does this mean you will not wed the girl? I warn you, she is part of the price you must pay if you want your father's name and your father's castle. This match is necessary to help assure the loyalty of our new subjects. Are you refusing me, Jon Snow? No, John said too quickly. It was Winterfell the king was speaking of, and Winterfell was not to be lightly refused. I mean, this has all come very suddenly, Your Grace. Might I beg you for some time to consider? As you wish. But consider quickly. I am not a patient man, as your black brothers are about to discover. Stannis put a thin, fleshless hand on John's shoulder. Say nothing of what we discussed here today, to anyone. But when you return, you need only bend your knee, lay your sword at my feet, and pledge yourself to my service, and you shall rise again as John Stark, the Lord of Winterfell. Tyrion When he heard noises through the thick wooden door of his cell, Tyrion Lannister prepared to die. Pastime, he thought. Come on, come on, make an end to it. He pushed himself to his feet. His legs were asleep from being folded under him. He bent down and rubbed the knives from them. I will not go stumbling and waddling to the headsman's block. He wondered whether they would kill him down here in the dark or drag him through the city so Sir Ilian Payne could lop his head off. After his mama's farce for trial, his sweet sister and loving father might prefer to dispose of him quietly rather than risk a public execution. I could tell the mob a few choice things if they let me speak. But would they be that foolish? As the keys rattled and the door to his cell pushed inward, creaking, Tyrion pressed back against the dampness of the wall, wishing for a weapon. I can still bite and kick. I'll die with a taste of blood in my mouth, that's something. He wished he'd been able to think of some rousing last words. Bugger you all was not like to earn him much of a place in the histories. Torchlight fell across his face. He shielded his eyes with a hand. Come on! Are you frightened of a dwarf? Do it, you son of a poxy whore! His voice had grown hoarse from disuse. Is that any way to speak about our lady mother? The man moved forward, a torch in his left hand. This is even more ghastly than my cell at River Run, though not quite so dank. For a moment Tyrion could not breathe. You? Well, most of me. Jamie was gaunt, his hair hacked short. I left a hand at Harren Hell, bringing the brave companions across the narrow sea, was not one of father's better notions. He lifted his arm. 
and Tyrion saw the stump. A bark of hysterical laughter burst from his lips. Oh, gods, he said. Jimmy, I am so sorry, but gods be good. Look at the two of us, handless and noseless, the Lannister boys. There were days when my hands smelt so bad, I wished I was noseless. Jamie lowered his torch, so the light bathed his brother's face. An impressive scar. Tyrion turned away from the glare. They made me fight a battle without my big brother to protect me. I heard tell you almost burned the city down. A filthy lie. I only burned the river. Abruptly, Tyrion remembered where he was and why. Are you here to kill me? Now that's ungrateful. Perhaps I should leave you here to rot, if you're going to be so discourteous. Rotting is not the fate Cersei has in mind for me. Well, no, if truth be told. You're to be beheaded on the morrow, out on the old tawny grounds. Tyrion laughed again. Will there be food? You'll have to help me with my last words. My wits have been running about like a rat in a root cellar. You won't need last words. I'm rescuing you. Jamie's voice was strangely solemn. Who said I required rescue? You know, I'd almost forgotten what an annoying little man you are. Now that you've reminded me, I do believe I'll let Cersei cut your head off after all. Oh, no, you won't. He waddled out of his cell. Is it day or night up above? I've lost all sense of time. Three hours past midnight. The city sleeps. Jamie slid the torch back into its sconce on the wall between the cells. The corridor was so poorly lit that Tyrion almost stumbled on the turnkey, sprawled across the cold stone floor. He prodded him with a toe. Is he dead? Asleep. The other three as well. The eunuch dosed their wine with sweet sleep, but not enough to kill them. Or so he swears. He is waiting back at the stair, dressed up in a septon's robe. You're going down into the sewers, and from there to the river. A galley is waiting in the bay. Varys has agents in the free cities who will see that you do not lack for funds. But try not to be conspicuous. Cersei will send men after you, I have no doubt. You might do well to take another name. Another name? Oh, certainly. And when the faceless man come to kill me, I'll say, No, you have the wrong man. I'm a different dwarf with a hideous facial scar. Both Lannisters laughed at the absurdity of it all. Then Jamie went to one knee and kissed him quickly, once on each cheek, his lips brushing against the puckered ribbon of scar tissue. Thank you, brother, Tyrion said. For my life, it was a debt I owed you. Jamie's voice was strange. A debt? He cocked his head. I do not understand. Good. Some doors are best left closed. Oh, dear, said Tyrion. Is there something grim and ugly behind it? Could it be that someone said something cruel about me once? I'll try not to weep. Tell me. Tyrion. Jamie is afraid. Tell me, Tyrion said again. His brother looked away. Tysha, he said softly. Tysha? 
His stomach tightened. What of her? She was no whore. I never bought her for you. That was a lie that father commanded me to tell. Taisha was... She was... What she seemed to be. A crofter's daughter, chance met on the road. Tyrion could hear the faint sound of his own breath, whistling hollowly through the scar of his nose. Jamie could not meet his eyes. Taisha? He tried to remember what she had looked like. A girl? She was only a girl, no, no older than Sansa. My wife? He croaked. She wet me. For your gold, father said. She was low-born. You were a Lannister of Castle Rock. All she wanted was the gold, which made her no different from a whore, so, so it would not be a lie, not truly, and he said that you required a sharp lesson, that you would learn from it and thank me later. Thank you? Tyrion's voice was choked. He gave her to his guards, a barracks full of guards. He made me watch. I, and more than watch, I took her too, my wife. I never knew he would do that. You must believe me. Oh, must I? Tyrion snarled. Why should I believe you about anything ever? She was my wife. Tyrion. He hit him. It was a slap, backhanded, but he put all his strength into it, all his fear, all his rage, all his pain. Jamie was squatting, unbalanced. The blow sent him tumbling backward to the floor. I... I suppose I earned that. Oh, you've earned more than that, Jamie. You and my sweet sister and our loving father, yes. I can't begin to tell you what you've earned. But you'll have it. That, I swear to you, a Lannister always pays his debts. Tyrion waddled away, almost stumbling over the turnkey again in his haste. Before he had gone a dozen yards, he bumped up against an iron gate that closed the passage. Oh, God's! It was all he could do not to scream. Jamie came up behind him. I have the jailer's keys. Then use them! Tyrion stepped aside. Jamie unlocked the gate, pushed it open, and stepped through. He looked back over his shoulder. Are you coming? Not with you. Tyrion stepped through. Give me the keys and go. I will find Varys on my own. He cocked his head and stared up at his brother with his mismatched eyes. Jamie, can you fight left-handed? Rather less well than you, Jamie said bitterly. Good. Then we will be well matched if we should ever meet again. The cripple and the dwarf. Jamie handed him the ring of keys. I gave you the truth. You owe me the same. Did you do it? Did you kill him? The question was another knife twisting in his guts. Are you sure you want to know? asked Tyrion. Joffrey would have been a worse king than Ares ever was. He stole his father's dagger and gave it to a footpad to slit the throat of Brandon Stark. Did you know that? I, I thought he might have. 
Well, a son takes after his father. Joff would have killed me as well, once he came into his power. For the crime of being short and ugly, of which I am so conspicuously guilty, you have not answered my question. You poor, stupid, blind, cripple fool, must I spell out everything for you? Very well. Cersei is a lying whore. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond Kettleblack and probably Moonboy, for all I know. And I am the monster they all say I am. Yes, I killed your vile son. He made himself grin. It must have been a hideous sight to see, there in the torchlit gloom. Jamie turned without a word and walked away. Tyrion watched him go, striding on his long, strong legs, and part of him wanted to call out to tell him that it wasn't true, to beg for his forgiveness. But then he thought of Tysha, and he held his silence. He listened to the receding footsteps until he could hear them no longer, then waddled off to look for Varys. The eunuch was lurking in the dark of a twisting turnpike stair, garbed in a moth-eaten brown robe with a hood that hid the paleness of his face. "'You were so long, I feared that something had gone amiss,' he said when he saw Tyrion. "'Oh, no,' Tyrion assured him, in poisonous tones. "'What could possibly have gone amiss?' He twisted his head back to stare up. I sent for you during my trial. I could not come. The queen had me watched night and day. I dared not help you. You're helping me now? Am I? Oh, <laughs> Varys giggled. It seemed strangely out of place in this place of cold stone and echoing darkness. Your brother can be most persuasive. Varys, you are as cold and slimy as a slug. Has anyone ever told you? You did your best to kill me. Perhaps I ought to return the fever. The eunuch sighed. The faithful dog is kicked, and no matter how the spider weaves, he is never loved. But if you slay me here, I fear for you, my lord. You may never find your way back to daylight. His eyes glittered in the shifting torchlight, dark and wet. These tunnels are full of traps for the unwary. Tyrion snorted. Unwary? I am the wariest man who ever lived. You help see to that. He rubbed at his nose. So tell me, wizard, where is my innocent maiden wife? I have found no trace of Lady Censor in King's Landing, sad to say, nor of Sir Dantus Hollard, who by rights should have turned up somewhere drunk by now. They were seen together on the serpentine steps the night she vanished. After that, nothing. There was much confusion that night. My little birds are silent. Varys gave a gentle tug at the dwarf's sleeve and pulled him into the stair. My lord, we must weigh. Your path is down. Well, that's no lie, at least. Tyrion waddled along in the eunuch's wake, his heels scraping against the rough stone as they descended. It was very cold within the stairwell, a damp, bone-chilling cold that set him to shivering at once. What part of the dungeons are these? he asked, 
Megor the Cruel decreed four levels of dungeons for his castle, Varys replied. On the upper level there are large cells where common criminals may be confined together. They have narrow windows set high in the walls. The second level has the smaller cells where high-born captives are held. They have no windows, but torches in the halls cast light through the bars. On the third level, the cells are smaller, and the doors are wood. The black cells, men call them. That was where you were kept, and Eddard Stark before you. But there is a level lower still. Once a man is taken down to the fourth level... He never sees the sun again, nor hears a human voice, nor breathes a breath free of agonizing pain. Magor had the cells on the fourth level built for torment. They had reached the bottom of the steps. An unlighted door opened before them. This is the fourth level. Give me your hand, my lord. It is safer to walk in darkness here. There are things you would not wish to see. Tyrion hung back a moment. Varys had already betrayed him once. Who knew what game the eunuch was playing? And what better place to murder a man than down in the darkness, in a place that no one knew existed? His body might never be found. On the other hand, what choice did he have? To go back up the stairs and walk out of the main gate? No, that would not serve. Jamie would not be afraid, he thought, before he remembered what Jamie had done to him. He took the eunuch by the hand and let himself be led through the black, following the soft scrape of leather on stone. Vares walked quickly, from time to time whispering, Careful, there are three steps ahead, or... The tunnel slopes downward here, my lord. I arrived here, a king's hand, riding through the gates at the head of my own sworn men, Tyrion reflected, and I leave like a rat, scuttling through the dark, holding hands with a spider. A light appeared ahead of them, too dim to be daylight, and grew as they hurried toward it. After a while, he could see it was an arched doorway, closed off by another iron gate. Varys produced a key. They stepped through into a small round chamber. Five other doors opened off the room, each barred in iron. There was an opening in the ceiling as well, and a series of rungs set in the wall below, leading upward. An ornate brazier stood to one side, fashioned in the shape of a dragon's head. The coals in the beast's yawning mouth had burned down to embers, but they still glowed with a sullen orange light. Dim as it was, the light was welcome after the blackness of the tunnel. The juncture was otherwise empty, but on the floor was a mosaic of a three-headed dragon wrought in red and black tiles. Something niggled at Tyrion for a moment. Then it came to him. This is a place Shea told me of, when Varys first led her to my bed. We are below the Tower of the Hand? Yes. Frozen hinges screamed in protest 
as Varys pulled open a long-closed door. Flakes of rust drifted to the floor. This will take us out to the river. Tyrion walked slowly to the ladder, ran a hand across the lowest rung. This will take me up to my bedchamber. Your lord father's bedchamber now. He looked up the shaft. How far must I claim? My lord, you are too weak for such follies, and there is besides no time. We must go. I have business above. How far? Two hundred and thirty rungs. But whatever you intend, two hundred and thirty rungs. And then? The tunnel to the left. But hear me. How far along to the bedchamber? Tyrion lifted a foot to the lowest rung of the ladder. No more than sixty feet. Keep one hand on the wall as you go. You will feel the doors. The bedchamber is the third, he sighed. This is folly, my lord. Your brother has given you your life back. Would you cast it away and mine with it? Varys, the only thing I value less than my life just now is yours. Wait for me here. He turned his back on the eunuch and began to climb counting silently as he went. Rung by rung, he ascended into darkness. At first he could see the dim outline of each rung as he grasped it, and the rough grey texture of the stone behind, but as he climbed, the black grew thicker. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. By thirty his arms trembled with the strain of pulling. He paused a moment to catch his breath and glanced down. A circle of faint light shone far below, half obscured by his own feet. Tyrion resumed his ascent. Thirty-nine, forty, forty-one. By fifty his legs burned. The ladder was endless, numbing. Sixty-eight, sixty-nine, seventy. By eighty his back was a dull agony. Yet still he climbed. He could not have said why. One thirteen, one fourteen, one fifteen. At two hundred and thirty, the shaft was black as pitch, but he could feel the warm air flowing from the tunnel to his left, like the breath of some great beast. He poked about awkwardly with a foot and edged off the ladder. The tunnel was even more cramped than the shaft. Any man of normal size would have had to crawl on hands and knees, but Tyrion was short enough to walk upright. At last, a place made for dwarfs. His boots scuffed softly against the stone. He walked slowly, counting steps, feeling for gaps in the walls. Soon he began to hear voices, muffled and indistinct at first, then clearer. He listened more closely. Two of his father's guardsmen were joking about the imp's whore, saying how sweet it would be to fuck her, and how bad she must want a real cock in place of the dwarf-stunted little thing. "'Most like it's got a crook in it,' said Lum. That led him into a discussion of how Tyrion would die on the morrow. "'He'll weep like a woman and beg for mercy, you'll see,' Lum insisted. 
Lester figured he'd face the axe brave as a lion, being a Lannister. And he was willing to bet his new boots on it. Ah, shit in your boots, said Lum. You know, they never fit these feet of mine. Tell you what. If I win, you can scar my bloody mail for a fortnight. For the space of a few feet, Tyrion could hear every word of their haggling. But when he moved on, the voices faded quickly. Small wonder Varys did not want me to climb the bloody ladder, Tyrion thought, smiling in the dark. Little birds, indeed. He came to the third door and fumbled about for a long time before his fingers brushed a small iron hook set between two stones. When he pulled down on it, there was a soft rumble that sounded loud as an avalanche in the stillness, and a square of dull orange light opened a foot to his left. The hearth! He almost laughed. The fireplace was full of hot ash, and a black log with a hot orange heart burning within. He edged past gingerly, taking quick steps so as not to burn his boots, the warm cinders crunching softly under his heels. When he found himself in what had once been his bedchamber, he stood a long moment, breathing the silence. Had his father heard? Would he reach for his sword, raise the hue and cry? My lord, a woman's voice called. That might have hurt me once, when I still felt pain. The first step was the hardest. When he reached the bed, Tyrion pulled the draperies aside, and there she was, turning toward him, with a sleepy smile on her lips. It died when she saw him. She pulled the blankets up to her chin, as if that would protect her. Were you expecting someone taller, sweetling? Big wet tears filled her eyes. I never meant those things I said. The Queen made me. Please. Your father frightens me so. She sat up, letting the blanket slide down to her lap. Beneath it, she was naked, but for the chain about her throat. A chain of linked golden hands, each holding the next. My Lady Shay, Tyrion said softly. All the time, I sat in the black cell, waiting to die, I kept remembering how beautiful you were, in silk, or rough-spun, or nothing at all. My lord will be back soon. You should go, or did you come to take me away? Did you ever like it? He cupped her cheek, remembering all the times he had done this before, all the times he'd slid his hands around her waist, squeezed her small, firm breasts, stroked her short, dark hair, touched her lips, her cheeks, her ears. All the times he had opened her with a finger to probe her secret sweetness and make her moan. Did you ever like my touch? More than anything, she said. My giant of Lannister. That was the worst thing you could have said, sweetling. Tyrion slid a hand under his father's chain and twisted. The links tightened, digging into her neck. For hands of gold are always cold. But a woman's hands are warm.
he said. He gave cold hands another twist as the warm ones beat away his tears. Afterward, he found Lord Tywin's dagger on the bedside table and shoved it through his belt. A lion-headed mace, a pole-axe, and a crossbow had been hung on the walls. The pole-axe would be clumsy to wield inside a castle, and the mace was too high to reach. But a large wood and iron chest had been placed against the wall directly under the crossbow. He climbed up, pulled down the bow and a leather quiver, packed with quarrels, jammed a foot into the stirrup, and pushed down until the bowstring cocked. Then he slipped a bolt into the notch. Jamie had lectured him more than once on the drawbacks of crossbows. If Lum and Lester emerged from wherever they were talking, he'd never have time to reload, but at least he'd take one down to hell with him. Lum, if he had a choice. You'll have to clean your own mail, Lum. You lose. Waddling to the door, he listened a moment, then eased it open slowly. A lamp burned in a stone niche, casting one yellow light over the empty hallway. Only the flame was moving. Tyrion slid out, holding the crossbow down against his leg. He found his father where he knew he'd find him, seated in the dimness of the privy tower. Bedrobe hiked up around his hips. At the sound of steps, Lord Tywin raised his eyes. Tyrion gave him a mocking half-bow. My lord? Tyrion! If he was afraid, Tywin Lannister gave no hint of it. Who released you from your cell? I'd love to tell you, but I swore a holy oath. The eunuch, his father decided. I'll have his head for this. Is that my crossbow? Put it down. Will you punish me if I refuse, father? This escape is folly. You are not to be killed, if that is what you fear. It's still my intent to send you to the wall. But I could not do it without Lord Tyrell's consent. Put down the crossbow, and we will go back to my chambers and talk of it. We can talk here just as well. Perhaps I don't choose to go to the wall, father. It's bloody cold up there, and I believe I've had enough coldness from you. So just tell me something, and I'll be on my way. One simple question. You owe me that much. I owe you nothing. You've given me less than that all my life, but you'll give me this. What did you do with Taisha? Taisha? He does not even remember her name. The girl I married. Oh, yes, with your first whore. Tyrion took aim at his father's chest. The next time you say that word, I'll kill you. You do not have the courage. Shall we find out? It's a short word, and it seems to come so easily to your lips. Tyrion gestured impatiently with a bow. Taisha, what did you do with her after my little lesson? I don't recall. Try harder. Did you have her killed? His father pursed his lips. There was no reason for that. She learned her place, and had been well paid for her day's work, I seem to recall. 
I suppose the Stuart sent her on her way. I never thought to inquire. On her way? Where? Wherever whores go. Tyrion's finger clenched. The crossbow whanged just as Lord Tywin started to rise. The bolt slammed into him above the groin, and he sat back down with a grunt. The quarrel had sung deep, right to the fletching. Blood seeped out around the shaft, dripping down into his pubic hair and over his bare thighs. You shot me, he said incredulously, his eyes glassy with shock. You always were quick to grasp a situation, my lord, Tyrion said. That must be why you're the hand of the king. You, you are no, no son of mine. Now, that is where you're wrong, father. Why, I believe I'm you, writ small. Do me a kindness now and die quickly. I have a ship to catch. For once his father did what Tyrion asked him. The proof was the sudden stench, as his bowels loosened in the moment of death. Well, he was in the right place for it, Tyrion thought. But the stink that filled the privy gave ample evidence that the oft-repeated jape about his father was just another lie. Lord Tywin Lannister did not, in the end, shit gold. Samwell. The king was angry. Sam saw that at once. As the Black Brothers entered one by one and knelt before him, Stannis shoved away his breakfast of hard bread, salt beef, and boiled eggs, and eyed them coldly. Beside him, the red woman, Melisande, looked as if she found the scene amusing. I have no place here, thought Sam anxiously, when her red eyes fell upon him. Someone had to help Maester Eamon up the steps. Don't look at me. I'm just the Maester Stuart. The others were contenders for the old bear's command, all but Burn Marsh, who had withdrawn from the contest but remained Castellan and Lord Stuart. Sam did not understand why Melisande should seem so interested in him. King Stannis kept the Black Brothers on their knees for an extraordinarily long time. Rise! he said at last. Sam gave Maester Eamon his shoulder to help him back up. The sound of Lord Janus Slint clearing his throat broke the strained silence. Your Grace, let me see how pleased we are to be summoned here. When I saw your banners from the wall, I knew the realm was saved. There comes a man who ne'er forgets his duty. I said to good Sir Alistair, a strong man, and a true king. May I congratulate you on your victory over the savages. The singers will make much of it, I know. The singers may do as they like, Stannis snapped. Spare me your fawning, Janus, it will not serve you. He rose to his feet and frowned at them all. Lady Millicent tells me that you have not yet chosen a lord commander. I am displeased. How much longer must this folly last? "'Sire,' said Burn Marsh, in a defensive tone, "'no one has achieved two-thirds of the vote yet. "'It has only been ten days. Nine days too long. "'I've captives to dispose of, a realm to order, a war to fight. 
Choices must be made, decisions that involve the wall and the Night's Watch. By right, your Lord Commander should have a voice in those decisions. He should, yes, said Janus Slint. But it must be said, we brothers are only simple soldiers. Soldiers, yes, and your grace will know that soldiers are most comfortable taking orders. They would benefit from your royal guidance, it seems to me. For the good of the realm— to help them choose wisely. The suggestion outraged some of the others. Do you want the king to wipe our asses for us too? said Cutter Pike angrily. The choice of the Lord Commander belongs to the sworn brothers and to them alone, insisted Sir Dennis Malister. Of course, if they choose wisely, they won't be choosing me, eh? moaned Dolorous Ed. Mace Eamon, calm as always, said, "'Your Grace, the Night's Watch has been choosing its own leader since Brandon the Builder raised the wall. Through Jaw Mormont we have had 997 Lords Commander in unbroken succession, each chosen by the men he would lead, a tradition many thousands of years old.' Stannis ground his teeth. It is not my wish to tamper with your rights and traditions. As to royal guidance, Janus, if you mean that I ought to tell your brothers to choose you, have the courage to say so. That took Lord Janus aback. He smiled uncertainly and began to sweat. But Burn Marsh beside him said, Who better to command the black cloaks than the man who once commanded the gold, sire? Any of you, I would think, even the kook. The look the king gave Slint was cold. Janus was hardly the first gold cloak ever to take a bribe, I grant you, but he may have been the first commander to fatten his purse by selling places and promotions. By the end he must have had half the officers in the city watch paying him part of their wages. Isn't that so, Janus? Slint's neck was purpling. Lays, all lays. A strong man makes enemies. Your grace knows that. They whisper lies behind your back. Nought was ever proven. Not a man came forward. Two men, who were prepared to come forward, died suddenly on their rounds. Stannis narrowed his eyes. Do not trifle with me, my lord. I saw the proof John Aaron laid before the small council. If I had been king, you would have lost more than your office, I promise you. But Robert shrugged away your little lapses. They all steal. I recall him saying, Better a thief we know than one we don't. The next man might be worse. Lord Pattaya's words in my brother's mouth, I'll warrant. Littlefinger had a nose for gold, and I'm certain he arranged matters so the crown profited as much from your corruption as you did yourself. Lord Slint's jowls were quivering, but before he could frame a further protest, Maester Eamon said, your grace, by law, a man's past crimes and transgressions are wiped clean when he says his words and becomes a sworn brother of the Night's Watch. I am aware of that. If it happens that Lord Janus here is the best the Night's Watch can offer, I shall grit my teeth and choke him down. It is not to me which man of you has chosen, so long as you make a choice. We have a war to fight. Your grace said Sir Dennis Malister, in tones of weary courtesy. If you are speaking of the wildlings, I am not, and you know that, sir. 
and you must know that whilst we are thankful for the aid you rendered us against Mansreda, we can offer you no help in your contest for the throne. The Night's Watch takes no part in the wars of the Seven Kingdoms. For eight thousand years— I know your history, Sir Dennis, the king said brusquely. I give you my word. I shall not ask you to lift your swords against any of the rebels and usurpers who plague me. I do expect that you will continue to defend the wall, as you always have. We'll defend the wall to the last men, said Cutter Pike. Core probably me, eh? said Dolores Ed in a resigned tone. Stannis crossed his arms. I shall require a few other things from you as well. Things that you may not be so quick to give. I want your castles. And I want the gift. Those blunt words burst among the Black Brothers like a pot of wildfire tossed onto a brazier. Marsh, Malister, and Pike all tried to speak at once. King Stannis let them talk. When they were done, he said, I've three chimes of men you do. I can take the lands if I wish, but I would prefer to do this legally, with your consent. The gift was given to the Night's Watch in perpetuity, Your Grace, Bowen Marsh insisted, which means it cannot be lawfully seized, attainted, or taken from you. But what was given once can be given again. What will you do with the gift? demanded Cutter Pike. Make better use of it than you have. As to the castles, East Watch, Castle Black, and the Shadow Tower shall remain yours. Garrison them as you always have, but I must take the others for my garrisons if we are to hold the wall. You do not have the men, objected Bowen Marsh. Some of the abandoned castles are scarce more than ruins, said Othel Yarvik, the first builder. Ruins can be rebuilt. "'Rebuilt,' Yarvik said. "'But who will do the work?' "'That is my concern. "'I shall require a list from you "'detailing the present state of every castle "'and what might be required to restore it. "'I mean to have them all garrisoned again "'within the year, "'and night fires burning before their gates.' "'Night fires?' "'Bowen Marsh gave Melisande an uncertain look. "'Where to light night fires now?' "'You are,' the woman rose in the swirl of scarlet silk, her long copper-bright hair tumbling about her shoulders. "'Swords alone cannot hold this darkness back. Only the light of the Lord can do that. Make no mistake, good sirs and valiant brothers. The war we've come to fight is no petty squabble over lands and honours. Ours is a war for life itself, and should we fail, the world dies with us.' The officers did not know how to take that, Sam could see. Bowen Marsh and Othel Yarvik exchanged a doubtful look. Janus Slint was fuming, and Three-Finger Hub looked as though he would sooner be back chopping carrots. But all of them seemed surprised to hear Maester Eamon murmur, It is the war for the dawn you speak of, my lady. But where is the prince that was promised? He stands before you. Melisande declared, though you do not have the eyes to see. Stannis Baratheon is Azor Ahai come again, the warrior of fire. In him the prophecies are fulfilled. The Red Comet 
blazed across the sky to herald his coming, and he bears Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes. Her words seemed to make the king desperately uncomfortable, Samsor. Stannis ground his teeth and said, You called, and I came, my lord. Now you must live with me or die with me. Best get used to that. He made a brusque gesture. That's all. Maester, stay a moment. And you, Tarly. The rest of you may go. Me? Sam thought, stricken, as his brothers were bowing and making their way out. What does he want with me? You are the one that killed the creature in the snow, King Stannis said, when only the four of them remained. Sam the Slayer. Medicine smiled. Sam felt his face turning red. No, my lady, your grace, I mean. I am, yes, my, I'm Samuel Tarley, yes. Your father is an able soldier, King Stannis said. He defeated my brother once at Ashford. Mace Tyrell has been pleased to claim the honours for that victory, but Lord Randall had decided matters before Tyrell ever found the battlefield. He slew Lord Catherine with that great Valerian sword of his, and sent his head to Ares. The king rubbed his jaw with a finger. You are not the sort of son I would expect such a man to have. I, uh, I'm not the sort of son he wanted, sire. If he had not taken the black, you would make a useful hostage, Stannis mused. He has taken the black, sire, Maester Aemon pointed out. I am well aware of that, the king said. I'm aware of more than you know, Aemon Targaryen. The old man inclined his head. I am only Aemon, sire. We give up our house names when we forge our maester's chains. The king gave that a curt nod, as if to say he knew and did not care. You slew this creature with an obsidian dagger, I'm told, he said to Sam. Uh, yeah, yes, your grace. Jon Snow gave it to me. Dragongloss, the red woman's laugh was music. Frozen fire in the tongue of old Valyria. Small wonder it is anathema to these cold children of the other. On Dragonstone, where I had my seat, there is much of this obsidian to be seen in the old tunnels beneath the mountain, the king told Sam. Chunks of it, boulders, ledges. The great part of it was black, as I recall, but there was some green as well, some red, even purple. I have sent word to Sir Roland, my castellan, to begin mining it. I will not hold Dragonstone for very much longer, I fear, but perhaps the Lord of Light shall grant us enough frozen fire to arm ourselves against these creatures before the castle falls. Sam cleared his throat. Sire, the dagger... The dragon glass only shattered when I tried to stab a white. Melisande smiled. Necromancy animates these whites, yet they are still only dead flesh. Steel and fire will serve for them. The ones you call the others are something more. Demons made of snow and ice and cold, said Stannis Baratheon. The ancient enemy. The only enemy that matters. He considered Sam again. I'm told that you and this wilding girl 
passed beneath the wall through some magic gate. Uh, the, the black gate, Sam stammered. B below the night fort. The night fort is the largest and oldest of the castles on the wall, the king said. That is where I intend to make my seat whilst I fight this war. You will show me this gate. I, said Sam, I w will if... If it's still there, if it will open for a man not of the black, if... You will, snapped Stannis. I shall tell you when. Maester Eamon smiled. Your Grace, he said, before we go, I wonder if you would do us the great honour of showing us this wondrous blade we have all heard so very much of. You want to see Lightbringer? A blind man? Sam shall be my eyes. The king frowned. Everyone else has seen the thing. Why not a blind man? His sword belt and scabbard hung from a peg near the hearth. He took the belt down and drew the longsword out. Steel scraped against wood and leather, and radiance filled the solar. Shimmering, shifting, a dance of gold and orange and red light, all the bright colours of fire. Tell me, Samuel, Maester Eamon touched his arm. It glows, said Sam, in a hushed voice, as if it were on fire. There are no flames, but the steel is yellow and red and orange, all flashing and glimmering, like sunshine and water, but prettier. I wish you could see it, Maester. I see it now, Sam. A sword full of sunlight, so lovely to behold. The old man bowed stiffly. Your grace, my lady, that was most kind of you. When King Stannis sheathed the shining sword, the room seemed to grow very dark, despite the sunlight streaming through the window. Very well, you've seen it. You may return to your duties now, and remember what I said. Your brothers will choose a lord commander tonight, or I shall make them wish they had. Maester Eamon was lost in thought as Sam helped him down the narrow turnpike stair. But as they were crossing the yard, he said, I felt no heat. Did you, Sam? Eat from the sword, he thought back. The air around it was shimmering, the way it does above a hot brazier. Yet you felt no heat, did you? And the scabbard that held the sword, it is wood and leather, yes? I heard the sound when his grace drew out the blade. Was the leather scorched, Sam? Did the wood seem burnt or blackened? No, Sam admitted. Not that I could see. Mr. Amon nodded. Back in his own chambers, he asked Sam to set a fire and help him to his chair beside the hearth. It is hard to be so old. He sighed as he settled onto the cushion. And harder still to be so blind. I miss the sun and books. I miss books most of all. Eamon waved a hand. I shall have no more need of you till the choosing. The choosing? Maester, isn't there something you could do? What the king said of Lord Janus? I recall, Maester Eamon said, but, Sam, I am a maester, chained and sworn. 
My duty is to counsel the Lord Commander, whoever he might be. It would not be proper for me to be seen to favour one contender over another. I'm not a maester, said Sam. Could I do something? Eamon turned his blind white eyes towards Sam's face and smiled softly. Why, I don't know, Sam will. Could you? I could, Sam thought. I have to. He had to do it right away, too. If he hesitated, he was certain to lose his courage. I am a man of the night's watch, he reminded himself as he hurried across the yard. I am. I can do this. There had been a time when he had quaked and squeaked if Lord Mormont so much as looked at him, but that was the old Sam, before the fist of the first men and Craster's keep, before the whites and cold hands and the other on his dead horse. He was braver now. Killy made me braver, he told John. It was true. It had to be true. Cutter Pike was the scarier of the two commanders, so Sam went to him first, while his courage was still hot. He found him in the old shield hall, dicing with three of his east watchmen, and a red-headed sergeant who had come from Dragonstone with Stannis. When Sam begged leave to speak with him, though, Pike barked an order, and the others took the dice and coins and left them. No man would ever call Cutter Pike handsome, though the body under his studded brigantine and rough-spun breeches was lean and hard and wiry strong. His eyes were small and close-set, his nose broken, his widow's peak as sharply pointed as the head of a spear. The pox had ravaged his face badly, and the beard he'd grown to hide the scars was thin and scraggly. "'Sam the Slayer,' he said by way of greeting, "'are you sure you stabbed another?' "'and not some child snow knight?' "'This isn't starting well.' "'It was a dragon glass that killed it, my lord,' Sam explained feebly. "'Aye, no doubt. Well, out with it, Slayer. Did the maester send you to me?' "'The maester?' Sam swallowed. "'I—I I just left him, my lord.' "'That wasn't truly a lie. But if Pike chose to read it wrong—' it might make him more inclined to listen. Sam took a deep breath and launched into his plea. Pike cut him off before he said twenty words. You want me to kneel down and kiss the hem of Malister's pretty cloak, is that it? I might have known. Your lordlings all flock like sheep. Well, tell Eamon that he's wasted your breath and my time. If anyone withdraws, it should be Malister. The man's too bloody old for the job. Maybe you're to go tell him that. Eh? We choose him, and we're like to be back here in a year choosing someone else. He's old, Sam agreed, but he's well ex-experienced. As sitting in his tower and fussing over maps, maybe. What does he plan to do, write letters to the whites? He's a knight. Well and good, but he's not a fighter, and I don't give a kettle of piss who he unhorsed in some fool tawny fifty years ago. The half-hand fought all his battles. Even an old blind man should see that. And we need a fighter more than ever with this bloody king on top of us. Today it's ruins and empty fields. Well and good, 
but what will his grace want come the morrow? You think Malister has the belly to stand up to Stannis Baratheon and that red bitch? He laughed. I don't. You won't support him then, said Sam, dismayed. Are you Sam the Slayer or Deaf Dick? No, I won't support him. Pike jabbed a finger at his face. Understand this, boy. I don't want the bloody job, and never did. I fight best with a deck beneath me, not a horse, and Castle Black is too far from the sea. But I'll be buggered with a red-hot sword before I turn the Night's Watch over to that preening eagle from the Shadow Tower. And you can run back to the old man and tell him I said so, if he asks. He stood, get out of my sight. It took all the courage Sam had left in him to say, what, what if there was someone else? Could you su su support someone else? Who? Bowen Marsh? The man counts spoons. Arthur's a follower, does what he's told, and does it well, but no more than that. Slint? Well, his men liked him, I grant you, and it would almost be worth it to stick him down the royal claw and see if Stannis gagged. But now, there's too much of King's Landing in that one. A toad grows wings and thinks he's a bloody dragon. Pike laughed. Who does that leave? Hub? We could pick him, I suppose. Only then, who's going to boil your mutton slayer? <laughs> you look like a man who likes his bloody mutton. There was nothing more to say. Defeated, Sam could only stammer out his thanks and take his leave. I will do better with Sir Dennis, he tried to tell himself as he walked through the castle. Sir Dennis was a knight, high-born and well-spoken, and he treated Sam most courteously when he'd found him and Gilly on the road. Sir Dennis will listen to me, he has to. The commander of the Shadow Tower had been born beneath the booming tower of Seaguard, and looked every inch a Malister. Sable trimmed his collar and accented the sleeves of his black velvet doublet. A silver eagle fastened its claws in the gathered folds of his cloak. His beard was white as snow, his hair was largely gone, and his face was deeply lined, it was true. Yet he still had grace in his movements and teeth in his mouth, and the years had dimmed neither his blue-gray eyes nor his courtesy. "'My lord of Tarly,' he said, when his steward brought Sam to him in the lance, where the Shadow Tower men were staying. "'I'm pleased to see that you've recovered from your ordeal. Might I offer you a cup of wine? Your lady mother is a Florent, I recall. One day I must tell you about the time I unhorsed both of your grandfathers in the same tawny. Not today, though. <laughs> I know we have more pressing concerns. You come from Maester Amon, to be sure.' Does he have counsel to offer me? Sam took a sip of wine and chose his words with care. A maester chained and sworn, it would not be proper for him to be seen as having influenced the choice of Lord Commander. The old knight smiled. Which is why he has not come to me himself. Yes, I quite understand, Samuel. Eamon and I are both old men and wise in such matters. Say what you came to say. The wine was sweet, 
and Sir Dennis listened to Sam's plea with grave courtesy, unlike Cotter Pike. But when he was done, the old knight shook his head. I agree that it would be a dark day in our history if a king were to name our Lord Commander. This king especially. He's not like to keep his crown for long, but truly, Samuel, it ought to be Pike who withdraws. I have more support than he does, and I am better suited to the office. You are, Sam agreed. But Cutter Pike might serve. It's said that he has oft proved himself in battle. He did not mean to offend Sir Dennis by praising his rival, but how else could he convince him to withdraw? Many of my brothers have proved themselves in battle. It is not enough. Some matters cannot be settled with a battle-axe. Maester Eamon will understand that, though Cutter Pike does not. The Lord Commander of the Night's Watch is a lord, first and foremost. He must be able to treat with other lords, and with kings as well. He must be a man worthy of respect. Sir Dennis leaned forward. We are the sons of great lords, you and I. We know the importance of birth, blood, and that early training that can ne'er be replaced. I was a squire at twelve, a knight at eighteen, a champion at two-and-twenty. I have been the commander at the Shadow Tower for thirty-three years. Blood, birth, and training have fitted me to deal with kings. Pike, well, <laughs> did you hear him this morning? <laughs> "'asking if his grace would wipe his bottom. <laughs> "'Samuel, it's not my habit to speak unkindly, my brothers, "'but let us be frank. "'The Ironborn are a race of pirates and thieves, "'and Cutterpike was raping and murdering "'when he was still half a boy. "'Mr. Harmoon reads and writes his letters, "'and has for years. "'No, loath as I am to disappoint Mr. Eamon, I could not in honour stand aside for Pike of Eastwatch. This time Sam was ready. Might you for someone else, if it was someone more suitable? Sir Dennis considered a moment. I have never desired the honour for its own sake. At the last choosing, I stepped aside gratefully when Lord Mormont's name was offered, just as I had for Lord Corgill. "'Net the choosing before that. "'So long as the night's watch remains in good hands, I am content. "'But Baron Marsh is not equal to the task, no more than Othel Yarvik. "'And this so-called Lord of Harrenhal is a butcher's whelp, "'upjumped by the Lannisters. "'Small wonder he is venal and corrupt. "'There is another man,' Sam blurted out. "'Lord Commander Mormont trusted him.' So did Donald Noy and Curran Halfhand. Though he's not as highly born as you, he comes from old blood. He was castle-born and castle-raised, and he learned sword and lance from a knight and letters from a maester of the citadel. His father was a lord, and his brother a king. Sir Dennis stroked his long white beard. Mayhaps, he said after a long moment, he is very young, but... Mm, mayhaps he might serve, I grant you. Though I would be more suitable, I have no doubt of that. I would be the wiser choice. John said there could be honour in a lie if it were told for the right reason. Sam said 
if we do not choose a Lord Commander tonight, King Stannis means to name Cutter Pike. He said as much to Maester Eamon this morning, after all of you had left. I see, Sir Dennis Rose. I must think on this. Thank you, Samuel, and give my thanks to Maester Eamon as well. Sam was trembling by the time he left the lance. What have I done? he thought. What have I said? If they caught him in his lie, they would... What? Send me to the wall? Rip my entrails out? Turn me into a white? Suddenly it all seemed absurd. How could he be so frightened of Cutter Pike and Sir Dennis Malister, when he had seen a raven eating Small Paul's face? Pike was not pleased by his return. You again! Make it quick! You are starting to annoy me! I only need a moment more, Sam promised. You won't withdraw for Sir Dennis, you said, but you might for someone else. Who's it this time, Slayer? You? No, a fighter. Dunalnoy gave him the wall when the wildlings came, and he was the old bear squire. The only thing is, he's bastard-born. Cutterpike laughed. Bloody hell! That would shove a spear up Malister's arse, wouldn't it? Might be worth it just for that. <laughs> How bad could the boy be? <coughs> he snorted. I'd be better, though. I'm what's needed. Any fool can see that. Any fool, Sam agreed. Even me. But, well, I shouldn't be telling you, but... King Stannis means to force a Dennis on us if we do not choose a man tonight. I heard him tell Maester Eamon that, after the rest of you were sent away. John Iron Emmet was a long, lanky young ranger whose endurance, strength, and swordsmanship were the pride of East Watch. John always came away from their sessions stiff and sore, and woke the next day covered with bruises, which was just the way he wanted it. He would never get any better going up against the likes of Satin and Horse, or even Gren. Most days he gave as good as he got, John liked to think, but not today. He had hardly slept last night, and after an hour of restless tossing, he had given up the attempt, dressed and walked to the top of the wall till the sun came up, wrestling with Stannis Baratheon's offer. The lack of sleep was catching up with him now, and Emmett was hammering him mercilessly across the yard, driving him back on his heels with one long looping cut after another, and slamming him with his shield from time to time for good measure. John's arm had gone numb from the shock of impact, and the edgeless practice sword seemed to be growing heavier with every passing moment. He was almost ready to lower his blade and call a halt, when Emmett fainted low and came in over his shield with a savage forehand slash that caught John on the temple. He staggered, his helm and head both ringing from the force of the blow. For half a heartbeat, the world beyond his eye slit was a blur. And then the years were gone, and he was back at Winterfell once more, wearing a quilted leather coat in place of mail and plate. His sword was made of wood, and it was Rob who stood facing him, not Iron Emmet. 
Every morning they had trained together since they were big enough to walk. Snow and Stark, spinning and slashing about the wards of Winterfell, shouting and laughing, sometimes crying, when there was no one else to see. They were not little boys when they fought, but knights and mighty heroes. I'm Prince Aemon, the Dragon Knight, John would call out, and Rob would shout back, Well, I'm Florian the Fool. Or Rob would say, I'm the Young Dragon, and John would reply, I'm Sir Ryan Redwine. That morning... He called it first. I'm Lord of Winterfell, he cried, as he had a hundred times before. Only this time, this time, Rob had answered, You can't be the Lord of Winterfell, you're bastard-born. My lady mother says you can't ever be the Lord of Winterfell. I thought I'd forgotten that. John could taste blood in his mouth from the blow he'd taken. In the end, Holder and Horse had to pull him away from Iron Emmet, one man on either arm. The ranger sat on the ground dazed, his shield half in splinters, the visor of his helm knocked askew, and his sword six yards away. "'John, enough!' Halder was shouting. "'He's down! You disarmed him! Enough!' "'No, not enough. Never enough!' John let his sword drop. I "'I'm sorry,' he muttered. Emmet, are you hurt? Iron Emmet pulled his battered helm off. Was there some part of yield you could not comprehend, Lord Snow? It was said amiably, though. Emmet was an amiable man, and he loved the song of swords. Warrior, defend me, he groaned. Now I know how Corrant Halfhand must have felt. That was too much. John wrenched free of his friends and retreated to the armory alone. His ears were still ringing from the blow Emmet had dealt him. He sat on the bench and buried his head in his hands. Why am I so angry? he asked himself. But it was a stupid question. Lord of Winterfell? I could be the Lord of Winterfell, my father's heir. It was not Lord Eddard's face he saw floating before him, though. It was Lady Catelyn's. With her deep blue eyes and hard, cold mouth, she looked a bit like Stannis. Iron, he thought, but brittle. She was looking at him the way she used to look at him at Winterfell, whenever he had bested Robert's swords or sums or most anything. Who are you? That look had always seemed to say. This is not your place. Why are you here? His friends were still out in the practice yard, but John was in no fit state to face them. He left the armory by the back, descending a steep flight of stone steps to the wormways, the tunnels that linked the castle's keeps and towers below the earth. It was a short walk to the bathhouse, where he took a cold plunge to wash the sweat off and soaked in a hot stone tub. The warmth took some of the ache from his muscles and made him think of Winterfell's muddy pools steaming and bubbling in the godswood. Winterfell! he thought. Theon left it burned and broken, but I could restore it. Surely his father would have wanted that, and Rob as well. They would never have wanted the castle left in ruins. You can't be the lord of Winterfell, you're bastard-born, he heard Rob say again, and the stone kings were growling at him with granite tongues. You do not belong here. This is not your place. 
When John closed his eyes, he saw the heart tree with its pale limbs, red leaves, and solemn face. The weirwood was the heart of Winterfell, Lord Eddard always said. But to save the castle, John would have to tear that heart up by its ancient roots and feed it to the red woman's hungry fire guard. I have no right, he thought. Winterfell belongs to the old gods. The sound of voices echoing off the vaulted ceiling brought him back to Castle Black. I don't know, a man was saying, in a voice thick with doubts. Maybe, if I knew the man better, Lord Stannis didn't have much good to see of him, I'll tell you that. When has Stannis Baratheon ever had much good to say of anyone? Sir Alistair's flinty voice was unmistakable. If we let Stannis choose our Lord Commander, we become his bannermen in all but name. Tywin Lannister is not like to forget that, and you know it will be Lord Tywin who wins in the end. He's already beaten Stannis once on the Blackwater. Lord Tywin favours Slint, said Bowen Marsh, in a fretful, anxious voice. I can show you his letter, Othel. Our faithful friend and servant, he called him. Jon Snow sat up suddenly, and the three men froze at the sound of the slush. My lords, he said with cold courtesy. What are you doing here, bastard? Thorne asked. Bathing? But don't let me spoil your plotting. Jon climbed from the water, dried, dressed, and left them to conspire. Outside he found he had no idea where he was going. He walked past the shell of the Lord Commander's tower, where once he'd saved the old bear from a dead man, past the spot where Igret had died, with that sad smile on her face, past the King's Tower, where he and Satin and deaf Dick Fullard had waited for the Magnar and his thens, past the heaped and charred remains of the great wooden stair. The inner gate was open, so John went down the tunnel, through the wall. He could feel the cold around him, the weight of all the ice above his head. He walked past the place where Donald Noy and Mag the Mighty had fought and died together, through the new outer gate and back into the pale, cold sunlight. Only then did he permit himself to stop, to take a breath, to think. Othel Yarwick was not a man of strong convictions, except when it came to wood and stone and mortar. The old bear had known that. Thorn and Marsh will sway him. Yarvik will support Lord Janus, and Lord Janus will be chosen Lord Commander. And what does that leave me, if not Winterfell? A wind swirled against the wall, tugging at his cloak. He could feel the cold coming off the ice the way heat comes off a fire. John pulled up his hood and began to walk again. The afternoon was growing old, and the sun was low in the west. A hundred yards away was the camp where King Stannis had confined his wilding captives within a ring of ditches, sharpened stakes, and high wooden fences. To his left were the three great fire pits where the victors had burned the bodies of all the free folk to die beneath the wall, huge pelted giants and little hornfoot men alike. The killing ground was still a desolation of scorched weeds and hardened pitch, but Mance's people had left traces of themselves everywhere. A torn hide that might have been part of a tent, 
a giant's maul, the wheel of a chariot, a broken spear, a pile of mammoth dung. On the edge of the haunted forest, where the tents had been, John found an oakwood stump and sat. Egret wanted me to be a wilding. Stannis wants me to be the Lord of Winterfell. But what do I want? The sun crept down the sky to dip behind the wall, where it curved through the western hills. John watched as that towering expanse of ice took on the reds and pinks of sunset. Would I sooner be hanged for a turncloak by Lord Janus, or forswear my vows, marry Val, and become the Lord of Winterfell? It seemed an easy choice when he thought of it in those terms, though if Egret had still been alive, it might have been easier. Val was a stranger to him. She was not hard on the eye, certainly, and she had been sister to Mance Raider's queen. But still, I would need to steal her if I wanted her love. But she might give me children. I might some day hold a son of my own blood in my arms. A son was something Jon Snow had never dared dream of, since he decided to live his life on the wall. I could name him Rob. Val would want to keep her sister's son, but we could foster him at Winterfell, and Gilly's boy as well. Sam would never need to tell his lie. We'd find a place for Gilly, too, and Sam could come visit her once a year or so. Mance's son and Crestus would grow up brothers, as I once did with Rob. He wanted it, John knew then. He wanted it as much as he had ever wanted anything. I have always wanted it, he thought guiltily. May the gods forgive me. It was a hunger inside him, sharp as a dragon-glass blade. A hunger. He could feel it. It was food he needed, prey. A red deer that stank of fear, or a great elk, proud and defiant. He needed to kill and fill his belly with fresh meat and hot, dark blood. His mouth began to water with the thought. It was a long moment before he understood what was happening. When he did, he bolted to his feet. Ghost! He turned toward the wood, and there he came, padding silently out of the green dusk, the breath coming warm and white from his open jaws. Ghost! he shouted, and the dire wolf broke into a run. He was leaner than he had been, but bigger as well, and the only sound he made was a soft crunch of dead leaves beneath his paws. When he reached John, he leapt, and they wrestled amidst brown grass and long shadows as the stars came out above them. "'Gods, wolf, where have you been?' John said, when Ghost stopped worrying at his forearm. "'I thought you'd died on me, like Rob and Egret and all the rest. I've had no sense of you, not since I climbed the wall, not even in dreams.' The dire-wolf had no answer, but he licked John's face with a tongue like a wet rasp, and his eyes caught the last light and shone like two great red suns. Red eyes, John realized, but not like Melisande. He had a weirwood's eyes. Red eyes, red mouth, white fur, blood and bone, like a heart tree. He belongs to the old gods, this one and he alone of all the direwolves was white. Six pups they'd found in the late summer snows, him and Rob, 
five that were gray and black and brown for the five Starks, and one white, as white as snow. He had his answer then. Beneath the wall, the Queen's men were kindling their night fire. He saw Melisande emerge from the tunnel with the King beside her, to lead the prayers she believed would keep the dark away. Come, ghost, John told the wolf, with me. You're hungry, I know. I can feel it. They ran together for the gate, circling wide around the night fire, where reaching flames clawed at the black belly of the night. The king's men were much in evidence in the yards of Castle Black. They stopped as John went by and gaped at him. None of them had ever seen a dire wolf before, he realized, and Ghost was twice as large as the common wolves that prowled their southern greenwoods. As he walked towards the armory, John chanced to look up and saw Val standing in her tower window. I'm sorry, he thought. I'm not the man to steal you out of there. In the practice yard, he came upon a dozen king's men with torches and long spears in their hands. The sergeant looked at Ghost and scowled, and a couple of his men lowered their spears until the knight who led them said, Move aside and let them pass. To John he said, You're late for your supper. Then get out of my way, sir, John replied, and he did. He could hear the noise even before he reached the bottom of the steps, raised voices, curses, someone pounding on a table. John stepped into the vault all but unnoticed. His brothers crowded the benches and the tables, but more were standing and shouting than were sitting, and no one was eating. There was no food. What's happening here? Lord Janus Slint was bellying about turncloaks and treason. Iron Emmet stood on a table with a naked sword in his fist. Three-Finger Hub was cursing a ranger from the Shadow Tower. Some East Watchman slammed his fist onto the table again and again, demanding quiet. But all that did was add to the din echoing off the vaulted ceiling. Pip was the first to see John. He grinned at the sight of Ghost, put two fingers in his mouth, and whistled as only a mama's boy could whistle. The shrill sound cut through the clamour like a sword. As John walked toward the tables, more of the brothers took note and fell quiet. A hush fell across the cellar, until the only sounds were John's heels clicking on the stone floor, and the soft crackle of the logs in the hearth. Sir Alistair Thorne shattered the silence. The turncloak graces us with his presence at last. Lord Janus was red-faced and quivering. The beast, he gasped. Look, the beast that tore the life from half-hand. A wag walks amongst us, brothers. A wag. This, this creature is not fit to lead us. This beastling is not fit to live. Ghost bared his teeth, but John put a hand on his head. My lord, he said, will you tell me what's happened here? Maester Eamon answered from the far end of the hall. Your name has been put forth as Lord Commander, John. That was so absurd, John had to smile. By who? he said, looking for his friends. This had to be one of Pip's japes, surely. But Pip shrugged at him, and Gran shook his head. It was Dolores Ed Tullet who stood. 
called by me, I, eh? It's a terrible thing to do to a friend, but better you than me, eh? Lord Janus started sputtering again. This, this is an outrage. We ought to hang this boy. Yes, hang him, I say. Hang him for a turncloak and a wag, along with his friend Mance Reader. Lord Kermander, I will not have it. I will not suffer it. Cutter Pike stood up. You won't suffer it. Might be you had those gold cloaks trained to lick your bloody arse, but you're wearing a black cloak now. Any brother may offer any name for our consideration so long as the man has said his vows, Sir Dennis Malister said. Tollet is well within his rights, my lord. A dozen men started to talk at once, each trying to drown out the others and before long half the hall was shouting once more. This time it was Sir Alistair Thorne who leapt onto the table and raised his hands for quiet. Brothers! he cried. This gains us naught. I say we vote. This king, who has taken the king's tower, has posted men at all the doors to see that we do not eat nor leave till we've made a choice. So be it. We will choose and choose again all night, if need be, until we have our lord. But before we cast our tokens, I believe our first builder has something to say to us. Arthur Yarvik stood up slowly, frowning. The big builder rubbed his long lantern jaw and said, Well, I'm pulling my name out. If you wanted me, you had ten chances to choose me, and you didn't. Not enough of you, anyway. I was going to say that those who are casting a token for me ought to choose Lord Janus. Sir Alistair nodded. Lord Slint is the best possible. I wasn't done, Alistair, Yarwick complained. Lord Slint commanded the city watch in King's Landing, we all know, and he was Lord of Harrenhal. He's never seen Harrenhal, Cutterpike shouted up. Well, that's so said Yarwick. Anyway, now that I'm standing here, I don't recall why I thought Slint would be such a good choice. That would be a sort of kicking King Stannis in the mouth, and I don't see how that serves us. Might be Snow would be better. He's been longer on the wall. He's Ben Stark's nephew, and he's served the old bear as squire. Yarwick shrugged. Pick who you want, just so it's not me. He sat down. Janus Slint had turned from red to purple, John saw, but Sir Alistair Thorne had gone pale. The East Watchman was pounding his fist on the table again, but now he was shouting for the kettle. Some of his friends took up the cry. Kettle! they roared as one. Kettle! 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 The kettle was in the corner by the hearth a big black pot-bellied thing with two huge handles and a heavy lid. Maester Eamon said a word to Sam and Clytus, and they went and grabbed the handles and dragged the kettle over to the table. A few of the brothers were already queuing up by the token barrels as Clytus took the lid off and almost dropped it on his foot. With a raucous scream and a clap of wings, a huge raven burst out of the kettle. It flapped upward, seeking the rafters, perhaps, or a window to make his escape. But there were no rafters in the vault, nor windows either. The raven was trapped. 
cawing loudly, it circled the hall once, twice, three times, and John heard Samuel Tarley shout, "'I know that bird. That's Lord Mormont's raven.' The raven landed on the table nearest John. Snow! it called. It was an old bird, dirty and bedraggled. Snow! it said again. Snow! 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 It walked to the end of the table, spread its wings again, and flew to John's shoulder. Lord Janus Lint sat down so heavily he made a thump, but Sir Alistair filled the vault with mocking laughter. "'Sir Piggy thinks we're all fools, brothers,' he said. "'He's taught the bird this little trick. "'They all say snow. "'Go up to the rookery and hear for yourselves. "'Mormont's bird had more words than that.' "'The raven cocked its head and looked at John. "'Corn!' it said, hopefully. "'When it got neither corn nor answer, it quarked and muttered, "'Kettle! Kettle! Kettle!' The rest was arrowheads, a torrent of arrowheads, a flood of arrowheads, arrowheads enough to drown the last few stones and shells, and all the copper pennies, too. When the count was done, John found himself surrounded. Some clapped him on the back, whilst others bent the knee to him, as if he were a lord in truth. Satin, Owen the Oath, Halder, Toad, Spareboot, Giant, Mully, Ulmer of the Kingswood, Sweet Donnell Hill, and half a hundred more pressed around him. Dywin clacked his wooden teeth and said, "'Gulch be good. Our Lord command us still in swaddling clothes.' Iron Emmett said, "'I hope this don't mean I can't beat the bloody piss out of you next time we train, my lord.' Three-Finger Hub wanted to know if he'd still be eating with the men, or if he'd want his meal sent up to Solar. Even Bowen Marsh came up to say he would be glad to continue as Lord Stuart if that was Lord Snow's wish. "'Lord Snow,' said Cotterpike, "'if you muck this up, I'm going to rip your liver out and eat it raw with onions.' Sir Dennis Malister was more courteous. "'It was a hard thing, young Samuel Astromy,' the old knight confessed. "'When Lord Corgill was chosen, I told myself, no matter,' He's been on the wall longer than you have. Your time will come. When it was Lord Mormont, I thought, He's strong and fierce, but he's old. Your time may yet come. But you're half a boy, Lord Snow, and now I must return to the Shadow Tower, knowing that my time will never come. He smiled, a tired smile. Do not make me die regretful. Your uncle was a great man. "'Your Lord Father, and his father as well. "'I shall expect full as much of you.' "'Aye,' said Cotterpike, "'and you can start by telling those king's men that it's done, "'and we want our bloody supper.' "'Supper!' screamed the raven. "'Supper! Supper!' "'The king's men cleared the door when they told them of the choosing.' and Three-Finger Hub and half a dozen helpers went trotting off to the kitchen to fetch the food. John did not wait to eat. He walked across the castle, wondering if he were dreaming, with the raven on his shoulder and ghost at his heels. Pip, Gren, and Sam trailed after him, chattering. But he hardly heard a word until Gren whispered, "'Sam did it!' And Pip said, "'Sam did it!' 
Pippet brought a wineskin with him, and he took a long drink and chanted, Sam, Sam the Wizard, Sam the Wonder, Sam, Sam the Marvel Man, he did it. But when did you hide the raven in the kettle, Sam? And how in seven hells could you be certain it would fly to John? It would have mucked up everything if the bird had decided to perch on Janus Slint's fat head. I had nothing to do with a bird, Sam insisted. When it flew out of the kettle, I almost wet myself. John laughed, half amazed that he still remembered how. You're all a bunch of mad fools. Do you know that? Us, said Pip. You call us fools? We're not the ones who got chosen as the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. You'd best have some wine, Lord John. I think you're going to need a lot of wine. So John Snow took the wineskin from his hand and had a swallow, but only one. The wall was his. The night was dark, and he had a king to face. Sansa She awoke all at once, every nerve a tingle. For a moment she did not remember where she was. She had dreamt that she was little, still sharing a bedchamber with her sister Arya. But it was her maid she heard tossing in sleep, not her sister. And this was not Winterfell, but the Eyrie. And I am Elaine Stone, a bastard girl. The room was cold and black, though she was warm beneath the blankets. Dawn had not yet come. Sometimes she dreamed of Sir Ilian Payne and woke with her heart thumping. But this dream had not been like that. Home. It was a dream of home. The area was no home. It was no bigger than Magor's Holfast, but outside its sheer white walls was only the mountain and the long, treacherous descent past sky and snow and stone to the gates of the moon on the valley floor. There was no place to go and little to do. The older servant said these halls rang with laughter when her father and Robert Baratheon had been John Aaron's wards, but those days were many years gone. Her aunt kept a small household and seldom permitted any guest to ascend past the gates of the moon. Aside from her aged maid, Sansa's only companion was the Lord Robert, eight going on three. And Marillion. There is always Marillion. When he played for them at supper, the young singer often seemed to be singing directly at her. Her aunt was far from pleased. Lady Elisa doted on Marillion, and had banished two serving girls and even a page for telling lies about him. Lysa was as lonely as she was. Her new husband seemed to spend more time at the foot of the mountain than he did atop it. He was gone now, had been gone the past four days, meeting with the Corbrys. From bits and pieces of overheard conversations, Sansa knew that John Aaron's bannermen resented Lysa's marriage and begrudged Petar his authority as Lord Protector of the Vale. The senior branch of House Royce was close to open revolt over her aunt's failure to aid Rob in his war, and the Wainwoods, Red Forts, Belmores, and Templetons were giving them every support. The mountain clans were being troublesome as well, and old Lord Hunter had died so suddenly that his two younger sons 
were accusing their elder brother of having murdered him. The Vale of Aaron might have been spared the worst of the war, but it was hardly the idyllic place that Lady Lysa had made it out to be. I am not going back to sleep, Sansa realized. My head is all a tumult. She pushed her pillow away reluctantly, threw back the blankets, went to her window, and opened the shutters. Snow was falling on the Eyrie. Outside the flakes drifted down as soft and silent as memory. Was this what woke me? Already the snowfall lay thick upon the garden below, blanketing the grass, dusting the shrubs and statues with white, and weighing down the branches of the trees. The sight took Sansa back to cold nights long ago in the long summer of her childhood. She had last seen snow the day she'd left Winterfell. That was a lighter fall than this, she remembered. Rob had melting flakes in his hair when he hugged me, and the snowball Arya tried to make kept coming apart in her hands. It hurt to remember how happy she had been that morning. Helen had helped her mount, and she'd ridden out with the snowflakes swirling around her, off to see the great wide world. I thought my song was beginning that day, but it was almost done. Sansa left the shutters open as she dressed. It would be cold, she knew, though the area's towers encircled the garden and protected it from the worst of the mountain winds. She donned silken small clothes and a linen shift, and over that a warm dress of blue lambswool. Two pairs of hose for her legs, boots that laced up to her knees, heavy leather gloves, and finally a hooded cloak of soft white fox fur. Her maid rolled herself more tightly in her blanket as the snow began to drift in the window. Sansa eased open the door and made her way down the winding stair. When she opened the door to the garden, it was so lovely that she held her breath, unwilling to disturb such perfect beauty. The snow drifted down and down, all in ghostly silence, and lay thick and unbroken on the ground. All colour had fled the world outside. It was a place of whites and blacks and greys, white towers and white snow and white statues, black shadows and black trees, the dark grey sky above. A pure world, Sansa thought. I do not belong here. Yet she stepped out all the same. Her boots tore ankle-deep holes into the smooth, white surface of the snow, yet made no sound. Sansa drifted past frosted shrubs and thin, dark trees, and wondered if she was still dreaming. Drifting snowflakes brushed her face as light as lover's kisses, and melted on her cheeks. At the centre of the garden, beside the statue of the weeping woman, that lay broken and half-buried on the ground, she turned her face up to the sky and closed her eyes. She could feel the snow on her lashes, taste it on her lips. It was the taste of Winterfell, the taste of innocence, the taste of dreams. When Sansa opened her eyes again, she was on her knees. She did not remember falling. It seemed to her that the sky was a lighter shade of grey. Dawn, she thought. Another day. Another new day. It was the old days she hungered for, 
prayed for. But who could she pray to? The garden had been meant for a godswood once, she knew. But the soil was too thin and stony for a weirwood to take root. A godswood without gods, as empty as me. She scooped up a handful of snow and squeezed it between her fingers. Heavy and wet, the snow packed easily. Sansa began to make snowballs, shaping and smoothing them until they were round and white and perfect. She remembered a summer's snow in Winterfell, when Arian Bran had ambushed her as she emerged from the keep one morning. They'd each had a dozen snowballs to hand, and she'd had none. Bran had been perched on the roof of the covered bridge out of reach, but Sansa had chased Arya through the stables and around the kitchen until both of them were breathless. She might even have caught her, but she slipped on some ice. Her sister came back to see if she was hurt. When she said she wasn't, Arya hit her in the face with another snowball, but Sansa grabbed her leg and pulled her down and was rubbing snow in her hair when Jory came along and pulled them apart, laughing. What do I want with snowballs? She looked at her sad little arsenal. There's no one to throw them at. She let the one she was making drop from her hand. I could build a snow knight instead, she thought, or even... She pushed two of her snowballs together, added a third, packed more snow in around them, and patted the whole thing into the shape of a cylinder. When it was done, she stood it on end and used the tip of her little finger to poke holes in it for windows. The crenellations around the top took a little more care, but when they were done, she had a tower. I need some walls now, Sansa thought, and then a keep, she set to work. The snow fell and the castle rose. Two walls ankle-high, the inner taller than the outer, towers and turrets, keeps and stairs, a round kitchen, a square armory, the stables along the inside of the west wall. It was only a castle when she began, but before very long Sansa knew it was Winterfell. She found twigs and fallen branches beneath the snow and broke off the ends to make the trees for the godswood. For the gravestones in the lichyard she used bits of bark. Soon her gloves and her boots were crusty white, her hands were tingling, and her feet were soaked and cold, but she did not care. The castle was all that mattered. Some things were hard to remember, but most came back to her easily, as if she had been there only yesterday. The library tower, with a steep stonework stair twisting about its exterior. The gatehouse, two huge bulwarks, the arched gate between them, crenellations all along the top. And all the while the snow kept falling, piling up in drifts around her buildings as fast as she raised them. She was patting down the pitched roof of the great hall when she heard a voice and looked up to see her maid calling from her window. Was my lady well? Did she wish to break her fast? Sansa shook her head and went back to shaping snow, adding a chimney to one end of the great hall where the hearth would stand inside. Dawn stole into her garden like a thief. The grey of the sky grew lighter still, and the trees and shrubs turned a dark green beneath their stoles of snow. A few servants came out and watched her for a time, but she paid them no mind, 
and they soon went back inside, where it was warmer. Sansa saw Lady Lysa gazing down from her balcony, wrapped up in a blue velvet robe trimmed with fox fur, but when she looked again, her aunt was gone. Maester Coleman popped out of the rookery and peered down for a while, skinny and shivering but curious. Her bridges kept falling down. There was a covered bridge between the armory and the main keep, and another that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower to the second floor of the rookery. But no matter how carefully she shaped them, they would not hold together. The third time one collapsed on her, she cursed aloud and sat back in helpless frustration. Pack the snow around a stick, Sansa. She did not know how long he had been watching her, or when he had returned from the Vale. A, a stick? she asked. That will give it strength enough to stand, I think, Pataya said. May I come into your castle, milady? Sansa was weary. Don't break it, be gentle, he smiled. Winterfell has withstood fiercer enemies than me. It is Winterfell, is it not? Yes, Sansa admitted. He walked along outside the walls. I used to dream of it in those years after Cat went north with Eddard Stark. In my dreams, it was ever a dark place and cold. No, it was always warm, even when it snowed. Water from the hot springs is piped through the walls to warm them, and inside the glass gardens it was always like the hottest day of summer. She stood towering over the great white castle. I can't think how to do the glass roof over the gardens. Littlefinger stroked his chin where his beard had been before Lysa had asked him to shave it off. The glass was locked in frames, no? Twigs are your answer. Peel them and cross them and use bark to tie them together into frames. I'll show you. He moved through the garden, gathering up twigs and sticks and shaking the snow from them. When he had enough, he stepped over both walls with a single long stride and squatted on his heels in the middle of the yard. Sansa came closer to watch what he was doing. His hands were deft and sure, and before long he had a criss-crossing latticework of twigs, very like the one that roofed the glass gardens of Winterfell. We will need to imagine the glass, to be sure, he said when he gave it to her. This is just right, she said. He touched her face. And so is that. Sansa did not understand. And so is what? Your smile, my lady. Shall I make another for you? If you would, nothing could please me more. She raised the walls of the glass gardens while Littlefinger roofed them over, and when they were done with that, he helped her extend the walls and build the guards' hall. When she used sticks for the covered bridges, they stood, just as he had said they would. The first keep was simple enough, an old round drum tower, but Sansa was stymied again when it came to putting the gargoyles around the top. Again he had the answer. It's been snowing on your castle, milady, he pointed out. What do gargoyles look like when they're covered with snow? Sansa closed her eyes to see them in memory. They're just white lumps. Well, then, gargoyles are hard, but white lumps should be easy. And they were. 
The broken tower was easier still. They made a tall tower together, kneeling side by side to roll it smooth, and when they raised it, Sansa stuck her fingers through the top, grabbed a handful of snow, and flung it full in his face. Patar yelped as the snow slid down under his collar. That was unchivalrously done, my lady. As was bringing me here when you swore to take me home. She wondered where this courage had come from, to speak to him so frankly. From Winterfell, she thought. I am stronger within the walls of Winterfell. His face grew serious. Yes, I played you false in that, and in one other thing as well. Sansa's stomach was a flutter. What other thing? I told you that nothing could please me more than to help you with your castle. I fear that was a lie as well. Something else would please me more. He stepped closer. This. Sansa tried to step back, but he pulled her into his arms, and suddenly he was kissing her. Feebly, she tried to squirm, but only succeeded in pressing herself more tightly against him. His mouth was on hers, swallowing her words. He tasted of mint. For half a heartbeat, she yielded to his kiss, before she turned her face away and wrenched free. What are you doing? Pattaya straightened his cloak. Kissing a snowmaid. You're supposed to kiss her, Sansa glanced up at Lysa's balcony. But it was empty now. Your lady wife. I do. Lysa has no cause for complaint. He smiled. I wish you could see yourself, my lady. You are so beautiful. You're crusted over with snow like some little bear cub. But your face is flushed, and you can scarcely breathe. How long have you been out here? You must be very cold. Let me warm you, Sansa. Take off those gloves. Give me your hands. I won't. He sounded almost like Marillion, the night he'd gotten so drunk at the wedding. Only this time Lothar Brune would not appear to save her. Sir Lothar was Pattaya's man. You shouldn't kiss me. I might have been your own daughter. Might have been, he admitted with a rueful smile. But you're not, are you? your Eddard Stark's daughter, and Cat's. But I think you might be even more beautiful than your mother was when she was your age. Pattaya, please. Her voice sounded so weak. Please. A castle. The voice was loud, shrill, and childish. Littlefinger turned away from her. Lord Robert, he sketched a bow. Should you be out in the snow without your gloves? Did you make the snow castle, Lord Littlefinger? Elaine did most of it, my lord. Sansa said, It's meant to be Winterfell. Winterfell? Robert was small for eight, a stick of a boy with splotchy skin and eyes that were always runny. Under one arm he clutched the threadbare cloth doll he carried everywhere. Winterfell is the seat of House Stark, Sansa told her husband-to-be. The great castle of the north. It's not so great. The boy knelt before the gatehouse. Look, here comes a giant to knock it down. He stood his doll in the snow and moved it jerkily. Trump, Trump, I'm a giant, I'm a giant. He chanted. Ho, 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 open your gates or I'll mash them and smash them. 
Swinging the doll by the legs, he knocked the top off one gatehouse tower and then the other. It was more than Sansa could stand. Robert, stop that! Instead, he swung the doll again, and a foot of wall exploded. She grabbed for his hand, but she caught the doll instead. There was a loud ripping sound as the thin cloth tore. Suddenly, she had the doll's head. Robert had the legs and body, and the rag and sawdust stuffing were spilling in the snow. Lord Robert's mouth trembled. You killed him! he wailed. Then he began to shake. It started with no more than a little shivering, but within a few short heartbeats he had collapsed across the castle, his limbs flailing about violently. White towers and snowy bridges shattered and fell on all sides. Sansa stood horrified, but Pataya Baelish seized her cousin's wrists and shouted for the maester. Guards and serving girls arrived within instants to help restrain the boy. Maester Coleman a short time later. Robert Aaron's shaking sickness was nothing new to the people of the area, and Lady Lysa had trained them all to come rushing at the boy's first cry. The maester held the little lord's hand and gave him half a cup of dream wine, murmuring soothing words. Slowly, the violence of the fit seemed to ebb away till nothing remained but a small shaking of the hands. Help him to my chambers, Coleman told the guards. A leechin would help calm him. It was my fault, Sansa showed them the doll's head. I, I ripped his doll in two. I never meant to, but... His lordship was destroying the castle, said Pataya. A giant, the boy whispered, weeping. It wasn't me. It was a giant hurt the castle. She killed him. I hate her. She's a bastard, and I hate her. I don't want to be leeched. My lord, your blood needs thinning, said Maester Coleman. It is the bad blood that makes you angry, and the rage that brings on the shaking. Come now. They led the boy away. My lord husband, Sansa thought, as she contemplated the ruins of Winterfell. The snow had stopped, and it was colder than before. She wondered if Lord Robert would shake all through their wedding. At least Joffrey was sound of body. A mad rage seized hold of her. She picked up a broken branch and smashed the torn doll's head down on top of it, then pushed it down atop the shattered gatehouse of her snow castle. The servants looked aghast, but when Littlefinger saw what she'd done, he laughed. If the tales be true, that's not the first giant to end up with his head on Winterfell's walls. Those are only stories, she said, and left him there. Back in her bedchamber, Sansa took off her cloak and her wet boots and sat beside the fire. She had no doubt that she would be mayor to answer for Lord Robert's fit. Perhaps Lady Lysa will send me away. Her aunt was quick to banish anyone who displeased her, and nothing displeased her quite so much as people she suspected of mistreating her son. Sansa would have welcomed banishment. The gates of the moon were much larger than the airy, and livelier as well. Lord Nestor Royce seemed gruff and stern, but his daughter, Miranda, kept his castle for him, and everyone said how frolicsome she was. 
Even Sansa's supposed bastardy might not count too much against her, below. One of King Robert's baseborn daughters was in service to Lord Nestor, and she and the Lady Miranda were said to be fast friends, as close as sisters. I will tell my aunt that I don't want to marry Robert. Not even the High Septon himself could declare a woman married if she refused to say the vows. She wasn't a beggar, no matter what her aunt said. She was thirteen, a woman flowered and wed, the heir to Winterfell. Sansa felt sorry for her little cousin sometimes, but she could not imagine ever wanting to be his wife. I would sooner be married to Tyrion again. If Lady Lysa knew that, surely she'd send her away, away from Robert's pouts and shakes and runny eyes, away from Marillion's lingering looks, away from Pattaya's kisses. I will tell her I will. It was late that afternoon when Lady Lysa summoned her. Sansa had been marshalling her courage all day, but no sooner did Marillion appear at her door than all her doubts returned. Lady Lysa requires your presence in the High Hall. The singer's eyes undressed her as he spoke, but she was used to that. Marillion was comely, there was no denying it, boyish and slender, with smooth skin, sandy hair, a charming smile. But he had made himself well hated in the Vale, by everyone but her aunt and little Lord Robert. To hear the servants talk, Sansa was not the first maid to suffer his advances, and the others had not had Lothar Brune to defend them. But Lady Lysa would hear no complaints against him. Since coming to the airy, the singer had become her favourite. He sang Lord Robert to sleep every night, and tweaked the noses of Lady Lysa's suitors, with verses that made mock of their foibles. Her aunt had showered him with gold and gifts, costly clothes, a gold arm-ring, a belt studded with moonstones, a fine horse. She had given him her late husband's favourite falcon. It all served to make Marillion unfailingly courteous in Lady Lysa's presence, and unfailingly arrogant outside it. Thank you, Sansa told him stiffly. I know the way. He would not leave. My lady says to bring you. Bring me? She did not like the sound of that. Are you a guardsman now? Littlefinger had dismissed the heiress captain of guards and put Sir Lothar Brune in his place. Do you require guarding? Marillion said lightly. I am composing a new song you should know, a song so sweet and sad it will melt even your frozen heart. The Roadside Rose, I mean to call it, about a baseborn girl so beautiful she bewitched every man who laid eyes upon her. I am a Stark of Winterfell, she longed to tell him. Instead, she nodded and let him escort her down the tower steps and along a bridge. The high hall had been closed as long as she had been at the airy. Sansa wondered why her aunt had opened it. Normally she preferred the comfort of her solar, or the cosy warmth of Lord Arryn's audience chamber with its view of the waterfall. Two guards in sky-blue cloaks flanked the carved wooden doors of the high hall, spears in hand. No one is to enter so long as Elaine is with Lady Lysa, Marillion told them. Aye. The men let them pass, then crossed their spears. Marillion swung the doors shut 
and barred them with a third spear, longer and thicker than those the guards had borne. Sansa felt a prickle of unease. Why did you do that? My lady awaits you. She looked about uncertainly. Lady Lysa sat on the dais in a high-backed chair of carved weirwood, alone. To her right was a second chair, taller than her own, with a stack of blue cushions piled on the seat. But Lord Robert was not in it. Sansa hoped he'd recovered. Marillion was not like to tell her, though. Sansa walked down the blue silk carpet between rows of fluted pillars, slim as lances. The floors and walls of the high hall were made of milk-white marble veined with blue. Shafts of pale daylight slanted down through narrow arch windows along the eastern wall. Between the windows were torches, mounted in high iron sconces, but none of them was lit. Her footsteps fell softly on the carpet. Outside, the wind blew cold and lonely. Amidst so much white marble, even the sunlight looked chilly somehow, though not half so chilly as her aunt. Lady Lysa had dressed in a gown of cream-coloured velvet and a necklace of sapphires and moonstones. Her auburn hair had been done up in a thick braid and fell across one shoulder. She sat in the high seat, watching her niece approach, her face red and puffy beneath the paint and powder. On the wall behind her hung a huge banner, the Moon and Falcon, of House Aaron in cream and blue. Sansa stopped before the dais and curtsied. My lady, you sent for me? She could still hear the sound of the wind and the soft chords Marillion was playing at the foot of the hall. I saw what you did, the Lady Lysa said. Sansa smoothed down the folds of her skirt. I trust Lord Robert is better. I never meant to rip his doll. He was smashing my snow castle. I only— Will you play the coy deceiver with me? Her aunt said. I was not speaking of Robert's doll. I saw you kissing him. The high hall seemed to grow a little colder. The walls and floor and columns might have turned to ice. He kissed me. Lysa's nostrils flared. And why would he do that? He has a wife who loves him. A woman grown, not a little girl. He has no need for the likes of you. Confess, child, you threw yourself at him. That was the way of it. Sansa took a step backward. That's not true. Where are you going? Are you afraid? Such wanton behavior must be punished, but I will not be hard on you. We keep a whipping boy for Robert, as is the custom in the free cities. His health is too delicate for him to bear the rod himself. I shall find some common girl to take your whipping, but first you must own up to what you've done. I cannot abide a liar, Elaine. I was building a snow castle, Sansa said. Lord Pattaya was helping me, and then he kissed me. That's what you saw. Have you no honor? her aunt said sharply. Or do you take me for a fool? You do, don't you? You take me for a fool. Yes, I see that now. I am not a fool. You think you can have any man you want because you're young and beautiful? Don't think I haven't seen the looks you give Marillion. I know everything that happens in the airy little lady, and I have known your like before, too. But you are mistaken if you think big eyes and strumpet smiles will win you Pattaya. 
He's mine. She rose to her feet. They all tried to take him from me. My lord father, my husband, your mother, Catelyn, most of all. She liked to kiss my pataya, too. Oh, yes, she did. Sansa retreated another step. My mother? Yes, your mother, your precious mother, my own sweet sister, Catelyn. Don't you think to play the innocent with me, you vile little liar? All those years in River Run, she played with Pataya as if he were her little toy. She teased him with smiles and soft words and wanton looks, and made his nights a torment. No, my mother is dead, she wanted to shriek. She was your own sister, and she's dead. She didn't. She wouldn't. How would you know? Were you there? Lysa descended from the high seat, her skirt swirling. Did you come with Lord Bracken and Lord Blackwood the time they visited to lay their feud before my father? Lord Bracken's singer played for us, and Catelyn danced six dances with Pataya that evening. Six! I counted. When the lords began to argue, my father took them up to his audience chamber, so there was no one to stop us drinking. Edmure got drunk, young as he was, and Pataya tried to kiss your mother, only she pushed him away. She laughed at him. He looked so wounded I thought my heart would burst, and afterward he drank until he passed out at the table. Uncle Brynden carried him up to bed before my father could find him like that. But you remember none of it, do you? She looked down angrily. Do you? Is she drunk or mad? I was not born, my lady. You were not born, but I was. So do not presume to tell what is true. I know what is true. You kissed him. He kissed me, Sansa insisted again. I never wanted— Be quiet. I haven't given you leave to speak. You enticed him, just as your mother did that night in River Run, with her smiles and her dancing. You think I could forget? That was the night I stole up to his bed to give him comfort. I bled, but it was the sweetest hurt. He told me he loved me then, but he called me Cat, just before he fell back to sleep. Even so— I stayed with him until the sky began to lighten. Your mother did not deserve him. She would not even give him her favor to wear when he fought Brandon Stark. I would have given him my favor. I gave him everything. He is mine now, not Catelyn's and not yours. All of Sansa's resolve had withered in the face of her aunt's onslaught. Lysa Aaron was frightening her as much as Queen Cersei ever had. He's yours, my lady, she said, trying to sound meek and contrite. May I have your leave to go? You may not. Her aunt's breath smelled of wine. If you were anyone else, I would banish you, send you down to Lord Nestor at the gates of the moon or back to the fingers. How would you like to spend your life on that bleak shore surrounded by slatterns and sheep pellets? That was what my father meant for Pattaya. Everyone thought it was because of that stupid duel with Brandon Stark, but that wasn't so. Father said I ought to thank the gods that so great a lord as John Aaron was willing to take me soiled. But I knew it was only for the swords. I had to marry John, or my father would have turned me out, as he did his brother. But it was Pataya I was meant for. I'm telling you all this so you will understand how much we love each other, how long we have suffered and dreamed of one another. We made a baby together, a precious little baby. Lysa put her hands flat against her belly, as if the child was still there.
when they stole him from me. I made a promise to myself that I would never let it happen again. John wished to send my sweet Robert to Dragonstone, and that sot of a king would have given him to Cersei Lannister, but I never let them. No more than I'd let you steal my Little Littlefinger, do you hear me? Elaine, or Sansa, or whatever you call yourself. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Yes, I swear I won't ever kiss him again, or, or, or entice him. Sansa thought that was what her aunt wanted to hear. So, you admit it now. It was you, just as I thought. You are as wanton as your mother. Lysa grabbed her by the wrist. Come with me now. There's something I want to show you. You're hurting me, Sansa squirmed. Please, Aunt Lysa, I haven't done anything, I swear it. Her aunt ignored her protests. Marillion, she shouted. I need you, Marillion. I need you. The singer had remained discreetly in the rear of the hall, but at Lady Aaron's shout he came at once. My lady, play us a song. Play The False and the Fair. Marillion's fingers brushed the strings. The Lord he came a-riding upon a rainy day. Hey, nonny, hey, nonny, hey, nonny, nay. Lady Lysa pulled at Sansa's arm. It was either walk or be dragged. So she chose to walk, halfway down the hall and between a pair of pillars to a white wearwood door set in the marble wall. The door was firmly closed with three heavy bronze bars to hold it in place. But Sansa could hear the wind outside worrying at its edges. When she saw the crescent moon carved in the wood, she planted her feet. The moon door! She tried to yank free. Why are you showing me the moon door? You squeaked like a mouse now, but you were bold enough in the garden, weren't you? You were bold enough in the snow! The lady sat to sewing upon a rainy day. Marillion sang, Hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey. Open the door, Lysa commanded. Open it, I say. You will do it, or I'll send for my guards. She shoved Sansa forward. Your mother was brave, at least. Lift off the bars. If I do as she says, she will let me go. Sansa grabbed one of the bronze bars, yanked it loose, and tossed it down. The second bar clattered to the marble, then the third. She had barely touched the latch when the heavy wooden door flew inward and slammed back against the wall with a bang. Snow had piled up around the frame, and it all came blowing in at them, borne on a blast of cold air that left Sansa shivering. She tried to step backward, but her aunt was behind her. Lysa seized her by the wrist and put her other hand between her shoulder blades, propelling her forcefully toward the open door. Beyond was white sky, falling snow, and nothing else. Look down, said Lady Lysa. Look down. She tried to wrench free, but her aunt's fingers were digging into her arm like claws. Lysa gave her another shove, and Sansa shrieked. Her left foot broke through a crust of snow and knocked it loose. There was nothing in front of her but empty air and a wave castle six hundred feet below, clinging to the side of the mountain. Don't! Sansa screamed. You're scaring me! Behind her, Marillion was still playing his wood harp, 
and singing, Hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey. Do you still want my leave to go? Do you? No. Sansa planted her feet and tried to squirm backward, but her aunt did not budge. Not this way, please. She put a hand up, her fingers scrabbling at the doorframe, but she could not get a grip, and her feet were sliding on the wet marble floor. Lady Lysa pressed her forward inexorably. Her aunt outweighed her by three stone. The lady lay a-kissing upon a mound of hay. Marillion was singing. Sansa twisted sideways, hysterical with fear, and one foot slipped out over the void. She screamed, Hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey, nanny, hey. The wind flapped her skirts up and bitted her bare legs with cold teeth. She could feel snowflakes melting on her cheeks. Sansa flailed, found Lysa's thick auburn braid, and clutched it tightly. My hair! Her aunt shrieked, Let go of my hair! She was shaking, sobbing. They teetered on the edge. Far off, she heard the guards pounding on the door with their spears, demanding to be let in. Marillion broke off his song. Lysa, what is the meaning of this? The shout cut through the sobs and heavy breathing. Footsteps echoed down the high hall. Get back from there, Lysa. What are you doing? The guards were still beating at the door. Littlefinger had come in the back way, through the Lord's entrance, behind the dais. As Lysa turned, her grip loosened enough for Sansa to rip free. She stumbled to her knees, where Patar Baelish saw her. He stopped suddenly. Elaine, what is the trouble here? Her! Lady Lysa grabbed a handful of Sansa's hair. She's the trouble. She kissed you. Tell her, Sansa begged. Tell her we were just building a castle. Be quiet, her aunt screamed. I never gave you leave to speak. No one cares about your castle. She's a child, Lysa. Cat's daughter. What did you think you were doing? I was going to marry her to Robert. She has no gratitude, no, no decency. You are not hers to kiss, not hers. I was teaching her a lesson, that was all. I see. He stroked his chin. I think she understands now. Isn't that so, Elaine? Yes, Substancer, I understand. I don't want her here. Her aunt's eyes were shiny with tears. Why did you bring her to the Vale, Patar? This isn't her place. She doesn't belong here. We'll send her away, then, back to King's Landing, if you like. He took a step toward them. Let her up now. Let her away from the door. No! Lysa gave Sansa's head another wrench. Snow aided around them, making their skirts snap noisily. You can't want her. You can't. She's a stupid, empty-headed little girl. She doesn't love you the way I have. I've always loved you. I've proved it. <laughs> Haven't I? Tears ran down her aunt's puffy red face. I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son too, but they murdered him with moon tea, with tansy and mint and wormwood, a spoon of honey and a drop of penny royal. It wasn't me. I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. That's past and done, Lysa. Lord Huster's dead, and his old maester as well. Littlefinger moved closer. Have you been at the wine again? You ought not to talk so much. 
We don't want Elaine to know more than she should, do we? Or Marillion. Lady Lysa ignored that. Cat never gave you anything. It was me who got you your first post. Who made John bring you to court so we could be close to one another? You promised me you would never forget that. Nor have I. We're together, just as you always wanted, just as we always planned. Joss let go of Sansa's hair. I won't. I saw you kissing in the snow. She's just like her mother. Catelyn kissed you in the godswood. But she never meant it. She never wanted you. Why did you love her best? It was me. It was always me. I know, love. He took another step. And I am here. All you need to do is take my hand. Come on. He held it out to her. There's no cause for all these tears. Tears, 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 she sobbed hysterically. No need for tears. But that's not what you said in King's Landing. You told me to put the tears in John's wine, and I did. For Robert and for us. And I wrote Catelyn and told her the Lannisters had killed my lord husband, just as you said. That was so clever. You were always clever. I told father that. I said, Patar's so clever. He'll rise high. He will. He will. And he's sweet and gentle. And I have his little baby in my belly. Why did you kiss her? Why? We're together now. We're together after so long, so very long. Why would you want to kiss her? Lysa, Patar sighed, after all the storms we've suffered, you should trust me better. I swear I shall never leave your side again for as long as we both shall live. Truly? she asked, weeping. Oh, truly? Truly. Now unhand the girl and come give me a kiss. Lysa threw herself into Littlefinger's arms, sobbing. As they hugged, Sansa crawled from the moon door on hands and knees and wrapped her arms around the nearest pillar. She could feel her heart pounding. There was snow in her hair, and her right shoe was missing. It must have fallen. She shuddered and hugged the pillar tighter. Littlefinger let Lysa sob against his chest for a moment, then put his hands on her arms and kissed her lightly. My sweet, silly, jealous wife, he said, chuckling. I've only loved one woman, I promise you. Lysa Aaron smiled tremulously. Only one? Oh, Pataya, do you swear it? Only one? Only cat. He gave her a short, sharp shove. Lysa stumbled backward, her feet slipping on the wet marble, and then she was gone. She never screamed. For the longest time there was no sound but the wind. Marillion gasped, You, you... The guards were shouting outside the door, pounding with the butts of their heavy spears. Lord Patar pulled Sansa to her feet. You're not hurt. When she shook her head, he said, Run, let my guards in then. Quick now, there's no time to lose. This singer's killed my lady wife. Epilogue
The road up to Oldstones went twice around the hill before reaching the summit. Overgrown and stony, it would have been slow going even in the best of times, and last night's snow had left it muddy as well. Snow in autumn, in the Riverlands, it's unnatural, Merritt thought gloomily. It had not been much of a snow, true, just enough to blanket the ground for a night. Most of it had started melting away as soon as the sun came up. Still, Merritt took it for a bad omen. Between rains, floods, fire, and war, they had lost two harvests and a good part of a third. An early winter would mean famine all across the riverlands. A great many people would go hungry, and some of them would starve. Merritt only hoped he wouldn't be one of them. I may, though, with my luck. I just may. I never did have any luck. Beneath the castle ruins, the lower slopes of the hill were so thickly forested that half a hundred outlaws could well have been lurking there. They could be watching me, even now. Merritt glanced about and saw nothing but gorse, bracken, thistle, sedge, and blackberry bushes between the pines and grey-green sentinels. Elsewhere, skeletal elm and ash and scrub oaks choked the ground like weeds. He saw no outlaws, but that meant little. Outlaws were better at hiding than honest men. Merritt hated the woods, if truth be told, and he hated outlaws even more. Outlaws stole my life, he had been known to complain when in his cups. He was too often in his cups, his father said, often and loudly. Too true, he thought ruefully. You needed some sort of distinction in the twins, else they were liable to forget you were alive. But a reputation as the biggest drinker in the castle had done little to enhance his prospects, he'd found. I once hoped to be the greatest knight who ever couched a lance. The guards took that away from me. Why shouldn't I have a cup of wine from time to time? It helps my headaches. Besides, my wife is a shrew. My father despises me. My children are worthless. What do I have to stay sober for? He was sober now, though. Well, he'd had two horns of ale when he broke his fast, and a small cup of red when he set out, but that was just to keep his head from pounding. Merritt could feel the headache building behind his eyes, and he knew that if he gave it half a chance, he would soon feel as if he had a thunderstorm raging between his ears. Sometimes his headaches got so bad that it even hurt too much to weep. Then all he could do was rest on his bed in a dark room with a damp cloth over his eyes and curse his luck and the nameless outlaw who had done this to him. Just thinking about it made him anxious. He could nowise afford a headache now. If I bring Petar back home safely, all my luck will change. He had the gold. All he needed to do was climb to the top of old stones, meet the bloody outlaws in the ruined castle, and make the exchange. A simple ransom. Even he could not muck it up. Unless he got a headache, one so bad that it left him unable to ride. He was supposed to be at the ruins by sunset, not weeping in a huddle at the side of the road. Merritt rubbed two fingers against his temple. Once more around the hill, and there I am. When the message had come in and he had stepped forward to offer to carry the ransom, 
his father had squinted down and said, You, Merritt, and started laughing through his nose. That idiot's hey, 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 laugh of his. Merritt practically had to beg before they'd give him the bloody bag of gold. Something moved in the underbrush along the side of the road. Merritt reined up hard and reached for his sword, but it was only a squirrel. Stupid, he told himself, shoving the sword back in the scabbard without ever having gotten it out. Outlaws don't have tails. Bloody hell, Merritt. Get hold of yourself. His heart was thumping in his chest, as if he were some green boy on his first campaign. As if this were the Kingswood, and it was the old brotherhood he was going to face, not the Lightning Lord's sorry lot of brigands. For a moment he was tempted to trot right back down the hill and find the nearest alehouse. That bag of gold would buy a lot of ale, enough for him to forget all about Pattaya Pimple. Let them hang him. He brought this on himself. It's no more than he deserves, wandering off with some bloody camp follower like a stag in rut. His head had begun to pound. Soft now, but he knew it would get worse. Merritt rubbed the bridge of his nose. He really had no right to think so ill of Pattaya. I did the same myself when I was his age. In his case, all it got him was a pox. But still, he shouldn't condemn. Whores did have charms, especially if you had a face like Pattaya's. The poor lad had a wife, to be sure, but she was half the problem. Not only was she twice his age, but she was bedding his brother Walder, too, if the talk was true. There was always lots of talk around the twins, and only a little was ever true, but in this case Merritt believed it. Black Walder was a man who took what he wanted, even his brother's wife. He'd had Edwin's wife, too. That was common knowledge. Fair Walder had been known to slip into his bed from time to time, and some even said he'd known the Seventh Lady Frey a deal better than he should have. Small wonder he refused to marry. Why buy a cow when there were udders all around begging to be milked? Cursing under his breath, Merritt jammed his heels into his horse's flanks and rode on up the hill. As tempting as it was to drink the gold away, he knew that if he didn't come back with Pattaya Pimple, he had as well not come back at all. Lord Walder would soon turn two and ninety. His ears had started to go, his eyes were almost gone, and his gout was so bad that he had to be carried everywhere. He could not possibly last much longer. All his sons agreed. And when he goes, everything will change, and not for the better. His father was querulous and stubborn, with an iron will and a wasp's tongue, but he did believe in taking care of his own, all of his own, even the ones who had displeased and disappointed him, even the ones whose names he can't remember. Once he was gone, though. When Sir Stevron had been heir, that was one thing. The old man had been grooming Stevron for sixty years, and had pounded it into his head that blood was blood. But Stevron had died, whilst campaigning with the young wolf in the west. Of waiting, no doubt, lame Lothar had quipped when the raven brought them the news, and his sons and grandsons were a different sort of fray. Stevron's son, Sir Ryman, stood to inherit now, a thick-witted, stubborn, greedy man. 
and after Ryman came his own sons, Edwin and Blackwalder, who were even worse. Fortunately, Lame Lothar said once, they ate each other even more than they ate us. Merritt wasn't certain that was fortunate at all, and for that matter, Lothar himself might be more dangerous than either of them. Lord Walder had ordered the slaughter of the Starks at Roslyn's wedding, but it had been Lame Lothar who had plotted it out with Bruce Bolton, all the way down to which songs would be played. Lothar was a very amusing fellow to get drunk with, but Merritt would never be so foolish as to turn his back on him. In the twins you learned early that only full-blood siblings could be trusted, and them not very far. It was like to be every son for himself when the old man died, and every daughter as well. The new lord of the crossing would doubtless keep on some of his uncles, nephews, and cousins at the twins, the ones he happened to like or trust, or, more likely, the ones he thought would prove useful to him. The rest of us he'll shove out to fend for ourselves. The prospect worried Merritt more than words could say. He would be forty in less than three years, too old to take up the life of a hedge knight, even if he'd been a knight, which, as it happened, he wasn't. He had no land, no wealth of his own. He owned the clothes on his back, but not much else, not even the horse he was riding. He wasn't clever enough to be a maester, pious enough to be a septon, or savage enough to be a sellsword. The gods gave me no gift but birth, and they stinted me there. What good was it to be the son of a rich and powerful house, if you were the ninth son? When you took grandsons and great-grandsons into account, Merritt stood a better chance of being chosen High Septon than he did of inheriting the twins. I have no luck, he thought bitterly. I have never had any bloody luck. He was a big man, broad around the chest and shoulders, if only of middling height. In the last ten years he had grown soft and fleshy, he knew. But when he had been younger, Merritt had been almost as robust as Sir Hustine, his eldest full brother, who was commonly regarded as the strongest of Lord Walder Frey's brood. As a boy he had been packed off to Crake Hall to serve his mother's family as a page. When old Lord Sumner had made him a squire, everyone had assumed he would be Sir Merritt in no more than a few years. But the outlaws of the Kingswood Brotherhood had pissed on those plans. While his fellow squire, Jamie Lannister, was covering himself in glory, Merritt had first caught the pox from a camp follower, then managed to get captured by a woman, the one called the White Fawn. Lord Sumner had ransomed him back from the outlaws but in the very next fight he'd been felled by a blow from a mace that had broken his helm and left him insensible for a fortnight. Everyone gave him up for dead, they told him later. Merritt hadn't died, but his fighting days were done. Even the lightest blow to his head brought on blinding pain and reduced him to tears. Under these circumstances, knighthood was out of the question, Lord Sumner told him, not unkindly. He was sent back to the twins to face Lord Walder's poisonous disdain. After that, Merritt's luck had only grown worse. His father had managed to make a good marriage for him, somehow. He wed one of Lord Darry's daughters, back when the Darry's stood high in King Aerys' favour. 
but it seemed as if he no sooner had deflowered his bride than Ares lost his throne. Unlike the phrase, the dairies had been prominent to Garian lawless, which cost them half their lands, most of their wealth, and almost all their power. As for his lady wife, she found him a great disappointment from the first, and insisted on pumping out nothing but girls for years. Three live ones, a stillbirth, and one that died in infancy before she finally produced a son. His eldest daughter had turned out to be a slut, his second a glutton. When Amy was caught in the stables with no fewer than three grooms, he'd been forced to marry her off to a bloody hedge knight. That situation could not possibly get any worse, he thought, until Sir Pate decided he could win renown by defeating Sir Gregor Clegane, Amy had come running back a widow to Merritt's dismay and the undoubted delight of every stable hand in the twins. Merritt had dared to hope that his luck was finally changing when Roos Bolton chose to wed his walder instead of one of her slimmer, comelier cousins. The Bolton alliance was important for House Frey, and his daughter had helped secure it. He thought that must surely count for something. The old man had soon disabused him. He picked her because she's fat, Lord Walder said. You think Bolton gave a mama's part? That she was your whelp? Think he sat about thinking, Hey, Merritt Muttonhead, that's the very man I need for a good father. Your Walder's a sow in silk. That's why he picked her, and I'm not like to thank you for it. We'd have had the same alliance at after price if your little porkling put down her spoon from time to time. The final humiliation had been delivered with a smile when lame Lothar had summoned him to discuss his role in Rosalind's wedding. We must each play our part according to our gifts, his half-brother told him. You shall have one task and one task only, Merritt, but I believe you're well suited to it. I want you to say to it that great John Umber is so bloody drunk that he can hardly stand, let alone fight. And even that, I failed at. He'd cousined the huge Northman into drinking enough wine to kill any three normal men, yet after Rosalind had been bedded, the great John still managed to snatch the sword of the first man to accost him and break his arm in the snatching. It had taken eight of them to get him into chains, and the effort had left two men wounded, one dead, and poor old Sir Leslin Haig short half an ear. When he couldn't fight with his hands any longer, Umber had fought with his teeth. Merritt paused a moment and closed his eyes. His head was throbbing like that bloody drum they'd played at the wedding, and for a moment it was all he could do to stay in the saddle. I have to go on he told himself. If he could bring back Pattaya Pimple, surely it would put him in Sir Ryman's good graces. Pattaya might be a whisker on the hapless side, but he wasn't as cold as Edwin, nor as hot as Black Walder. The boy will be grateful for my part, and his father will say that I am loyal, a man worth having about. But only if he was there by sunset with the gold. Merritt glanced at the sky. Right on time. 
He needed something to steady his hands. He pulled up the water skin, hung from his saddle, uncorked it, and took a long swallow. The wine was thick and sweet, so dark it was almost black, but gods it tasted good. The curtain wall of old stones had once encircled the brow of the hill like the crown on a king's head. Only the foundation remained, and a few waist-high piles of crumbling stone spotted with lichen. Merritt rode along the line of the wall until he came to the place where the gatehouse would have stood. The ruins were more extensive here, and he had to dismount to lead his palfrey through them. In the west the sun had vanished behind a bank of low clouds. Gorse and bracken covered the slopes, and once inside the vanished walls the weeds were chest-high. Merritt loosened his sword in its scabbard and looked about wearily, but saw no outlaws. Could I have come on the wrong day? He stopped and rubbed his temples with his thumbs, but that did nothing to ease the pressure behind his eyes. Seven bloody hells! From somewhere deep within the castle, faint music came drifting through the trees. Merritt found himself shivering, despite his cloak. He pulled open his water-skin and had another drink of wine. I could just get back on my horse, ride to Old Town, and drink the gold away. No good ever came from dealing with outlaws. That vile little bitch Wenda had burned a fawn into the cheek of his ass while she had him captive. No wonder his wife despised him. I have to go through with this. Petar Pimple might be lord of the cross in one day. Edwin has no sons, and Black Warders only got bastards. Petire will remember who came to get him. He took another swallow, corked the skin up, and led his palfrey through broken stones, gorse, and thin, wind-whipped trees, following the sounds to what had been the castle ward. Fallen leaves lay thick upon the ground like soldiers after some great slaughter. A man in patched, faded greens was sitting cross-legged atop a weathered stone sepulchre, fingering the strings of a wood-harp. The music was soft and sad. Merritt knew the song. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts. Get off there, Merritt said. You're sitting on a king. Oh, Christopher, don't mind my bony ass. The hammer of justice, they call him. Been a long while since he heard any new songs. The outlaw hopped down. Trim and slim, he had a narrow face and foxy features, but his mouth was so wide that his smile seemed to touch his ears. A few strands of thin brown hair were blowing across his brow. He pushed them back with his free hand and said, Do you remember me, my lord? No, Merritt frowned. Why would I? I sang at your daughter's wedding, and passing well, I thought. That pate she married was a cousin, but all cousins in seven streams. Didn't stop him from turning niggard when it was time to pay me. He shrugged. Why is it your lord father never has me play at the twins? Don't I make enough noise for his lordship? He likes it loud I have been hearing. You bring the gold? asked a harsher voice behind him. Merritt's throat was dry. Bloody outlaws, always hiding in the bushes. It had been the same in the king's wood. 
You'd think you'd caught five of them, and ten more would spring from nowhere. When he turned, they were all around him. An ill-favoured gaggle of leathery old men and smooth-cheeked lads younger than Pattaya Pimple. The lot of them clad in rough-spun rags, boiled leather, and bits of dead man's armour. There was one woman with them, bundled up in a hooded cloak, three times too big for her. Merritt was too flustered to count them, but there seemed to be a dozen at the least, maybe a score. I asked a question. The speaker was a big-bearded man with crooked green teeth and a broken nose, taller than Merritt, though not so heavy in the belly. A half-helm covered his head, a patched yellow cloak his broad shoulders. Where's our gold? In my saddlebag, a hundred golden dragons. Merritt cleared his throat. You'll get it when I see that Pattaya. A squat, one-eyed outlaw strode forward before he could finish, reached into the saddlebag, bold as you please, and found the sack. Merritt started to grab him, then thought better of it. The outlaw opened the drawstring, removed a coin, and bit it. Tastes right, he hefted the sack. Feels right, too. They're going to take the gold and keep Pattaya, too, Merritt thought in sudden panic. That's the whole ransom, all you ask for. His palms were sweating. He wiped them on his breeches. Which one of you is Beric Dundarian? Dundarian had been a lord before he turned outlaw. He might still be a man of honor. Why, that would be me, said the one-eyed man. You're a bloody liar, Jack, said the big-bearded man in the yellow cloak. It's my turn to be Lord Berwick. Does that mean I have to be Thoris? The singer laughed. My lord sat to say Lord Berwick was needed elsewhere. The times are troubled, and there are many battles to fight. But we'll sort you out just as he would. Have no fear. Merritt had plenty of fear. His head was pounding, too. Much more of this, and he'd be sobbing. You have your gold, he said. Give me my nephew, and I'll be gone. Pattaya was actually more a great half-nephew, but there was no need to go into that. He's in the godswood, said the man in the yellow cloak. We'll take you to him. Notch, you hold his horse. Merritt handed over the bridle reluctantly. He did not see what other choice he had. My water skin, he heard himself say, a swallow of wine to settle my... We don't drink with your sort, Yellowcloak said curtly. It's this way. Follow me. Leaves crunched beneath their heels, and every step sent a spike of pain through Merritt's temple. They walked in silence, the wind gusting around them. The last light of the setting sun was in his eyes as he clambered over the mossy hummocks that were all that remained of the keep. Behind was the godswood. Pattaya Pimple was hanging from the limb of an oak, a noose tighter on his long, thin neck. His eyes bulged from the black face, staring down at Merritt accusingly. You came too late, they seemed to say. But he hadn't, he hadn't. He'd come when they told him. You killed him, he croaked. Sharp as a blade, this one, said the one-eyed man.
an oryx was thundering through Merritt's head. Mother have mercy, he thought. I brought the gold. That was good of you, said the singer amiably. We'll see that it's put to good use. Merritt turned away from Pattaya. He could taste the bile in the back of his throat. Yeah, you had no right. We had a rope, said Yellowcloak. That's right enough. Two of the outlaws seized Merritt's arms and bound them tight behind his back. He was too deep in shock to struggle. No, was all he could manage. I only came to ransom Patar. You said if you had the gold by sunset, he wouldn't be harmed. Well, said the singer, you got us there, my lord. That was a lie of sorts, as it happens. The one-eyed outlaw came forward with a long coil of hempen rope. He looped one end around Merritt's neck, pulled it tight, and tied a hard knot under his ear. The other end he threw over the limb of the oak. The big man in the yellow cloak caught it. What he had doing? Merritt knew how stupid that sounded, but he could not believe what was happening even then. He had never dare hang a fray. Yellow cloak laughed. That other one, the pimply boy, he said the same thing. He doesn't mean it. He cannot mean it. My father will pay you. I'm worth a good ransom, more than Pertire, twice as much. The singer sighed. Lord Walder might be half blind and gouty, but he's not so stupid as to snap at the same bait twice. Next time he'll send a hundred swords instead of a hundred dragons, I fear. He will. Merritt tried to sound stern, but his voice betrayed him. He'll send a thousand swords and kill you all. He has to catch us first. The singer glanced up at poor Pattaya. And he can't hang us twice now, can he? He drew a melancholy air from the strings of his wood harp. Here now, don't soil yourself. All you need to do is answer me a question, and I'll tell them to let you go. Merritt would tell them anything if it meant his life. What you want to know? I'll tell you true, I swear it. The outlaw gave him an encouraging smile. Well, as it happens, we're looking for a dog that ran away. A dog? Merritt was lost. What kind of dog? He answers to the name Sandor Clegane. Thor says he was making for the twins. We found the ferryman who took him across the trident and the poor sod he robbed on the king's road. Did you see him at the wedding, perchance? The red wedding? Merritt's skull felt as if it were about to split, but he did his best to recall. There had been so much confusion, but surely someone would have mentioned Joffrey's dog sniffing around the twins? He wasn't in the castle, not at the main feast. He, he might have been at the bastard feast, or in, in the camps, but no, someone would have said. He would have had a child with him, said the singer. A skinny girl, about ten, or perhaps a boy the same age. I don't think so, said Merritt. Not that I knew. No, are that's a pity. Well, up you go. No, Merritt squealed loudly. No, don't. I gave you your answer. You said you'd let me go. Oh, seems to me 
that what I said was, I tell them to let you go. The singer looked at Yellowcloak. Lem, let him go. Go buggy yourself, the big outlaw replied brusquely. The singer gave Merritt a helpless shrug and began to play The Day They Hang Black Robin. Peace! The last of Merritt's courage was running down his leg. I've done you no harm. I, I, I brought the gold the way you said I answered your question. I have children. That young wolf never will, said the one-eyed outlaw. Merritt could hardly think for the pounding in his head. He shamed us. The whole realm was laughing. We had to cleanse the stain and our honour. His father had said all that and more. Maybe so. What do a bunch of bloody peasants know about a lord's honour? Yellowcloak wrapped the end of the rope around his hand three times. We know some about murder, though. Not murder. His voice was shrill. It was vengeance. We had a right to our vengeance. It was war. Egan, we called him Jingle Bell. A poor Lockwood never hurt anyone. Lady Stark cut his throat. We lost half a hundred men in the camps. Sir Gars Goodbrook, Cyrus' husband, and Sir Titus, Jared's son. Someone smashed his head in with an axe. Stark's dire wolf killed four of our wolfhounds and tore the kennelmaster's arm off his shoulder, even after we'd filled him full of quarrels. So you sewed his head on Rob Stark's neck after both of them were dead, said Yellowcloak. My father did that. All I did was drink. You wouldn't kill a man for drinking. Merritt remembered something then, something that might be the saving of him. They say Lord Berwick always gives a man a trail, that he won't kill a man unless something's proved against him. You can't prove anything against me. The Red Wedding was my father's work, and Raymond's and Lord Bolton's. Luther rigged the tents to collapse and put the crossbowmen in the gallery with the musicians. Bastard Walder led the attack on the camps. They're the ones you want, not me. I only drank some wine. You have no witness. As it happens, you're wrong there. The singer turned to the hooded woman. Milady? The outlaws parted as she came forward, saying no word. When she lowered her hood, Something tightened inside Merritt's chest, and for a moment he could not breathe. No, no, I, I saw her die. She was dead for a day and a night before they stripped her naked and threw her body in the river. Raymond opened her throat from ear to ear. She was dead. Her cloak and collar hid the gash his brother's blade had made, but her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding soft in the water and turned the colour of curdled milk. Half her hair was gone, and the rest had turned as white and brittle as a crone's. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin and black blood where she'd raked herself with her nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they hated. She don't speak, said the big man in the yellow cloak. You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that. 
but she remembers. He turned to the dead woman and said, What do you say, my lady? Was he part of it? Lady Catelyn's eyes never left him. She nodded. Merritt Frey opened his mouth to plead, but the noose choked off his words. His feet left the ground, the rope cutting deep into the soft flesh beneath his chin. Up into the air he jerked, kicking and twisting, up and up and up. This is Roy Dutrice. We hope you've enjoyed this production of A Storm of Swords, Book Three of A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. Copyright 2000 by George R. R. Martin. Published by arrangement with Random House Audio Publishing Group, a division of Random House Incorporated. Production copyright 2004, Random House Incorporated. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.